Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, and this encore gigantic episode of uh, Fat Man on Batman from years ago featuring the great Neil Adams uh, is being brought to you by That Kevin Smith Club. All of my old podcasts are behind the walls of That Kevin Smith Club. Includes tons of video in the Smithsonian screening room or just listen to 10,000 hours of podcast, kids. Um, it's all waiting for you behind the walls of That Kevin Smith Club. Go to That Kevin Smith club.com to hear more shows like this and without further ado ladies and gentlemen i hand you over to fat man beyond Welcome to Fat Man Beyond. I'm Kevin Smith. Uh okay, um we've all by now seen the very sad news and if you haven't then I'm, don't kill the messenger but i'm gonna have to give you some unfortunate information one of the greats ladies and gentlemen one of the greatest comic book artists to walk this earth uh, one of the greatest batman artists one of the greatest green arrow artists one of the greatest green lantern artists one of the greatest artists period superman artists like Past at age uh, 80, I believe, uh, the great Neil Adams. Um, we lost uh, just today. The news broke. Um, I got him to come on Fat Man on Batman years ago. Um, and we did a huge interview that we turned into a three-parter. And I loved him so much. Um, I put him on uh, uh, Comic Book Man as well. I said, we got to get this guy on Comic Book Man. He's a damn legend. Uh, he And he was. And he will remain so forever. Uh, I could uh, sit here and tell you all about him. But you know what? What we're going to do here is uh, string together all the episodes in one giant episode of uh, Fat Man Beyond here. Pulling these from the uh, That Kevin Smith Club archives, kids. So if you enjoy what you hear, come join us over at thatkevinsmithclub.com where we've got thousands upon thousands of hours of of audio from, you know, podcasting since 2007, including the entire run of uh, Fat Man on Batman where I interviewed everybody before it became what it is now, Fat Man Beyond with me and Mark. So, uh, without further ado, kids, in honor of one of the greatest, uh, the fact that I was able to not only meet this guy, but tell him what his work meant to me and highlight him and showcase him. He was such a hero. <coughs> Pour one out for the great Neil Adams, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, take it away, younger Kev. Okay, kids, when I was a little boy, a little butterball, a little fat kid on Batman didn't rhyme show wouldn't have worked in childhood wouldn't have caught on not as pleasing to the ear any event I'm a kid I'm about five years old I'm enjoying the Batman TV show um in reruns that's my Batman I'm you know I'm familiar of course with the cartoon Batman the comic book Batman has not been placed into my hands yet uh you know I, comics weren't introduced to me until I go to Vinny the Barber's Barbershop in uh, Shrewsbury, uh, New Jersey. Um, you go there, try to imagine this if you can. I wasn't big enough to, for him to cut my hair when I sat in the chair, so he had to put a board on the arms of the chair, and I sat on the board. 
so that I could be tall. That's how little I am. In any event, uh, before you're in the chair, if you're sitting in the little waiting area, which is, you know, right across from the chairs, he's got a little black and white TV there on a little TV, rolling TV stand, on, under the TV stand, stacks of comic books. Now they got Sad Sack, they got uh, Casper, they got Hot Stuff, The Little Devil. Um, they got all sorts of, uh, of humor comics more than anything else. But what else they got in there? They got Batman. They got Spider-Man. Yeah, there's some hero books in there. So naturally, when I see Batman, I gravitate right toward it. Hey, man, I watch Batman. Now, of the Batman books, the one that caught my eye uh, had come out years previously. Uh, this was in the days before people were bagging and boarding their comics. So these comics were just laid under this uh, TV stand, read by every kid that came through, maybe an adult or two as well. Dog-eared, ratty, rolled up. You know, they were not taken care of, but uh, it, that doesn't matter. When you're a five-year-old kid and you're looking at pictures of Batman, it doesn't matter what condition the book was in. didn't matter that it was mint. didn't matter that it had come out. In 1973 or something, and this was 1975, and the book had gone through the ringer. Man, there was it was well well read book, and that tells you something right away. You're like, a lot of people gravitate toward this. I'm a, I want to read it as well. And why they gravitated toward it um, was because the stunning cover. I'm talking about Batman number 251. Now, if you watch comic book men. Uh, which is returning to airwaves on AMC after The Walking Dead on February 9th. Um, you'll see that uh, from season two forward, that's the 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 uh, counter that we built in the middle of the store um, uh, for doing transactions and whatnot, uh, decorated with lots of uh, large comic book covers, blown up comic book covers. There's a reason that Batman 251 uh, is up there. Not only is it just a stunning, one of the most iconic comic book covers ever created, but that was the first Batman comic that I ever picked up, man. And I was drawn to it by this looming image of the Joker uh, over Gotham City. He's large and he's got this giant playing card, this ace, you know, like an ace up his sleeve, ace of spades, I think it was. And there's Batman kind of holding on to it. If I, if I remember, like he's suspended from it or falling from it. It was very dramatic very uh, eye-catching and and you know told the story joker's got the ha 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 um uh, word letters coming around his, his head as he's laughing and uh this historically of course was the reinvention or reintroduction of the joker in the dc universe all of this was uh, a batman and joker universe uh, a bat books being redefined following the massive success and then implosion of the Batman TV series, all the books in the comic book world had uh, about Batman had gotten as campy as the show. So there was a, a concerted effort to bring Batman back to his origins, his darkness origins. And uh, the same with his uh, rogues gallery as well. Uh, this was no, the, no longer was the Joker, the clown, Prince of Crime. This was returning them to the murderous, psychotic, you know, just happened to wear makeup, who would kill people. Vicious, uh, homicidal maniac. So the, the Joker that you all know, kids, was reintroduced and redefined, uh, in Batman 251. Not only does that, uh, happen in Batman 251. So, you know, if you're a Batman TV show fan, you're like, Oh my God, that Joker and Batman. And they're done in a way I've never seen before. And not everything is on a Dutch tilt and shit. And, and, and here's the fucking capper. And oh my God. Joker tries to feed Batman to a shark and Batman battles a shark. He's riding the fucking 
shark, you know, you're beside yourself. This is pretty jaws, man. So uh, I, I, this, this book has always been one of my favorite sentimental favorites, uh, especially because it's my first introduction to four color Batman, as far as I can remember. Um, I remember taking that comic book home from the barber shop, asked my mom, can I have this? And my mom was like, you have to ask Vinny. And I said, can I have this? And he goes, I don't know. Are you going to be good for your haircut? I said, yeah. And he goes, okay. So then I got to take it home and I read it from cover to cover all the time. And that I tried to redraw Batman on top of a shark. If I could find those drawings. Oh, good Lord. I'd be more embarrassed now, of course, than when I drew him. I was embarrassed then showing him my mom, my mom being like, what is this? I'm like, uh, Batman riding a shark, and then show her the comic book, and she goes, "Oh!" in a very supportive way. But inside, was just like, "My son has no talent." And uh, you know what? I'm sure she still looks at herself in the mirror some days and says the same thing: "My son has no talent." In any event, um, this book, this bat book, is historic in my world, so it has a place of honor in the frame there on Comic Book Men, right there at the front of the counter. A little sentimental nod to the book that was my gateway to. Batman in comic books, which is way different than Batman in the Batman TV show, the 60s, or Batman from the Super Friends. This is the true Bat. And the true Bat was brought back to the roots, man, after, you know, all the campiness of the 60s uh, by a, a, a bunch of creators, but, but chiefly amongst them was an artist so good. He was able to work, tiptoe through the tulips, work at not just DC on the Bat, but then jump across the way and work at Marvel at a time when people didn't do that and then go back and forth, man. But he could. Um, he has drawn. Uh, let me see. Uh, one of my favorite characters that I actually worked on as well, and and my storyline was fed by his storylines uh, way back in the day. Uh, the hard traveling hero storylines of Green Lantern and Green Arrow, uh, historic for the you know the junkie cover. Well, my ward is a junkie as Speedy's shooting up with heroin. Um, he, he brought iconic aspects to the character that they still work with today, not to mention created some of Batman's amazing Bat family rogues gallery, like the man Bat, Raza Ghoul, and oh, the list goes on. So a legend in the, in the field of comic books, uh, a man with a, a mind like a steel trap he remembers so much. And what you're going to hear is one of the greatest storytellers uh, you'll ever be able to lend your ears up for. Uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Neil Adams. Hi. How are you, sir? I'm fine. How are you? Does it, after how many years have you been dealing with people going, you're a genius? Is it just uncomfortable? What is it like when people come up to you and fawn? Love it. You love it, don't well, you? Well, I was and a fat kid, so naturally, like, right. you know, I, I was missing a little affection how from the general populace. How can you hate it? How can you hate it? Right. The thing about being you, well, it's less you and more me. Okay, so. Because people recognize you. People don't really recognize me. I can go to a comic book convention mm -hmm. and everybody there is nice to me and everybody's there says all that stuff. And But when I walk out the door, I'm nobody. So you've I been able to have like a normal life. That's right. Outside the nobody cons. Nobody bothers. Maybe one black guy and, you know, like <laughs> 180 days will come up and go, oh, you're Neil Adams, right? Oh, right. You're so cool. And that's cool. When that happens, somebody in the theater or whatever. But I get to live both lives. I get to be like lauded at the comic book conventions and wherever the hell this goes on. But when I leave, I'm cool. Let's I'm talk cool. about the conventions real quick because it occurs to me. 
I jumped in, like I grew up dreaming of going to San Diego Comic-Con, right. hearing about it. And then in 95, I finally got to go. But yeah. you were there for the beginning of all this shit. <laughs> when it shit. was in a motel. Yeah, or, or not Me, just Jack that. Kirby, uh, Sergio Aragonis, and some guy that I don't even know. And, and uh, Shell Dorf. Perfect name for that guy, Sheldorf. And it was in a motel. They had like, oh, you know, most of the guys are going to have, uh, 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 we're going to, we're going to have a dinner. Okay. And you get to sit with all your fans and they have to pay so that you don't have to pay for dinner. That's pretty good. They had four tables. This was what, San Diego? Yeah. San Diego was in this motel. Uh, you know, all the people who collect this memorabilia and know this stuff know it. I have no idea what this motel was. But you was. were there for the very I first was there. One. And it was sponsored it was more as a dinner, like meet with the greats, like one it of those old sports a, dinners? It was called a comic book convention because they did them in uh, in New York with Phil Suling. Phil Suling had comic book conventions, but this was the first one in San Diego. It was like, oh, well, San Diego, I got to Cal- get to go to California. They, I think they partially paid for the ticket and they paid for the room. And it was really the people that were there. Most of them were dealers. The people who have the money are the dealers. So they buy the artwork and they treat you to dinner and stuff like that. So it's dealers. And it was, it was like, who would expect it to turn into this monster? There's 70 conventions a year. In the United States, seventy. There's only fifty-two weeks in a year, <laughs> and only fifty. By states. the end of next next this year, there's going to be a hundred. Uh, Australia's got like seven or eight. Uh, uh, England has at least two. Uh, Italy has some, but they never pay you. They're just assholes. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. It's, You've been around the world. Though, I'm sorry. Doing it. So you actually have, you could weigh in. You're not, you're not a guy going, I hear it's bad. You've been oh, to almost every oh. con there is, uh, in every country there is. Right. So you can Except speak to it. Except for Angoulême. I want to go to Angoulême at some point. Have they done it yet? A con Yeah, there? they do it. And it's really cool. I, I hear they act like adults. There is a book series that you can author that it would be for a very select group of people, but it's just like cons around the world because yeah. you've been to all. Who are you kidding? It's called, who are you kidding? <laughs> now, wait, these cons, I, I venture to say, and you probably know this as well, without the hard work you put in the beginning, not just the actual yeah. artwork, yeah. but going out there and talking about the Let artwork. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. When I started, I was like 18 years old. I had just turned 18 years old. I went to DC Comics. Mm-hmm. I had a portfolio. I made it my business to have artwork in it that was professional. It was professional. What I does that mean prof- exactly? Professional means you inked it well, you did the lettering, the artwork, the drawing is good, and you look at it and you go, oh, I could go in a book. Not, you know, it looks like a, some fan art. Right. Because I was training to do artwork. I was training to get a job. So I took it up to DC Comics, and this guy named Bill Perry, old guy, comes out, comes out in the lobby. Came's out. Did I say came's out? <laughs> Comes out funny. And he says, uh, kid, uh, yeah, look, um, uh, 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 we're not looking for anybody. I said, well, well, can I show my work to an editor? He says, no, I can't let you do it. I said, well, just, uh, can I just show it? Can I just show it? He says, no, look, kid, look, we're going to be out of business in a year. What year is this? This is 1959. And the, are they national or... DC at this DC point. Comics. So they're DC. DC. Oh, yeah. It's an a- ancient history. They've been around for a long time. It's just after the, the 53. Uh-huh. 53 was, uh, actually, this was 58. 53, the Congress attacked comic books with the book, The uh, Seduction, Seduction of, of the, the Innocent, Innocent Frederick right? Worth. And uh, my, I, the way I analyze it, uh, you know, being a little bit uh, 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 nasty about it, I suppose, uh, to Congress, because why shouldn't we be nasty to Congress? <laughs> they had finished with communists and, you know, they were like they were revved up. So they turned the dictionary to comic books and 
said, "What's let's attack comic books." Going back one page, it's legislation by a dictionary, I think, and uh, <laughs> that's. So let's uh, let's attack. So they did. They attacked comic books. And we apparently the comic book industry decided to send their worst representatives to Congress. Bill Gaines, who who uh, was a total foolish asshole. Really? And, and you know, and, and it was televised, televised for all America to see. So people were watching Congress talk. Well, to they Bill had just Gaines. watched all the commies. Right. Now it's comics. And so and were so they, they bringing up the, 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 oh, the creepy and, for, oh, here's pictures of a fire hydrant. Doesn't that look like a male sexual things like that? Right. The worst, dumbest, the dumbest things you could ever imagine. And Gaines didn't represent well. He, Gaines had the worst books out there. Right. Take out the man's guts and put them along the base path and let kids run on them. <laughs> No, yeah, I guess not, that's not the guy. Not exactly there. what we want after where, World War Two. Where was DC? Why? Why wasn't like a DC or a Marvel editor? One of the they were two. there. They were. I, I I didn't watch the whole thing. I'm mm. this kid. I know what. I, at that time, I was in Germany. I'm in Germany with the Army of Occupation as some kid. <laughs> like, what's going on in America? I don't know. That's the states. I'm watching the uh, World Series in of uh, the Armed Forces in uh, Western Germany. That's what I was doing. I so was, wait, were you in had, the service? No, I was a kid. Your parents were? That's the idea, oh. is that one, the best thing that we ever did in America, among all the incredibly stupid things that we do, is we sent, we decided, unlike World War I, that we were going to help Japan and we were going to help Germany. So we not only send the, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers over there to rebuild, and they're the best builders in the world, we sent families and uh, uh, we built housing for them. And then we turned the housing over to the Germans. We hired the um, German soldiers, widows as maids to work in the houses. So they had a job so they could take money home. We allowed the black market to take place so that the black market could feed American goods into Germany. And everybody pretended the black market was, oh, you can't do that. But everybody did it. My mom did it. And my mom traded coffee and cigarettes for Hummels and Dresdens and sculptures and, and honey wagons uh, made in Germany, just like all American uh, uh, GI's wives and Air Force wives. We built the economy of Germany and they built like crazy. And I was there as a kid watching all this happening. And it was incredible. You know, you run into the Nazi youth and they want to kill you. And then suddenly you see building going on so fast that you can't believe it. You see the reconstruction of Germany happening under your eyes. And then you're, you're told the next five minutes that don't walk through the woods. And if you see these V-shaped holes, don't go near them because there's live grenades in them and bombs and don't do this. Okay, let's go out with the Boy Scouts and do this in the Black Forest. I did summer camp in the Black Forest. It was one of the most incredible experiences in my life. What you're hearing is my slack jaw. I'm as I as I sit there going, I thought I had a pretty good childhood. Oh man, this was this was the best. Unbe excuse me, fucking. This is the show to say that. Unbe fucking leaveable. I'm in little shops where they're having where you buy beer mugs. I'm in uh, bars. You know, and over here we have bars where you we have drunks. Over there they have bars where they have steins and they come with their lunch and they bring a piece of bread and they bring a salami and a piece of cheese and they take out this fucking Bowie knife and they cut chunks off and stick it in their mouth and drink a, sl drink a slug of beer. Meanwhile, on the wall, they have these actually gambling machines that are called 10 fenning machines that are actually honest. So you can go and play and win. <laughs> and lose, but you can play and win right. because it's fun. 
That's what they do. They're like just regular folks walking around in later hosen and singing and having beer and having a great time. Where in in Germany is this? This was Kaiserslautern. So where's that in relation to? It's close to the French border. What's good about being close to the French border is my father could go across to the French border and buy the best wine in the world for 99 cents on Friday night. I could drink, not wine, champagne, champagne. Friday night was champagne night. How old are you and you're allowed to drink it? Ten. They don't give a shit. Yeah. Glass of wine. Glass of champagne. What's a glass of champagne? How does it make you go ten- to sleep? Is that what it does to a 10-year-old? Sure, of course. That is adorable. So who is it? It's your dad, my your dad mom? My dad was in the army. My mom was an army wife. You? Do you have siblings? And my sister. And my sister. So were you speaking German? A little bit. Kids? You know, klein abyssal. Just, uh, you know, you go, you go with it. I mean, you have teachers teaching you German because that's the only job that they know. So they get a job. So now they're teaching you German songs. So we're learning German songs because that woman needs to be employed. You did rebuild the, the economy. No, no kidding. Uh, Japan, I knew the same thing was going on in Japan as in Germany. We built Germany. Did we they rebuilt Germany. Did they do that anymore? Well, we don't have that many wars. <laughs> and let's hope we don't have any more. Right, we got true. tanks that can fire 10 miles further than any other tank in the world. And so while the other tanks are coming, we blow them up. It's very hard to beat America now. Yeah. If you study the weaponry, you know, mm, you don't want to attack America. I just read a story recently, and I I want to say it was in Germany, but mm-hmm. like there was one of those buried um, grenades went off or whatever. No, they called. we used the to have it all the time. You said. Really? Were we people injured time. or was it just? Yeah, kids would blow up. Hey, catch this, Joey. Boom. You get two blown up kids. In Don't your childhood? Oh, yeah. Don't touch the metal. I didn't get blown up. Obviously. I had a kid fall out of the fourth story window in front of me, but that was about it. Oh, my God. What a childhood. Uh, incredible. I it had fed the, the imagination. Incredible childhood you'd ever want to imagine. When Believe do you come me. back to the States? When I was, uh, I was approaching 13, came back to the United States. Choice where your parents are like, we're going home. Really, we're bitching and moaning saying that, you know, we want to go back to the States, the States. Let's go back to the States. It's the dumbest thing we did. Because it was great over there and come back to the States and sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so what year is this that you come back to the States? Oh, Jesus. I don't 50 know. something? Cause you're, yeah, you're, know. you're how old and when you go 18? 13, when I you want to do some math, do it's, it I guess like, uh, 54, 55, something like that. Okay. Well, I, I can tell you how I know because, um, when I was in Germany, I was a baseball fan, but I was not a baseball fan of the American teams. I was a baseball fan of the European armed forces teams. I was there. I was there as a ball boy, mm-hmm. ball boy for the World Series in Germany. If only they let you be the bat boy. <sighs> no, that would have been perfect. Essentially. <laughs> so, so during the World Series in Germany, I was, well, I was bat boy. It was bat boy and ball boy were the same way. Uh, and so I got both teams signed my balls. And what are the, who are the teams made up of all different armed forces? Armed forces. A lot of guys are professional baseball. I was going to say, like, did they come sure, from yeah. ba- professional right. baseball? And, like Elvis had uh, right. come. Been a I didn't singer. know there was a World Series in the United States. That was no, your World Series. I had left at a time when I, oh, I'm a kid. And here is this is my World Series. I and go I guess, back and I'm in Brooklyn in Coney Island. I lived in Coney Island. Another great time in my life. I live in Coney Island, and the kids around in Coney Island are trying to convince me that. I got to be a, a baseball fan. I go, nah, I'm not interested because I was, I was, I was at the World Series. I got the balls, <laughs> right. right? No, no, you got to be a baseball fan. I think this is 56. Anyway, 
So they, they're hawking on me to be a baseball fan. I know I don't want to be a baseball I said, look, okay, what does it take? I mean, uh, well, there's got to be a pennant race. Oh, yeah, I know. I think I remember that. Yeah. I was there for the World Series, but I don't remember the pennant race. Okay. There's going to be a pennant race. Okay. And so I say, so what team? This is Brooklyn, right? I said, when did Brooklyn last win? Uh, uh, not for a long time. Well, how long? Uh, about 30 years. W- wait a second. You guys are telling me you want me to be a fan of a Brooklyn team that is that has no chance of winning the pennant or the world, not even getting in. They're the worst. Are you telling me they're the worst? Yes, they're the bums. Oh, really? You're telling me I should be a baseball fan for this frustration? You want me? I was. I can't even tell you about Germany. I can't tell you about it. We had the best team, and we had the second best team. Do you get, I had it do you all. you get beat up in America, though, if you're no, there defending no, Germany? No, no, <laughs> Listen, no, you, no, you no, Americans no. don't get no, it. No, kids don't know. They don't know shit. <laughs> kids know nothing. So when so did anyway, you so eventually so wait give in? So anyway, they say, no, no, you got to do this. I say, okay, so they're going to lose, right? Yeah, they're going to lose, but it's great. You know, I say, okay, fine. They're going to lose. Okay, so they want to play. And I, okay, yeah, okay. Remember his name, Pee Wee Reese, and all these guys. They win the pennant that year. Okay, so well, I gonna, are they going to be in this year? Yes, they're going to be. In this year. Are they going to win? They can't win. It's Brooklyn. It's the Dodgers. It's been thirty years. They've ne- believe me, Neil. That's it. That's the end. They won. <laughs> they won. That was your first year it's back. It's like yeah. It's like they won the World Series. I can't believe it. They won the what the hell is with you guys? You lied to me from the beginning. <laughs> you said they you were said bums. They were gonna lose and they were bums. They just won the World Series. Sorry. <laughs> Everybody's walking around Brooklyn going, sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, they won. <laughs> Did you still keep the balls from Germany? Everyone I don't know sorry? where they are now. They're gone. Whatever they were. Do you keep a lot of stuff? Are you don't a hoarder? Really? I couldn't care less. You, I, I mean, uh, it's unbelievable. We're 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 not even deep into this, and you're already my favorite person on the planet. You could tell a motherfucking story. <laughs> oh, I got stories. This you is spellbinding. No idea. You have no idea. All right, so that's so you fifth, should hear about my Coney Island experience. Done. Go rock. Go. Everything leads to Batman. So go ahead. Everything leads to Batman. So I'm working on a carousel. The Coney Island Carousel? I am working on the Steeplechase Coney Island Carousel, which is outside of Steeplechase, but they call it the Steeplechase Carousel. It goes around 13 miles an hour, and it rides about uh, 14 inches off the ground. Okay. Okay. Everybody on that carousel is a guy. Why? Because we want the girls to come on, or the boss wants the girls to come on. So he is like doing a test. The test is... Okay, you wear glasses, but are you good looking and are your shoulders broad enough to be at this job? Okay, I'll leave. No, 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 you're okay, kid, because you got that kind of homespun, freckle face look. We kind of like that. You're man bait? No, um, girl bait. Girl bait. <laughs> but all the guys were, you know, really good looking, but that wasn't the point. The point was that this carousel was next to Steeplechase and you're on your way to Steeplechase and we got to stop you. We got to stop you and get you to ride the carousel. Spend a little money there before you go and lose all your money. So one of the things they found out about me is that I could bark. Barking is a very special thing. You can do it for hours and hours and not hurt your voice. Now, if you talk for hours and hours, especially if you raise your voice, you find at the end of the day, it's it hurts, right? Mm. So you learn to bark, which is what all barkers do. One of the first things I learned on the carousel was to bark. So they put me in the booth for about the first five hours of the day. Then I worked the carousel. 
a ride every three minutes, lifting a lot of little kids and a lot of very fat ladies onto horses. <laughs> very fat ladies onto horses. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Anyway, so what I'm is in, the barking? Show me okay, what is barking. barking. Okay, barking is it. I'm talking normally now with yeah. the back of my throat. Barking is you talk over here, like Jerry Lewis. So but what are you, are you not using? Your... I'm using the front of my mouth and my nose. Here we go. Here we go. Try it. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right, everybody, back in. Don't go back. Don't Don't go go back. back. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here. 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 Front of your nose. Feel it in there. Here we go. Here Here we go, go, everybody. Everybody rides the horses. Here you go, girls. You know what you want to do today? You want to ride those horses. You know why? You see those fellas right there? Those are U.S. sailors, and those U.S. sailors don't have dates tonight. And you know what? I can sell you three tickets for 25 cents, and you can get up on those horses, and you can ride those horses, and one of those sailors, one of those sailors is going to catch that gold ring, and when he catches that gold ring, he's going to give it to you. And when he gives it to you, you're going to get a free ride. And you know what else you're going to get? You're going to get a date tonight. And you're going to be have the best weekend in your life because you rode the carousel three rides for 25 cents. Excellent. Isn't it? Cool? Oh, my Lord. Now, what take for those listening, because there are a lot of ki- kids who have like, I've, I've seen a carousel movie. When you say the gold ring, was that absolutely free ride? So they would set it up, and as you went around, if you reached for and grabbed it, you get to ride for free. That's right. What's what do you lose? Nothing. <laughs> There's nothing. But that's where they that's exactly. the like that's the reach for the gold ring. That's what the gold ring is all about. People don't do it that much. I mean, I'm sure there's some places, some place in America, but it was very, very political for us because we use that gold ring politically on people. Get, oh. Let the drunk get it. <laughs> Slide it down when the drunks come by, boing, and then he they get it. I'm riding another ride. Let's go, guys. And all the drunks get back on. That's it's awesome. great. We had a drunk one day one night who had a came by and he came with a whole bunch of guys, and he had a big uh, uh, bottle of whiskey. That really wasn't a bottle of whiskey. It was one of those display models that he had stolen from a bar that they have in the window. <laughs> like this, right. Right? He comes by, and he gets on, and he wants to show everybody his bottle. So he's riding on the carousel. He gets off his horse. Mister, you can't get off the horse, okay? Don't worry. I'm fine. I know exactly what I'm doing. Hold on to the bar, the, the bar at the edge. Hold on to the bar. No, I think I'm going to get off now. And he takes this one step and he goes like this and he goes 13, 14 inches down. He hits and he slides into the, into the, uh, the ring stand, slams into the ring stand and was stupid enough to put his foot up in the air. And the carousel comes around and hits him on the bottom, bottom of the foot and drives him out into the crowd. Oh my God. Holding his bottle. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't let go of that bottle for beans, and he picked up the bottle, brushed him, said, I'm fine. I'm great. And, they, you know, we go, if we help him, we'll get sued. Okay, just leave him alone. And he goes on down the boardwalk singing with his bar, and his other drunk friends are following him down because they logically waited for the ride to stop. <laughs> great time. Great time. Carousel was the greatest. I mean, my first knife fight, everything. You had a knife fight there? Well, I didn't have a knife. The other guy had a knife. And he pulled a knife on you? No. The Let cow- me ride the ponies. No, Why did he pull no, a knife? No, okay. There's another story. See, I lead myself into these stories. Uh, you, yeah, you can't throw out a little bomb mo like, oh, my so, first okay. knife fight. Moving on. So Knife a, fights lead to Batman. It's so hard to believe. It's a little hard to believe the story, and I apologize for it. So my boss hired a French guy to work on the carousel. Okay. And so we don't know much about him. We don't get what's going on with him. He's like being very, very secretive. And so finally, we get, we get a little bit out. He says, well, actually, uh, I'm a, a member of the French Foreign Legion, and I have left. Deserted? Really? Deserted the French Foreign Legion. Well, they're after me. 
is this bullshit? <laughs> it's like, really? Yes, yes, sir. If somebody comes, you don't tell him I'm here. Whatever you do. Listen, Pierre. That <laughs> 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 You're just lying to us, right? No, no, they would come. Uh, they're looking for me. No. You're just kidding me. No, it's like, and he would tell us stories about the French Foreign Legion. And he left the French Foreign Legion. He wasn't a very big guy, and he got, but oily, you know? One day, a couple of guys come by, and they're looking for Pierre. And so, and they, and Pierre's in the, behind the carousel, standing on the ground. And they, and they run around after him. They start pushing him and threatening him. Guys get off. Our guys get off the, the carousel. We're like a platoon of guys. Boom, 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 boom. What's Who are these on? pretty men? What's going on? <laughs> these men are attacking me. Uh, and we go, what's the problem? You know, my boss says, what's the, what the hell's the problem? Uh, they said, this guy, you know what this guy did? You know what this guy did? He had three girls. He had three girls down the boardwalk. And we came up to him. We talked to him because how I should have three girls and we're by ourselves. So we talked to him and he says, well, he'll meet us. Uh, you know, at, uh, at Stillwell Avenue in, in a little while. And so we waited there and he didn't come. He took the three girls off and we're all going, three girls? <laughs> really? So they're pissed at him. Like, so what? So what's the big deal? So they want to start a fight. They can't start a fight because the guys on the carousel would kick their ass. Right. So they finally like calm down. They start to leave. But one of them looks at me and he says, you. What? He I'm the guy with the glasses. I'm the one with the glasses. He singles right? out the glasses. Single guy, the guy with the glasses. Ah, yes, you. <laughs> oh, just look. Leave me alone. There you go. Pierre. Two days later, is gone. Apparently, somebody came looking for him, and he said, "Ah, that's the agent. French Foreign I'm Legion. Here. He he left. French Foreign Legion. <laughs> He's gone. Jesus. Okay. Now I'm in. Every time I'm in the. Uh, stand selling tickets. These guys come by. The dudes who wanted the girls, but That's they didn't right. get. Them. And they and Pierre. Oh, look, Pierre's gone. Yeah, well, we're going to get you. You're going to get. You know what? You're 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 I'm the stand-in for the Pierre. Stand -in. The like, Pierre proxy. What, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, well, when people are threatening you, you know, you get diarrhea. That's what happens. You I got mean, the shits. Well, you do, because you know they come by, you get the shits. And, okay, I'm okay now. Then a couple of days later, they come by again. I'm like, fucking. They don't need this, you know. Get out of here. Finally, it's it's really bothering me. They're doing it for weeks. And I tell my boss, and he says, just tell me or we'll get the cops. Well, it's too late to get the cops. They just walk by. So they say, we're going to beat. We're going to meet under the boardwalk. And they're starting to give me that. We're going to meet under the boardwalk. We're going to meet under the boardwalk. So I'm going, oh, God, I can't do this. You know, just leave me alone. How guys. old are you? How old are you? Uh, 15. 15. We're going to meet under the boardwalk. We're going to meet you. We're going to get you under the boardwalk. And we'll take care of you. Do you ever have to go under the boardwalk for any particular reason, leaving no. the job, going to the job? No, except for these guys. So that would be it. The only reason going under the boardwalk be, is to fight. That's right. That's it. But I'm getting diarrhea. <laughs> I don't want to get diarrhea. I don't want to get, I got to end this. The cops have to end it or whatever. My boss tells me, complain to the cop, but I don't see the cops. Mm -hmm. Right. So finally, one day they're coming down the boardwalk and I get out of the ring stand. I say, and I go, I go, okay, let's do it. You want to do it? We'll do it. Is it all of them or just the one guy who's Two like guys. you? You Two guys. Okay. Two of them. They're ass total. assholes team up. Yeah, no. A regular guy stays by himself. That's because assholes, assholes are used to hanging out by themselves. So when they meet another <laughs> asshole, they just want to have a team up. <laughs> so we go out and we don't go into the boardwalk. We're on the beach. Okay. So now they start doing this. So, okay, what are you going to do? I thought you wanted to fight. Well, what are you going to do? 
Well, what do, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And one guy's got a cigarette in his mouth, right? And he's talking through his cigarette. And we're facing out into the ocean. And the cigarette tip is bobbing up and down. And even though I'm doing that, what are you going to do thing? He's getting me angry because that cigarette t- tip keeps bobbing up and down. So I finally go whap like that and I knock it from his <laughs> mouth. It goes flying out and spiraling over the sky and it lands. Okay. And they go, well, not here. Let's go into the boardwalk. Okay, fine, fine. We go into the boardwalk. Well, just that curiosity so you don't get caught and they break it up or something? Cops will come. Mm. I don't know. We don't want to be seen. <laughs> go into the boardwalk. Wait a second. Neil's making a big mistake here. Yeah. Okay. No, we do want to be seen. That would be a good thing. Yeah. So we go under, just a little under the boardwalk where the shadows are. But I, I know that back on the carousel, my boss is like, you know, worried. Now he's worried. Should I have come down? Where'd he go? What's going on? So we're under the boardwalk. So these guys still do this thing. They still do this. What are you going to do? 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 The longest pre-fight in history. The longest (laughs) pre-fight in history. We're going to stand here. I'm getting tired from what are you going to do? So I launched myself like this and I hit him in the chest and I launch him back about, I don't know, six or seven feet. Boom, like that. Okay. And the other guy comes at me, but he comes at me wrong. So I hit him in the face. Then we start slugging. But there's two of them and there's one of me. Okay. I'm down. I'm up. I'm going, I'm going to die. This is it. I just realized the law of averages is going to screw me up. I can't, I'm not, I don't know, Kung Fu or any of this shit. I'll be lucky if I get in one more punch. Cops come running over, grab these guys off me, launch them back and say, son of a bitch, get the fuck up, up on the boardwalk. So we go up on the, and you two, you two, you come on, come on, come on, come on. I can't see. I don't have my glasses. My glasses got knocked off. I can barely see. So he, so I, just let me find my glasses, please. Let me find my glasses. I won't even be able to talk to anybody. Finally, I get my glasses and I go up. They've taken these guys off. They know these guys and they, and they talk to me. We know these guys. And I go back to my boss and my boss says, so you should have had me down there. Yes. You shouldn't have done that, right? No, you'll never do it again, right? No, I'll never do it again. I promise. You got to take a shit, don't you? Yeah, I got to. <laughs> and my boss looks over, big Jim McCullough. He goes, cops want to talk to you. Okay. I go over there. My glasses on. Cop says, you know what you did was stupid. I, I waited half the summer. I couldn't wait anymore. Well, it was stupid. You know that. Yeah. What's going to happen with those guys? Well, we've had complaints against them and they're going to go to jail. What about me? No, you're okay. You didn't do anything wrong. He says, I want to show you something. He raises his hand. I have the carousel over here. Mm-hmm. I have the night sky over here. Mm-hmm. I got these two cops in front of me. Guy raises his hand. He goes, snick. Long blade. That blade pops out. They pulled it off one of the guys. And I'm looking at the blade and the carousel's over here and the lights are going around and they're riding up the blade. He says, one of these guys had it on him. You know what it would take for him to pull it? He just must have forgot. Holy shit. 1955? Yeah. Okay, that story is like almost 60 years old. And yeah, well, You tell it as vividly as if it wow, just happened. it's a pretty vivid story. No shit. Story. And you tell it cinematically. Like, yeah. there it is. Like, no, 
if anyone's wondering how does he draw so well, look at your photographic memory, for Christ's sake. Well, I wouldn't even capturing a beat from something that happened nearly 60 years ago. I might have put a little rose on it. Doesn't matter. (laughs) That's what we storytellers do. When do you figure out that you can draw? How old are you? Uh, Before that? I was interested. I was interested in science Uh and engineering. Uh And I was interested in drawing. So that forced you to do graph graphics or something? No, uh, I was interested in the two of them, but I was poor. If you have poor stories, I have poor stories. I bet my poor stories outweigh your poor stories. I don't know. Your dad worked for the government like mine. He was in the armed armed forces. My father left us and went to Washington, D.C. and didn't come back. My mother ran rooming houses. You beat me. I worked the rooming houses. I painted and I did everything in the room of the houses. And we didn't have enough money for food sometimes. It was tough. It was tough. So I had to decide what I was going to do. I was in junior high school, Mark Twain Junior High, great uh, uh, junior high school in in Coney Island, Mm -hmm. still there. In fact, I have a granddaughter who's uh, thinking of going there. And uh, it's um, then the question is where to go. And my mother didn't know anything because she'd gone to the third grade and that was it. Comes from that generation. So what am I going to do? Well, she found out, she managed to look up stuff and she found out something. I found out the School of Industrial Art. SIA, where everybody went. And it was an art school that taught, was like a vocational art school. You know, so it wasn't FD, like a degree program? It was like it was two FD, years in F, uh, FDR uh, started these. Oh, uh, like the work vocational schools. Okay. So you learn, you go to high school and then you become a worker. You become a plumber, a woodworker, whatever artist, okay, for artists who aren't going to go to college. Right. And so they, they want to teach them enough to be able to go out into the world and to become a professional. So it was a great school. Half the day art, half the day other stuff. And, uh, and and I did like the science and I continued with the science, but there was no way I was going to go on to college. Mm. So that was out. So the question was, what was I going to do in school to get me out when I got out of school to make money? Because we were tight all the time. Okay. So I decided, you know, I wanted to become an illustrator. I wanted to become a comic strip artist like everybody in those days wanted to be. Nobody wanted to be a comic book artist. So wait, they all wanted to be comic strip like... Uh... Comic books were... Toilet paper, don't you know that? Toilet paper. But in the newspapers, it was more legitimate. So if you drew a strip. Oh, a strip, a syndicated strip. People would march on uh, on uh, on the newspaper if they canceled Little Orphan Annie. You'd be people with signs and stuff. No, don't cancel. Dick Tracy. No, you can't do that. So is that what you were thinking? Like, I want to draw one of those? Yes. And then I could be an illustrator. I was more interested in illustration, but either one of those was fine. What is That was the goal of everybody in those days that was anywhere near comics or cartooning or anything to do a strip. What is, can you uh, define for me, what does it mean, illustrator, when you say I can do that? or Magazine illustration, Norman Rockwell, Bernie Fuchs, Austin Briggs, uh, Drew Struzan. So not just simple black and white. No, that's line drawing. That's totally different. That you could be a cartoonist and do that. The history of, of, of comics and cartoons, very, very, very interesting. And I know everything about it. You can ask me any question. I can Rock it. Go it. ahead. Hit me real quick. Well, it's too much. That's the problem. <laughs> it starts well, in a cave, uh, yes. It does. It does start in a cave. Hieroglyphics, pictographs. Well, even hieroglyph- hieroglyphics, you have to remember that hieroglyphics, if you look at hieroglyphics, some of them are pictures, some of them are words. That's a comic strip. Oh, my God. You're going to make me cry. You just shattered my mind. You understand? Yeah, yeah. If, if you look at hieroglyphics, what you'll see is you'll see a, a cartouche of the king or whatever with his five wives. They're always small and then certain uh, wine casks and stuff around them. And then you see these lines of hieroglyphics. All of those hieroglyphics are words. All of this is the illustration about this. 
So when Egyptians walked by these, not like us seeing little pictographs, they read it and then they saw the king. They were reading a comic strip right on the side of the building. Oh, my Lord. We've had comic strips since Mesopotamia uh, uh, and Egypt all the time, all that time. We didn't know it. We had no idea. Why did it get marginalized then and turned into like a church? Dark Ages, kingdom? Christians, excuse me. <laughs> Is that when it happens? Of course. So what, the Christians are like, these stories with pictures and words are the work of the devil. We're not going to let you read words. Oh, I get smart. You are you insane? Oh think? my God. So that's in when they got days, it rhythm? in the, in the medieval times, any kings that became powerful enough to have sons and daughters who they actually wanted to get an education to would send them to the Arab countries to get smart. They had colleges there. Turkey, all those Arab countries had colleges. Nothing in our Western world were colleges or even high schools or even schools. You learned how to knit, you learned how to do archery, but if you wanted to learn something, they would send you to Turkey and go to university. Huh. Uh, huh. It's, you're, you are my favorite <laughs> high school teacher that I never had, Neil. Well, I'm telling you, that is the way. That, and it's one of those things, it's one of those things that people don't understand because we come from this shitty Western world where we had to go down and learn that shit by killing them. Uh-huh. We killed their asses and took their shit and brought it back. And suddenly we had an education. We went and we saw their buildings and said, oh, that's interesting. Why don't we do that? We had to rediscover civilization. You can go in any city in the United States and in England and in anywhere else. And you'll see Ionic, Doric and Corinthian columns in front of those places. They would very often build buildings inside of them and just put the columns on the outside just to attach themselves to the history of the world because that's how the world was made. The the uh, the uh, Egyptians, both the G- Egyptians, the uh, Greeks and the Romans, especially the Romans, they started with the Doric columns of, of Greece and, and Egypt, which were very unique and very kind of like this. They were shaped like this. Then they went, went on to uh, Ionic columns and then Corinthian columns, which were the filigree with all that shit on the top. And yet it was still the column. We discovered that when we finally got out of our dark ages and our castles and our medieval shit and peons and all that, all the rest of that stuff. And we went back and we started to have a merchant class. The merchant class went down there and rediscovered all the shit that we left behind in ruin, in ruin, because we don't mind it being destroyed and went, Oh, that's uh, duh. <laughs> you mean, I could have, I could transport water from here to there by building an aqueduct. Yeah, you don't have to shit on yourselves. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry, yeah. dude. You don't sound like a dude that went to just a trade school. Where did all the smarts come it's from? It's all there. Studying? It's all there. So you never stopped. I never, just like I School love has been from the moment you were lifetime, born up until lifetime. now. More, there's more shit out there than you could walk or if you absorb the learning that's out there, the stuff that's out there, you'd be walking around the street with a big, stupid smile on your face 24 hours a day because there's so much incredible stuff to learn and to know. Are you a, are you a professor at any, like... No, no. Oh, my... I'd take, take a machine gun to the schools, mow them down. <laughs> you know those five guys in the corner? Brow, right away. Get the fuck out of my class. You guys with the lidded eyes, dead. <laughs> I would go to class. Listen to this. I would go to class. I, I get to lecture at times mm-hmm. into class in classrooms. And this is how the lecture goes. You know, anytime you just put 
touch me like this, there'll be a story. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I apologize for that, but it'll happen. Are anyway, you kidding so, me? That's what we so, trade in here. So anyway, so I'll go to a class, right? It's a school of visual arts where my all my sons went. SBA in New York? Yeah. And they uh, and they'll they'll get me down there to guest lecture. They really want me to teach down there, but I'm not going to teach. I just do murder some kids. So they, <laughs> do you, you won't you won't teach? What if it was teaching like you just taught me? What if it was just lecturing? Because Jesus I Christ, I do it to people. I do it at times. It's absolute magic. Anyway, so anyway, go ahead. So he I'm, hates so I'm in a class. I'm in a class, and somebody's stupid enough to invite me to their class, and I say, okay, well, thank you for inviting me. Just want you to know, and I'm probably something. My friend, our teacher here, doesn't want me to say, but I'm going to say all this shit, so you're just going to have to listen to it. He is paid to see that you fail. Understand. I didn't, you didn't hear that wrong. Even you jerks in the back of the room that are all clustered together like a little gang of baby teenagers. He is paid to see that you fail. You can ask me why, but you're too stunned to do it. So I'll, I'll ask why. Why do I say that? Because if you fail, will he be paid less? Will he get one dime less if you fail this course? If you get an A in this course and you actually learn how to draw from this man, will he be paid more for doing that for you? No. What's his incentive? Doesn't earn a buck more or a buck less. He has no incentive to teach you. If you're a jerk and an ass, why does he want to teach you? He wants to be here. He wants to teach. He wants to feel he's making a contribution. And he really wants to help you poor bastards. But you know what? If you're a poor, stupid prick who can't learn anything, guess what? You're not going to fucking learn anything because you're stupid. How'd that go over? (laughs) Goes great. Goes great. So he's here. Not as a teacher, because there's no such thing as a teacher. Explain. Don't exist. There's only people who learn. Teachers can't teach. Let's say you don't want to learn something, and I want to teach you something. Can I teach you something? No, I can't teach you. Excellent. I can't teach you. I can show you. I can talk about it. I can deliver it, but I can't teach you. I can't make you know things. You can learn. There's learning. Learning is great. You go to a book, you go to a library. He's Think of him as a book. He's a book. He has all this information. The only way you can interact with him is if you read his book. But most of you won't do it because you're jerks. <laughs> you can't. It doesn't occur to you that it's your job in this classroom to learn from him. It's not his job to teach you. It's his job to feed his wife and his kid and to collect a salary, and to pretend that somehow he can save you assholes' asses. But he can't, because it ha- you haven't gotten the basic lesson into your head that you have to learn. He's a book. He's a very good book. <laughs> yeah, at this <laughs> he's point, he's like... <laughs> right. <laughs> so you really have to... Uh, so that's the kind of class that I do. Oh, my God. Now, that, like, that's a little deadly, but... Uh, yeah, but that's, you'd but learn some shit you in learn that class. You learn some shit like that. You would drop the chuffa in the first, you know, exactly. week, and then you would have a bunch exactly. of people who are still trapped. So I get the knowledge. call later from the teacher about a week later saying, wow, it's amazing. Some guys have just, like, crawled out of the woodwork. I can't believe it. So it works. It works. I, those few times that I spend doing that, it works out pretty good. <laughs> I, I, I guarantee you kids are going to rewind this part of the podcast over and oh, over and over to. and they over again. To. I'll they, tell you another one that they should rewind. 
All you art students out there that think you know uh, what it's all about and you listen to your friends, let me just say this. Your friends, every one of your friends are jerks and assholes, okay? <laughs> they don't know anything and they give you advice, okay? The worst advice they give you is what they consider to be good advice. Which is? Uh, a real artist doesn't trace. A real artist doesn't use a light box and trace. No, okay. That's what they'll say. And it's, oh, it's one of those Harry Home. A real artist doesn't trace. You know what? Just listen to that. How many of you out there have heard your friends say that? Oh, every one of you. You don't have to raise your hands because I know it's every one of you. In every art school, in every art class, you have a bunch of guys who say, a real artist doesn't trace. Let me see. Let us examine the best artists of the last hundred years. We don't have to pause anywhere. Just pick the best. Cream of the crop. Drew Struzan. Okay. Norman Rockwell. Bob Peake. Bernie Fuchs. Austin Briggs. Al Parker. All the best artists of the last hundred years traced photographs. Not good enough for you. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. I, I, you're kidding. That's, that puts me within reach of the world's greatest. Exactly. Trace photographs. That's what you do. That's what they do. And that's how they got better. Why aren't you getting better? Because you don't trace photographs. You think, okay, let me see. I'm going to give you two places to go to find your ability and your ability to move forward. The first is your head. I'll tell you that. And then the other one is the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Okay? All the shit in the rest of the world. Okay? That's your reference library to use to trace or the crap in your head. That crap in your head is no better than it was last week. In fact, it's no better than it was last year. It's the same crap over and over and over again. So what are you going to learn? You can't learn anything. Not because you're stupid. You just listen to your friends. They limited you. That's right. Your friends are your worst enemy. When they talk like that, they are your worst enemy. And if you don't know it, you're in trouble because you know why? There aren't that many jobs out there for artists. You know, if you want to be a doctor, there's tens of thousands of doctors and tens of thousands of lawyers. You know how many good artists there are? Hmm, a couple of hundred. A couple like of hundred. astronauts. So it's yeah. a very select pool. Very select pool of people. And you know what? It's competitive to get up there. And all those guys know that you can trace photographs and learn. <laughs> you know? And the guys before that, they had models. Did I'm going to tell you a little story. People standing there and modeling? Modeling. That's what Norman Rockwell did. He had models. That's what Michelangelo did. He had models. Now I'm going to tell you something about Mike. Michael, as in Michelangelo? As in Michelangelo. Okay. Boring. <laughs> really fucking boring. It's boring. Okay. Why is it boring? Because he didn't have a camera. Had he a camera, he would draw better. He would sculpt better. But he used his incredible talent to sculpt as good as he could, but he didn't have a camera. So what did he do? He did Moses sitting in a chair with his hands like this, with his feet flat on the ground, because you could get a model to do that for five for hours, hours, and hours and hours. <laughs> but if he wanted to have a Moses that launched lightning bolts into the air or something like he couldn't do that because the guy couldn't hold that pose for all that time. David. Stands there, and one hand over here, one knee bent, one knee not bent. Why? Because that's the most comfortable way to stand. One knee bent, one knee not bent. 
and he needed his to rest. To he pops it back hours. and then he pops it out because they had to stand there for hours and hours to do that. Examine Norman Rockwell's work over a lifetime. Instead of looking at it as, oh, it's a beautiful picture, let's look at it from this point of view. Early on in Norman Rockwell's career, or Norman Rockwell did, Boy Scouts standing around a camp. An old man in a boat, and it's raining, he's holding his pole like this, and it's raining on his hat like this, because he can hold that pose for five hours. All the paintings that he did were boring. They were of things that he chose because people could hold those poses for five hours. Then one day, Norman discovered the camera. And he could take a picture of an interesting pose that somebody didn't have to hold for five hours. And he could take a variety of shots. He could mix and match them. And he could work from those photographs and he could block his paintings out with these grids and he could take those photos and put them up and match the photos and do that. And he would go downtown to the Illustrators Club and the Illustrators Club would be down there. The Illustrator guys would be down there. The Illustrators Club with the red door on it. Go up to the second floor where the bar bar is and the other illustrators would come over to Norman and go, Norman, we hear you're uh, working from photographs. <laughs> well, Norman would say, uh, that's, it's not a true story. I'm just making this up. Norman would say, you know, really, I'm a, it's easy to get the poses. I, 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 my uh, horizon has expanded incredibly. Anything I can take a picture of, I can do a painting of. I'm not doing guys in rowboats anymore and guys in jail cells going like this. I'm doing really exciting stuff, people walking and things like that. It's very exciting. And I get them done twice as fast. And so I get twice as much money. And the guys say, well, yeah, but Norman, uh, real artists shouldn't be working from photographs. We should be working from models. And Norman would say, well, I guess I'm just going to keep on doing it. But that's not what he really said. Underneath it all, quietly in his mind, he said, Take this shit and stick it in your hat and shove it down over your ears, you dumb prick. I'm going to do it the way I want to. But you know what? He came from New England. He didn't talk like that. He just said, well, I guess I'm just going to go ahead and do this. But what he meant was that other thing. <laughs> so then suddenly, Norman Rockwell's working along going, why don't I get a projector? You know, actually, Rembrandt had a projector. Now that he had what's called a camera obscura. That's how he created this thing that in art classes they call chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro is light out of darkness. Mm. You'd have somebody very, very well defined and then a darkness would go behind them. The reason the darkness went behind them was because he had all these cameras lighting this guy. And if he had more cameras, he'd fucking burn down the castle. <laughs> That's how much it would take to light the castle behind him right. because he had this camera obscura that would project that image onto his canvas and trace it off. So even Rembrandt traced. Even Rembrandt traced. Franz Halls didn't trace. On the other hand, stuff looked like shit. <laughs> I'm just saying. Okay. So he traced. He didn't have a, a photo, but he traced. So Norman says, why don't I take the photo and project the photo and trace it onto my canvas? And that's when that began. Bum, 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 bum. Suddenly, he's turning out work for everybody on earth, life insurance companies, all kinds of stuff. Goes down at the Illustrators Club. Illustrators come and say, well, you know, some of us have pick it, picked up this thing of taking photographs, Norman, but tracing photographs, that's just not professional, Norman would say. But I get four times as much work done. I 
I have a family to support and I have people to feed and stuff and it, and they love the work. But Norman, a real artist, quietly, stick it in your fucking hat and pull it down over your ears, you dumb pricks. <laughs> I'm making four times as much money as you are. And, and, put, and the volume and of the work volume he put out, and as the well. quality of the work is fantastic. He went from uh, from little kids fishing in boats to World War II, all the way through World War II with that character that he followed in World War II. After World War II, to Kennedy and uh, Eisenhower and Nixon, and painting their portraits down to. Uh, the middle of the country where black people weren't getting on buses and stuff, painting little black girls that look like little black girls was kind of bad because most artists can't do that. Mm. And, and black kids moving into white neighborhoods and then astronauts on the moon. Well, what, what, he covered it all. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, but he wasn't a real artist. <laughs> <laughs> tell me the John Stewart story you told me you were going to tell. Okay. Understand that I grew up in New York. Okay. In New York, we were the last to discover that we were bigots because we thought we were the most liberal in the world. We thought, well, if anybody's a bigot, they're down south. Right. We didn't think we were bigots, but there was Harlem and Bed-Stuy, and it was all black, and the white people didn't hang out there. I did. <laughs> I went down to 125th Street, and I would shop for my Spanish comic books. Legionarios uh, de Espacio and all the Spanish comic books. What are they? I'm, I'm completely unfamiliar with. Well, they're uh, Fernando Fernandez, uh, Esteban Morodo, all the all the Spanish guys that ended up working for uh, Creeping Eerie and Vampirella uh -huh. later on. They did Spanish comic books. They did uh, what kind of stories were like pirates, science fiction, and pirates. You know, but no superheroes. Yeah, there was semi superheroes. You know, Legionarios de Espacio was. Uh, did he have a mask? No, there were five guys. Uh, they were also called Cinco por Infinito, Five for Infinity. Oh, my God. So they had the superhero What's so team. wonderful about them is that they had a bevy of really good artists. And when I discovered them, I, the only way I could get them is to go to Spanish Harlem or Harlem. Spanish Harlem and Harlem is mixed when it comes to stores and shit. Mm. So I would have to go down to 125th Street and shop around for the, my Spanish comic books every month. And, of course, the black guys were there going, what are you doing here? Hey, what? <laughs> What's happening? What are you doing here? I'm shopping for comic books. All right. How old are you? <laughs> I'm, I don't know, 14, 15. Like okay. That. I'm just, this is me discovering the universe. Right, know? right. And it, this is, no, me discovering them totally 100% wrong about everything in the universe and then finding out what was right. So I realized that along the way that, you know, no, we were fucking racists, racists, like incredible. And then the 60s happened and it was like it was clear to everybody. For me, I had some battles along the way. I had a syndicated strip called uh, Ben Casey, and I had a, I had a, an interesting happen. My syndicate was in Cleveland, Ohio. You would think a legal, uh, liberal bastion. And so I handed in a strip. On the top panel, I had an, an ambulance pulling up to a hospital, and there were two doctors in there, two guys in actually whites. The guy who was driving the ambulance was white, and the guy who was sitting next to him was black. And I sent it in. And then I got the original back from the syndicate. And they had switched their heads. They made the driver black. And they made the guy next to him white. Because they told me, they explained to me, although people would hardly believe that the guy sitting next to the driver, who must be the doctor, is black. Well, you, uh, so what do you do at that point? I wrote a very, very nasty letter. 
as as well let me ask do you write it as a person or as the artist going like you fucked with my art or do you write it going the hell kind of bullshit is this masturbating on my artwork was how i led the letter (laughs) then it got nasty right okay and and if you ever do this again i'm out i'm gone okay and they went and of course they were all over themselves with apologies because we're not bigots. We're right. we're in Cleveland, Ohio. We're, you know, no, no. We just thought readership-wise that it would help the readership that there was, you know, there's people in the country. We could lose paper. You could lose papers, Neil, on your strip. It's something to think about. No, it's not fucking something I should think about because if I lose papers, guess what? That's just a step in the path, isn't it? You tell me you live in Cleveland, Ohio, all you guys are newspaper men or retired newspaper men, and you're telling me that if we lose some newspapers, that's something I should worry about? Isn't that something you should fucking worry about? Mm-hmm. Anyway, they said, okay, we'll never do it again. Never do it again. Okay, never do it again. Okay. So then I have a, a guy playing a piano, and I got some guys in the audience. I got a black guy in the audience, and somebody says, in the Ben Casey strip, still in the Ben Casey strip. They're watching the guy, just a couple of the orchestra members. One guy says, uh, Jesus, change hasn't he? The guy says, yeah, he sounds much more human, doesn't he? That's the black guy. Right. Doesn't mean anything to us now. Right. But in the 60s, a black guy saying somebody is a lot more human was a big fucking deal. Right. And they wrote me a note back and they said, so that was a test, was it? <laughs> 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 So anyway, flash forward to uh, working for DC Comics. I'm noticing that uh, in comic books, there are there are black characters, but usually they're ghetto guys or they're Africans. In terms of physical appearance? In terms of how they fit into society. In other words, you're going to have a black, you're going to have black, oh, we're going to do a black character. Yeah, well, he comes from Harlem. He's a ghetto guy. He's a gangbanger, whatever the hell. And he turns good. Luke Cage, you know, he's just, oh, boo. Or he comes from Africa, you know, it's Black Panther. Black, you know, Panther. It's Black Panther comes from Africa. Yeah. Wait, a, you don't have a regular guy. So anyway, I go to Julius Schwartz. Julius Schwartz is Julius Schwartz, probably one of the best editors. Most comic legendary, books, legendary and, and a human walking asshole. We do use assholes a lot, but he is proud of his assholeness. He likes it. And he loves it. I mean, I walk into his room. I say, Julie, I got to talk to you. He says, get the fuck out of my office. Get the forget. Does he really yeah, talk like the that back fuck then? Out of my office. You don't think Julie, of any of these cats like that, Julie. You don't talk like that. Well, just get the hell out of my office. Then. <laughs> you don't. You <laughs> never think of no, the old timers being, but it's salty. But it's Neil. Right. It's like, ah, Neil, asshole. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so Julie is. You know, Julie's a great guy. Julie's, I figured out his style of writing when I was a teenager. I could sell him anything. I could sell him a story like that. All you got to do is put a piece of science in there that he never knew before. He's like, the story. That's awesome. I told him one day, he says, he says, why is it you can always sell me a story? I don't get it. Other people come in, it takes me like three hours to get a story out of them. I say, Julie, don't you understand? I figured it out a long time ago. Just like I can sell a story to Bob Canner. I have a guy do something. He does it wrong. He does it again. He does it wrong. The third time he does it, he does it right. That's the end of the story. <laughs> Bob Canner. How do I do it with you, Julie? I put something in the story that you didn't know before. Electroplating. Molecules travel across an acid according to a, a, a electricity. They plate the thing on the other side and it's, it's electroplated. That's how you steal. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's great. I would have sold you that story just like that. <laughs> You're a setup for science. <laughs> so anyway, I go to Julie 
Julie, you have to remember, is a New York Jew. New York Jews are a particular type of people. They have to be more liberal than anybody else. Why? It's a cultural thing. Oh, wait a second. You can't say I'm not liberal. Right. You can't say that I don't stand up. I'm Jewish. We have been chased all over the world by the whole world. We are the escapees of hell. We are the, we are the people. We are the liberals. Okay. So a New York Jew has to be liberal. Got to be automatic. You pretty much know. Anyway, so I go right. to Julie and said, Julie, I'd like to do uh, a Green Lantern where something could happen to Hal Jordan and uh, he needs a replacement. Could happen, you know. And Julie says, oh, we already did that. I said, really? You did? He said, yeah, Guy Gardner. We have it here. I said, I'm sorry, Julie. I don't read the comics. She says, okay, <laughs> pull, pulls it out. and says, See that? And I said, okay. She's a blonde gym teacher. Right? In the Midwest. Blonde gym teacher. See, Julie, that's kind of what I mean. Um, why don't we have him hit by a bus? What? I have a bus hit him and put him out of action. We did, by the way. Bus. <laughs> we have a bus hit him. So he's out of action. We've got to find somebody else. All right. What are you driving at? I said, Julie, um, here, let me tell you a story. Okay. Alien comes to Earth, he's going to die. He's purple, okay? Crash lands, he's going to die. He sends the ring out or the lamp out or whatever, travels all over the Earth looking for somebody to replace him. The bravest, most selfless person in the world. He passes by Bruce Wayne. He passes by Superman. He passes by all the heroes in the DC and the Marvel Universe and finds a test pilot. I can buy that. I'm with that. Test pilots, balls of steel. Got to say. You couldn't put me in a plane and have me do what they did. It'd be totally insane. So I'm buying it. I'm buying Al Jordan, Jordan. the ring. He earns the ring. Okay. Now it goes out again. It finds a white Anglo-Saxon blonde gym teacher in the Midwest. I, 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 what are you driving at? Julie, you ever watch the Olympics? He says, I watch the Olympics all the time. How often do you see three white guys? Gold, silver, bronze, all white. He's Asians and blacks. I rarely ever see three white guys. Mm. Maybe archery. I'm thinking archery. <laughs> yeah. So I don't really, you know, there's three kind of people in the world. There's Asian, there's black, and there's white. And I, it just, I find it hard to believe that that ring would find another blonde Anglo-Saxon white guy. <laughs> I don't know why. An Asian, maybe. He said, how about an Asian? I said, well, you know, Julie, you don't have a really good record when it comes to Asians. In the first 10 years of Green Lantern, you had a character, second character in there that was Asian, and you called him Pie Face. Mm. I don't think the Asians in America's, America like Pie Face, or you calling him Pie Face. That sounds like a racial insult. Well, we didn't de- intend it that way. Maybe not, but it came out that way. Mm-hmm. But if you want to fight for a nation, I don't care. I really don't care. I think a black Green Lantern would be great. Oh, you want a black Green Lantern? I get it. Was I being too subtle? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you'll have to draw it, you know. I said, Julie, not only will I have to draw it, I'm the only comic book artist in America, black or white, that can draw black people. Because even black artists draw black people like white people. Because that's what we teach them. All right. Fine. (laughs) Okay. 
So we give the story to Denny. Denny writes, writes a good character, an urban college graduate architect out of a job. Perfect. Out of a job. Of course, New York in the sixties, a black architect out of a job. Exactly right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nailed. Good. I buy it. Two endings to the story. We do it. It goes out there. I have black guys cry in front of me at conventions because of John Stewart for real reasons, because we showed a black guy finally two endings to the story. First thing, Saul Harrison and Julie Schwartz come to me because I colored the story. And back in those days, when you colored a black man, like uh, Joe Kubert did a boxer in, in one of his war stories, he colored his skin khaki brown, what we call in comics, shit brown. At Marvel, they colored Gage, I think it was Gage, black guy, gray, was black, colored him gray. I colored John Stewart dark brown. So Julie Schwartz and Saul Harrison, head of production, come to see me. We notice when you colored uh, John Stewart that uh, it's brown, real dark brown. I said, yeah. Well, and you even marked it to make sure that it was brown. It's uh, YR3B2. Yeah. Well, don't you think black people will be insulted? <laughs> Get out of here. No, totally the truth. Totally. Don't you think? Gee, I don't. Step up from shit brown. I, I don't think. <laughs> for for some sakes. reason, I don't think they'll be in. I think, I think they've been insulted for the past 35 years. Now, finally, they'll go, yeah, that's the way it is. Okay, this is on you if something happens. Okay, that sounds good. I'll on me. It. We got it. We're walking with that one. So anyway, second ending of the story. They decide they're going to make a Green Lantern story, a uh, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to take Gil Kane. They're going to ju- jump to Jeff Johns. They're going to leave out Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams. God knows why. <laughs> and they announce it. Hal Jordan, Green Lantern. All the kids in America go, who the hell is Hal Jordan? Green Lantern is John Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> because been watching the cartoons for so in long. comics think that that's the world. Yeah. And that 100,000 sales to 100,000 kids or people, and they don't even sell them to kids anymore, is going to beat millions of kids watching the Justice League on television. Yeah. Millions upon millions of kids. We all know John Stewart is is Green Lantern. Who the hell is this Hal Jordan guy? Who's why is Ryan Reynolds not a black guy? I don't know <laughs> why in the middle of the movie do do they pass the hat you know to uh, to John Stewart? Did you I watch the movie? Did. Eventually, see it? I watched it. I watched it. It was uh, sad. It wasn't human. It had no human qualities. It was. Uh, I didn't think that Ryan Reynolds was bad. I thought he was okay. The costume didn't bother me too much. I thought but that all was these a animated big woogie boogie characters. The just, mask being animated was such a weird thing. To I me. know, but you know, I'm a I'm really easy. I'm I'm not one of those like heavy critical people. But you know, if you get close, it's all right. Like I I'm, I put up with the the Batman costume forever. Even the guy, although the guy's going like this all the time, he can never move his head around. <laughs> make it the the hole even smaller. You know, like Jesus Christ. What is the? Let me ask you that. What is the Batman mask to you? Like, if you were to make it in the real world. You have to read uh, Batman Odyssey, and you haven't. 
Uh-huh. I haven't. What? It, what is? Well, tell us. Tell us, Jesus. And it's, here, sell a bunch of Batman Odyssey. Go ahead. This is how I would do it. Well, it's in Batman Odyssey, but you ought to. Everybody ought to read Batman Odyssey, and you ought to turn to the last chapter just to let it screw you up, so that you can then read the whole thing. But uh, I, I, what I did in in Batman Odyssey is I made this plastic mask that is that goes on the front of his face and points to his ears and goes on the front of his face like this uh-huh. and goes over here and goes down here and all the mechanics are in it are inside of it. So it's like and a then face he pulls plate. the cowl over on top it of it and seals it. Like nice, that. it's nice. Um, so I think that's a good way to do it because you want to get more flexibility in the costume because the character can't move and yeah, moves head around and whatnot. Really, what was the first time? You drew the character Batman. Did you draw him for free or was it a job? Oh, I, when I was 10 years old, I did a little encyclopedia of Batman. <laughs> did you? I did. Uh, so by age 10, you're drawing already. I'm drawing. No, by age six, I'm drawing. So by age and, and 10, when, I'm like drawing. So by age 10, you're like a really good artist in class. No, They're going no, like, he's good. He no. can draw a horse. Oh, yeah. yeah the, I was like, oh, look, there's a, 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 we have a thing in America called the school artist. Mm-hmm. There's always a school artist. Whatever school you go to, there's a school artist, right? Sometimes there's two or three of them. What does that mean? Is that like living that room guy, funny? That means the guy who draws. That when you write in his book at the end of the year, you he draws will be, the picture. You will be the great, uh, you'll be the artist of the future or whatever. The hell, that's what you write. And the girl who sings and then the guy, the writer or whatever. But there's, there's always, every school has one of those guys and they do the decorations for the, you know, for the shows and all that stuff. And they, and they all are brilliant and everybody tells them they're brilliant and they all think, but they all forget that there's 10,000 schools in America. So there's like more. two guys oh, like them right. per class. That's, that's How many part, classes per grade? It's competitive. Really, really, really bad. So anyway, uh, where were we? Uh, Batman, Batman. Uh, ten years old. You drew, but six. No. You you knew you were good. You were drawing at six, ten. You knew. But I was you were tracing okay. comics and drawing from comic books. Like, but I, what I could do was copy. I used to like. Um, these are things that people may not want to know about me, but I can tell them. When my father was in Europe, my mother used to go to bars. She didn't go to bars to get sex. She went to bars to have something to do because she only went to third grade. So I would go with her. So what did I do in the bars? Because, you know, not too many things that you can do in the bars. I would go to the local garage and I'd watch the mechanic put tires on. Uh, I would go to the to the jukebox and I would play Detour, There's a Muddy Road Ahead 10,000 times. I was going to say over and over, over and over and over, and, over. and drive the guys crazy. <laughs> the guys will go, I'll give you 50 cents. You got five plays on here. Don't play that again. <laughs> Detour is a muddy road ahead. So they hated me, but still they loved me too. And I would, what I would also do is I would sit up on the bar, not drink anything, get a Coke, and I would draw people's profiles. And I was great. And they loved it. And they gave me money. So like a caricaturist, but doing like real profiles? Real profiles. Not that. Caricature. And not that shadow projection shit, silhouettes, just flat out drawn. Right. Good profiles. I was that good at 10. At ten, okay, so and then, it was good. At, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a life lesson I learned doing that. You, you know, you can stop me anytime you want. Never. I'm just saying. Okay, so I learned a life lesson. Ugly lady comes to the bar. My mother's was an attractive woman, and guys tried to take her home, and she never did. She just get cab fare, and we'd go home, and that hmm. would be it. It was just something for her to do because she could talk and have a few drinks. Social, yeah. It was social. Uh, but it put me in bars a lot. <laughs> Clark's bar. I like Clark's bar because it had that candy quality. <laughs> and, and it went all these pinball machines where you hit the pup, you drive the pup down, yeah, yeah. knock the thing. Anyway, an ugly lady came in, but she had a lot of makeup on. She was, uh, and she was a favorite at that bar. Uh, I forget. Call her Lily. Doesn't matter. 
And she comes in and the guys are pushing her and saying, you ought to let this kid draw your picture. Really ought to let this kid draw. This kid is great. And of course, they're pushing me forward. And that's the last thing you ever want to have happen because that now you're on, you know, trial. It's easy to draw, you know, truck drivers and stuff, you know, because they're, oh, they think it's wonderful. Right. Now they're one, they're trying to impress her with this kid who is going to draw her picture. And if you draw her honestly. And if I draw her honestly, which I have to do because that's all I know how to do. Okay. So I got to draw her and she's saying, no, 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 not going to happen. Give me a beer. But they're pushing. I'm trying to like, I'm trying, I can't escape. I know this is going to go down bad. Ten years old, I know. Okay, I talk to a lot of adults, <laughs> so I got to. I they got finally. She says, "Fine." So I draw her picture. Well, she's a dog. <laughs> I'm sorry. She's got that lip. That nose goes over the top of that lip, and it is bad. And she's got bags, and she's got. And I'm trying to modify it a little bit, but I, you know, it looks like her. And the guys are looking. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. It's exactly like her. And then finally I'm done and I hand it to her. She says, that looks nothing like me. Nothing. It's nothing like me. Oh, you guys are crazy. And then the guys are starting to turn on me. <laughs> <laughs> they were just with you. Right. They were with me 100% until she's, yeah. because it's a woman. I'm just a 10-year-old kid. Well, you know, uh, well, but he, you know, but he tra- he's only 10. You know, he really tried. And I, so like, I'm, I'm losing it. I'm losing the whole thing. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to lose my tips. I'm going to, I'm not going to, I better go to the garage and go, ma'am says, yes. Do you have your makeup? She says, of course I have my, can I, can I borrow your makeup? So what do you mean? Well, your eyeliner and your, and your rouge and your powder and, and lipstick. And she says, well, what do you want to do? Why do you don't, I just want, can I just borrow them? Just borrow for a few minutes. Mm. I just want to put add a touch of color to the drawing. To the drawing. So she's well, all right. And she starts pulling out stuff, and you know, women have tons of stuff in there, and they pull her. Is that your favorite? Okay, yeah, that's my favorite. So I start making up the drawing with her Make purple it. eyeliner and the lipstick, right, and the and the powder, and then the rouge, right. And I give it back to her, and she goes, "Ah, oh, that's perfect." No. <laughs> learned a lesson that day. A good colorist will save any drawing? No, I learned a lesson that women are their makeup. Yes, they have to put on their face. This is the face I want people to see. I don't want them to see this face. Right. I want them to see that face. So once that was done, it was like I was, you know, king of the bar. Once uh, again, there was exactly. a minute there for... There was a minute there. I thought I was going to lose it. <laughs> the I, title I, was I, in doubt. I didn't lose it. All right, so you know you could draw from an early age, and you say, I, uh, you know, if I'm going to make a living, hey, drawing is the way to go. Sure. You Had now, you done technical drawing before you walked into D.C., or was D.C. the first place you walked into, or did you had you done Penn Casey at this point? Well, you have to remember that before I came to D.C. Comics, I had been rejected and rejected and rejected. By whom? Everybody. There wasn't everybody to reject me. Who, was it there just was the DC two? There was D.C. Comics, and then there was... Marvel or Timely? No, there was nothing. was nothing. They weren't there yet. They were there, but they were in some place. I didn't and they know weren't superheroes yet, right? And they were nothing. They were Stanley's five stories. Remember Stanley's five stories? Ogog the Mogog conquers the universe, comes to Earth, and he's only this tall. Fing Fang Foom with yeah. the big diaper. Mystic guy goes up into the mountains to cure his hands, and he turns into Dr. Strange. All those little stories that Stan used to write, that's all there were. Okay. 
Jack Kirby was traveling around doing uh, uh, Challenges of the Unknown, uh, 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 the uh, Sky Masters uh, comic strip and stuff. Nothing was happening. It was dead, dead, dead. When I say dead, I went to Archie Comics because Jack Kirby and Joe Simon would go to various companies. They went to Harvey and started a line of comic books. They went to Archie, started a line of comic books, The Fly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember they superheroes. Superheroes. And then they would die. They'd fail. And so I thought at that time, there was no place else to go. There was You couldn't tell where Dell was. You couldn't tell where Western was. Where were they? I guess they were in California, whatever the hell they were. There was nothing to do. It was comics for advertising. I was going to try to find what that was about. So I'm dying on the vine because DC Comics was it. So I went to Archie and I said, and I said, look, I'd like to see Jack Kirby and I like to show him my samples. I had samples of the fly and other stuff. And, uh, they said, well, they don't come in very often. They come in on Wednesday. So I said, well, can I come in, come in next Wednesday? I said, sure, come in on Wednesday. So next Wednesday I come in. I got three new samples. I come in to see Jack Kirby or Joe Simon. They're not there. Okay. Can I leave these pages behind? Yeah, you can leave them behind. Okay, why don't you come in next Wednesday? They're sure to be here next Wednesday. No, they weren't. I come in the following Wednesday. I bring in more samples. They had taken one of my pages, samples, where Troy, something Troy, Tommy Troy, turns into the fly, morphs across the page and turns into the fly. Cut it out of my sample and put it into one of Jack Kirby's pages. The fuck out of here. Because it was better. Were you beside yourself? I was beside myself. So he said, we'll pay you for it. Third of a page. Third of a page. Oh, That's your first comics paycheck? First, first. It just sold at uh, Heritage for thousands and thousands of dollars. That same fucking page? Oh, yes. That has all Kirby with, with just? That's right. One panel. One panel. So now, does that lead to more work? They're you like, would come think, on. No. You'd think. <laughs> Joe Simon, he's not there. He gets on the phone. Can we call him for you? Because they had taken my panel. Fuck yeah. Got to do something. So they got Joe Simon on the phone. He says, oh, yeah, you're the uh, young man with these samples. Okay. Listen, son. Oh, son. You never want to hear uh, Yeah. When it begins with son. Son. Like, <laughs> Listen, son. Uh, I, I'm afraid to. Really, uh, uh, your your stuff is good. Your stuff is good. I, I would use it. But we're going to be out of business in a year. This is the end of comics. If we last another year, it'll be a miracle. We won't. So I'm going to tell you, you should be doing something else. Get a job anywhere, art director. You should do something else. I'm going to do the something that you don't think is a good idea, but believe me, is a good idea for you. I'm going to turn you down. Because I, I don't want to ruin your life. This is a dead-end business. And I'm really sorry. So you land on Krypton, and they're like, it's about to explode. Go. <laughs> don't stick around. Don't stick around. So I turned, and obviously— And you believe it because I, this is a pro. He's Joe Simon. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't believe it. You don't? I Even don't then? I don't believe anybody. <laughs> I turned to the, I turned to the, uh, young guy. You know, young men, they don't believe anything. They just believe what they believe. That's right. the end of it. So I turned to the Archie guys and Victor Gorlick says, Victor Gorlick, who is still there. At Archie? At Archie. He's a little old, long in the year. He said, maybe you'd like to try Archie pages. Sure. I'll do anything. 
okay, do some samples and we'll see what we do. So I did some samples. I brought them in, weren't good enough. So I traced some Dan DiCarlo pages, 100%. They didn't think they were perfect yet, but still, they gave me work. Dan DiCarlo, for those of you who don't follow Archie, the oh, premier That's right. Archie artist. Dan and you he, traced him. I traced him. He got a job. The hell with that. I got work. <laughs> and, 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 Good artists don't trace, Neil. Yeah, was, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and, and I did, they gave me uh, uh, Archie joke pages. It was uh, called the Archie joke book. And so it was jokes, uh, one or two jokes on a page. So to do it, I'd have to do, I had to, I had to write. I had to uh, pencil ink, letter, uh, the page, $32.50. And what year is this? 59. One more time. What are the jobs entailed? Ink, pencil? Pencil, ink. Ink. Write. So you had to write the jokes as well? Uh, and letter. That's right. So, yeah. So you're a writer and artist on the page, which today, in today's market for like a, a low end would be at least three, well, two hundred, three hundred dollars. Well, but page? you got to think of the day. Thirty-two dollars and fifty cents compared to nothing. It was great. What was that? What, it was. I mean, well, of course, compared to nothing. A normal laborer was paid fifty bucks a, day, a week. I got, and you got that for a page. So you could do two pages and make more than the regular labor in a week. That's right. Mm. I did one week. I did uh, five pages. I went home. My mother was in the kitchen drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes. And I took the money that I had just gotten from the bank and I went like this and I hit the ceiling and it went all over the kitchen. Oh, you made it rain. <laughs> made it rain money. Oh, but, man. Was she, she went, proud of you? Was she, she just, went, woo! <laughs> like, woo! Like that. Let's go to the bar. Start drawing people. Uh, no, she, no more bars. No what? Uh, so she, you, so your mom got to see you break in, oh, got yeah. to see you do oh, well yeah. and all that stuff. Well, my dad was away. Gone. Gone. Which is actually fine. It worked out. It worked out fine. So I got to uh, I got to do Archie pages. Uh, then I got to do I was an assistant on a comic strip called Bat Masterson, based on the old Bat Masterson TV show. TV show. I did all the backgrounds and other stuff, and I did commercial work in that studio because I ended up in a studio with five guys, all of which had different uh, artistic abilities. Some guys did retouching, some guys did the finished illustration, some guys, uh, well, Howard Nostrand, who was an old comic book guy, was doing the Bat Masterson thing. And I did very professional backgrounds for him, really good stuff. I even laid stuff out. And I made a deal. The deal was, instead of getting paid, say, $50 a week, I got a percentage, 10%, which ended up giving me, for a period of three months, $9 a week. <laughs> <laughs> what a great deal. <laughs> and that ended. That ended. Then I went to a place called Johnstone and Cushing, and I did uh, comics for advertising. At that time, I was paid more than any comic book artist doing regular comic book, whether it's at Timely or DC Comics. I was paid $200 a page, $350 a page. It's like current rates. I was paid money. Yeah. Was paid but money what does that mean, comics ads. for advertising? Well, for at that time, they had a lot of ads for cigarettes. Uh -huh. They had a thing that I did on a regular basis called Chip Martin College Reporter for the Bell Telephone Company. We did historical stuff and all kinds of stuff with lots of research and stuff. And I was trained doing research on doing that. I did... Uh, stuff for Boys Life magazine, pages for Boys Life magazine, how Joey, uh, who lives in Wisconsin, saved his brother, stuff like that. But I became, I remember those articles. and I'm, I'm 18 and 19 years old, and I'm getting all the best work in the place. Cause what happened, what happened is all the guys like Lou Fine and people would drift toward Johnstone and Cushing after the crash. Mm. And they did Johnstone and Cushing work and they did other stuff, but Johnstone and Cushing was the best paying because they did advertising work. So I learned about advertising very, very much. 
and it has become an awful big part of my career, advertising. It supported my family as they grew up, all the rest of it. Anyway, so uh, so I did uh, advertising. Then uh, a guy named Jerry Cap, who was the brother of Elliot Kaplan, who was the brother of Al Cap. Oh, Abner. And the schmoo. And the schmoo and all the rest of that. Now that we're all forgetting, you can go to your comic book store and you can get reprints of that stuff. But it was Al Cap who became a giant personality, appeared on The Tonight Show and all kinds of stuff. Uh, man of one leg. <laughs> His brother, Jerry, and his brother, Elliot. Elliot. Elliot was the smart one. He did like four strips, The Heart of Julia Jones, Big Ben Bolt, and two other strips that I don't remember at the moment. And then uh, Elliot, um, um, not Elliot, Elliot, uh, Jerry, who was the younger brother and the dumber one. Comparatively, comparatively right. dumber. He got the opportunity to do the Ben Casey strip while his brother, Elliot, got the opportunity to do the Dr. Kildare strip which he did with uh, Ken Bald. So Another, two Dr. Strips. Two Dr. Strips. Competing. Two competing Dr. Strips. So I became maniac. I decided I was going to become the best comic book artist in the universe, the best comic strip artist. So I would compare my strip with all the realistic strips every single day. And in New York, all the best strips appeared either in the Mirror, in the News, the, World, the Journal American, or the World Telegram and Sun. So I got all four papers every day and compared my strips with those. For three and a half years, I worked my ass off. And then when I decided that it, w it had ended because it was a big controversy, which you don't want to hear about, I had to fall back into comics because some of the advertising was drying up. I had had a whole career before I showed up and did my first war story for Bob Kaniger. So you ha it wasn't like comics brought me to the world. You went off and did a bunch of things, no. had a whole entire career in advertising, paintings, all kinds of stuff. I did a career in four or five years. And that and included Ben Casey? Yeah. Two Why did that end? Years. It did it just end the it strip ended because there was a because the syndicate discovered that Jerry Cap couldn't write and they put another guy in and he wrote but he wrote too slowly and it became a big conflict and I decided I didn't want to be part of it so I just opted out and both of those were based on TV, TV shows. shows TV shows what were the ben other is going to be reprinted by the way and by uh, uh, IDW so it include because of you no doubt well because of the art it's pretty good art. Yeah, but oh, yeah. still, a lot of people probably worked on it, the, but the not many about, of them, Neil Adams. The thing about the thing that you have to remember is that is that um, the people in comic books had no idea who the people in in um, in uh, comic strips were. Mm -hmm. I'll give you some idea. So it's like TV and movies back in the day, like just two separate mediums, two separate worlds. Remember, the comic books were a business that was going to go out of business every year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Comic strips were successful and in the guys would have meetings at the Lambs Club and wear tuxedos and smoke cigars and pat each other on the back and give awards. It was just what it was so self-indulgent. They invited me to become part of it. And I'm this like 19 year old. And I'm going, I'm not going to be part of these old bald men smoking <laughs> cigars and giving each other awards. I'm fucking out of here. So I didn't, I avoided it as much as possible, even though I probably was a little too arrogant. But I was doing comic books, which you, you had to suffer to make a living. Anyway, so uh, uh, I was doing, I was doing Ben Casey. Mm -hmm. Elliot Kaplan, the smart one, okay, talked to, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, who did the book, uh, The Green Beret. Mm -hmm. Very, very popular book. Is that DC? No, the Green Beret was a book. The book book. Remember books? Yeah. <laughs> long before. A lot of type. 
no pictures. <laughs> uh, he did a book called The Green Beret, and okay. it was during the Vietnam, early part of the Vietnam War when they, when Americans were heroes, presumably. And we cut off the ears of their enemy and wear them as necklaces around their necks. And uh, so he had gotten the rights to do that as a syndicated strip. So Elliot came to me and said, I know you can't do two strips at the same time, and I know I'm pissing up a rope, but can you meet this guy who wrote this book and and maybe that will convince you that you can do two strips at the same time. I'm not telling you to desert Jerry, my brother. Mm-hmm. Yes, you are. <laughs> I don't think I can do two strips. Anyway, so I had lunch with this guy, uh, Roger Allen Moore, not Allen Moore, something Moore. I forget his name. Well, I had made the mistake of reading the book or a punch, punch of the book. And I sat, not the whole book. Because the Green Beret quick, book. Green Beret book. Um, and I sat at lunch with this guy for two hours and I never uh, sat at a lunch where be- at the beginning of the lunch I was neutral and at the end of the lunch I hated somebody <laughs> you know it, it's very hard in two hours to really hate somebody right. this guy was a fucking monster he just thought all this stuff that was going on in Vietnam was great cutting people's ears off and wearing them as necklaces was a real American thing he was just like gung ho gung ho mm-hmm. gung ho I didn't want to go near it and if I could have, I would have throttled him. He wasn't a very big guy, so I could have. <laughs> but it was like, so I went back to uh, to Elliot and I said, Elliot, you know, I uh, I really like you. I think you're a great guy. First of all, I think you're a great guy. guy. Jerry, I, I like, okay, but I really like you because I respect what you do. But you guys are crazy. You syndicated strip people are out of your fucking minds. You gave Flash Gordon to Dan Barry and uh, Macra Boy, when Al Williamson was waiting there to do Flash Gordon, he would have done it a drop of a hat. And you picked the wrong guys because you're stupid. Just saying, you're stupid, okay? <laughs> now you're coming to a guy who's doing a soap opera, doctor strip, and you want me to do a war strip about Vietnam. Do you know there are war comics? Do you know there's Russ Heath? and more trucker, and Joe Kubert. Why don't you tap one of those guys? Oh, who are those guys? Okay. Okay, I'm just going to tell you tell you what to do. You're going to call Joe Kubert. I have never met him. You're going to call Joe Kubert, and you're going to say, please, Joe, draw Green Beret for me. And you will get the best possible artist you could possibly get to do this strip. And you will turn around all of syndic- the whole syndicated strip business into being sensible and logical. And you will hire the best guy. What will happen is you'll have him draw two weeks of strip. And then you'll look at it and you'll go, I really hate this. It's really ugly. I can't. This is like ugly. You will hate it. And so you don't pick up the phone. You let him draw two more weeks of strip. And at the end of those two weeks of strip, you'll call me up on the phone and tell me how much you love Joe Kubert. And that's what's going to happen. I promise you. Well, that's exactly the way it worked out. He said, after four weeks of, stri- of strips, he says, this guy is fantastic. And they just I never mean, thought to go to him because he was a comic book guy. one minute. Even though they're like, hey, these guys no. are drawing illustrations about people at they war. They missed Al Williamson. Mm. They missed out. It took George Lucas to go find Al I was going to say, Williamson. yeah, to do the Star Wars books. Right. Unbelievable. And they give it to Macroboy. Gee, Macroboy did a very nice Captain Marvel Jr., but excuse me, Flash Gordon, not a chance. Everything was hairy, ugly, and shit. <laughs> and Dan Barry, good 
artist, really one of the best artists in comic books, Flash Gordon. It's not a Flash Gordon guy. It's a detective or whatever. Wrong guy. So you guys always make mistakes. You don't know what you're doing. You know, I I, w- I went to a couple of meetings of the of the cartoonist society mm-hmm. to watch how stupid they they were to each other by giving themselves awards. And uh, in my heart, I was saying, you know what, you guys fucking slipped through these holes and magically fell into this wonderful wonderland where you can make money. You can make money. You can make fantastic money. You can move to Westport, Connecticut. You can buy your Corvette. You can have your three and a half kids. You can have a studio in the city and cheat on your wife. And you can do all of these things. And you got money in the bank. And you don't understand that you're God's blessed. You don't get it. Mm. Everybody out there on the outside is working their asses off just to make a buck. And you guys are giving each other cigars and awards. Bad news. Bad news. I don't want to be part of this. So you might you change it by bringing a comic book guy into comic strips. Did that break a glass ceiling? Did it happen more after that or no? They didn't. They didn't even know I had a comic strip. They had no idea. As far as the comic book people are concerned, I fell out of the sky. They had no idea. Because the worlds are so fucking separate. Exactly. So you come into D.C. with a portfolio full of shit that, like, Except you've been that. A training What I had for done years. was I had stolen Joe Kubert from Bob Kaniger. And Bob Kaniger did what? The strips? He needed a Joe Kubert. He needed, needed a guy to do war stories. So I came in and I said, well, you know, I know you don't have Joe Kubert anymore, but I can do that stuff. So you, he moved over and left a little hole and you slipped in. Exactly. You're very so clever. I started doing war stories. Julie Schwartz sat across from him, said, can you do superhero stuff? I pretty much can do anything. Well, I have an elong- elongated man story for you. So he gave me an elongated man story. Then it was the Spectre. Then uh, uh, Bob Oxer. Did left. you like all this stuff going in? Were you a DC guy? No, did you I, didn't ever- want to, I wanted to do this temporarily and leave. That was it. I wanted to do, do another strip or become an illustrator. But when you were going to buy the Spanish comic books, it was just to figure out a different drawing style or look at other drawing styles, but not because you're like adventure. It's sort of like, you know, when they tell love stories Uh and the girl that you're really supposed to love is the one you ignore until you find her to the third (laughs) act. Well, that's exactly what happened. I'm doing these things and I'm going, I really like this stuff. This is great. You know, this is better than strips. It's better than illustration. This is great. I love this. What the hell is wrong with me? I'm obviously insane. I can't do, I'm in a terrible business. So at a certain point, slowly, I said to myself, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to change it all. Not from the inside. I'm not going to be an editor or anything else. I'm just going to change it because everything is wrong. Everything is fucked up. I was in DC Comics in the production room fairly early on. When they moved to their new place, there's a guy, I'm doing a cover. There was a guy by the cutting board. And I'm watching what he's doing. And he's uh, some distance away from me. And he takes the cutting board like this. And I watch the paper fall down and I see drawings on it. And it keeps cutting. The drawings are falling into the garbage can. I go over there and say, hold on, Walter. I shouldn't have said Walter. Bert. Bert. Bert? Hey, Bert. Hold on. I go over. I say, hold on a second. What are you doing? Just cutting up these originals. Oh, my God. Uh, Okay. For what? To re- 
purpose fr- uh, panels? No. I said, I don't understand what he says. He says, uh, you know, I'm low man on the totem pole here. I get to do the crappy jobs. And so every three months we pull the stuff out of the drawers and cut them up and throw it away. All the original artwork, they would just cut up and throw away. So they weren't even cutting panels out going, let's reuse this. I thought that's what you were getting at. He was just cutting them all those panels into quarters and into the garbage. Yeah. And so at that point, what do you say? I said, okay, uh, <clears throat> just do this for me. I have to go and talk to some people. <laughs> Carmine had been made art director and Erwin Donenfeld. Carmine was, Infantino. In, in, Infantino. He'd been made art director. Um, but he was always a comic book guy. So he's always in this world, the world of comic books. No, not the commercial world or anything else. So I said, uh, just do this for me. Just hold on. Uh, don't cut up any more pages. I have to go talk to some people and I'll come back and we'll see what we have to do. Guy said, uh, yeah, fine. I said, okay. <laughs> Let me just say this a little differently. I don't want you to cut up any more pages. We have to make some decisions. I have to go and talk to Carmen and some other people, and then we'll decide what to do. But until then, please don't cut up any more pages. Yeah, fine. Okay. Let's do it this way. I'm going to go and talk to some people. If you cut up any more pages in the time that I'm out, I'm going to punch you in the face really hard. (laughs) Well, really? That's right. Okay, walked back to his desk. Thought that was the best way to handle it. I went in to see Carmine. (laughs) Carmine, um, they're cutting up original pages in there. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Carmine, they re- they're cutting up original pages that belong to the artists and throwing them in the garbage, and they shouldn't be doing that. I know, I know, we know they really shouldn't be doing that. Okay, let's try it another way. I can't be doing any more covers for you if they do that anymore. Oh, wait a second. Hold on a second, Neil. It's not so. Let me go talk to Irwin. Suddenly he's awake. Suddenly he's awake. So on that day, they stopped destroying originals. And that had been a common practice. Oh. Unless people took stuff out of the drawer. What was the logic in destroying them? Just so other people didn't get them? You were looking for logic. Yeah, my bad. (laughs) So did they institute a policy at that point? Yes, they stopped destroying the art. This took me seven years to get them to give the stuff back. That, okay, so first you got them to stop destroying it. And then over the course of seven years, you were like, shouldn't this go back to the original They artist? did so many different things to try to find out how to solve the problem instead of just returning it to the artist. So many. They took one of my covers to the Detroit convention and they auctioned it with the proviso that whoever wins the auction may or may not get it. And they may withdraw it. They didn't tell me. Even though fans told me, because everybody tells me everything. Right. Irene Vartanov and her sister bought it, and then they refused to sell it to them for $200. And so they're going, I paid $50 for this, and I get $200 for it. That's already a business. So the Vartanov sisters called me and told me what happened. Okay. And I made it clear through Carmine 
that you can do that with one cover, but you can't do that with all the stuff. That's not going to happen. One day in the future it may happen, but it doesn't belong to you. So we've had conversations over the years. Finally, the conversation comes down to this. <laughs> Somebody going to go to Albany, New York and going to go, you know, DC Comics thinks they own all this artwork and they haven't paid sales tax on it. They're going to have to pay for all of that. They're going to owe a shit ton of money. About 50 years. So at that point, they're like, give it back, give it back. Well, it's funny how things happen. So I don't understand. It was, cons but it's considered work for hire. They, they didn't own the actual drawings. It was considered work for hire after 1978 when the ah. new copyright law was written. But even if it's considered work made for hire, any contract that says work made for hire, if you look in the contract that says, just in case work made for hire is stricken down by any court like the Supreme Court, we still own this shit. But they don't own it. The problem is this. In law, we have this problem. There's two kinds of rights. There is the actual right of ownership of this thing. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. This is a physical thing. Now, let's just say that physical thing is a drawing. Okay? Here's a drawing or a comic book page. If you want to buy that drawing, okay, you can pay for it. And if you pay for it, you also pay sales tax wherever, whatever state you're in and whatever sales tax, because it's a physical object. You cannot reproduce that page because that's another right. That is a right that is not, has nothing to do with a solid object. So mm -hmm. there's no sales tax paid for it. It's another kind of right. It's the right to reproduce. That's what the copyright law is all about. So if you have the right to reproduce it, you don't have the right to own it. If you have the right to own it, you don't have the right to reproduce it. Let's say you buy something from me, I do a drawing, and you want to print it. You can't print it. You have to come to me, and we have to write another contract that says you have the right to print it. So there's two separate things. They're never mutual. They're never, they never go they're together. They're mutually exclusive. Nor, nor do the states consult the federal government when they're writing the copyright law to say, oh, by the way, this is real property and this is a right. So the federal government, being the dummies that they are, will write a copyright law without regard to sales tax and the rights of the, of the actual property. So there's a little mix up in there. Okay. But it's a solid concept. The solid concept is, it's either property or it's a right. Mm -hmm. Property or right. Which are you buying? Okay. If you're going to buy the property, pay me sales tax, but don't reproduce it. If you're going to buy a right, give it back to me when you're done. And that's what this is based on. That's you, the argument. You. So the reason that artists get their pages back now is because of you. I mean, when they can you say yes during or no? That, yes, yes. that's true. Of course, you're the first one of who's course. just like, why? Of course, but it's bigger than that. When we were fighting, we, when I was fighting to get the artwork returned, okay, artists were terrified that we were fighting. Because they'll fire they us. get fired. So I couldn't do it with their help. They drew back. They all drew back. They couldn't do it because they felt they could get fired. It was wrong. What are you going to do? How are you gonna, who are you going to find? And right. nobody's making any money on this anyway. When it finally happened, it happened without anybody knowing. It just, it seemed like a policy that came from DC and came from Marvel. Poof, one day they decided. That's how it seemed. It's not how it was. Mm -hmm. Those people who railed against me professionally, 
certain people whose names will go unmentioned, okay, who argued against me and said, you're going to get us all fired. That year, their income doubled. Do you get a ham or a bottle of wine or a thank you drawing? Or My mother told me <laughs> at a very young age, if you do something for somebody else because you expect them to thank you, don't do it. And I've always kept that as pretty That's much the way it works. I think so. Words. I think so. So, so I get enough thanks, though. I mean, you know. Well, I mean, it's just it's overwhelming. When for those now, we got some cats in the audience who are like, ah, I don't read the comics. I know Batman from the movies. I know the TV show. Blah blah. blah. So some cats don't even think about. Oh, there's pencils, then there's inks, then they come together, and then there's colors, and what happens to those original pages? And there is a massive marketplace now that essentially you created exactly by stepping up there and going like, hey, man, if they'll pay for this, they might actually want it when it's done. That's that's So this marketplace, kids, is like, oh, But you see, that's that's why I – that is the answer to my deciding to stay in. I decided to stay in. And fix it quietly on the side because I wasn't going to stay in it the way it was. It was bad. Let's talk, and this is jumping ahead in the future, but in terms of the, the fix of it all, or the reason you jumped in and then the reason you stayed, rather, to kind of fix. Sure. Very famously in the 70s, uh, just as the Superman movie was heating up for uh, uh, DC corporate parent Warner right. Brothers, uh, the, the two gentlemen who created Superman, who had Jerry large, and Jerry and Joel, Jerry Siegel, Joel Schuster, right. who had largely gone unheralded, and not so much unheralded as unrewarded for decades. You were the guy that... Well, it's a longer story than that. Good. Than well, I, that's, we got nothing right. but time, dude, right. because you're the man. I mean, I'm not going to bury the lead and we put it on Front Street. Oh, yeah. Without you, those cats probably don't get the credit and the fucking, uh, the yeah. money that they later got in the... The problem with, the problem with those guys is that if you study the if you study their history, which I can go over very, very quickly, okay, they wanted to become comic book artists. In in those days, comic books were westerns, uh, uh, Johnny Rocket. Uh, um, you know, the, they were basically copies of comic strips. Mm-hmm. What happened in the business was that these printers said, "Well, shit, I want to keep my print my my uh, press going." How do I do that? I, you know, I only get so many jobs. And then as soon as I, the guy who runs the press is sitting there smoking a cigar and the press isn't moving, I lose money. Mm. So I want to print something. So what do I print? I'll print uh, crossword puzzles. I'll buy crossword puzzles from various people who do crossword puzzles in New York Times or whatever. And I'll print those in books because you can print them on crap paper and black and white and just put a color cover on it. And you can sell crossword puzzles. What else can you do? Let me see. You can take, hmm. You can take the comic strips that appear in the newspapers and you can print them, put them together in little books and sell these little book booklets called Tip Top Comics and stuff like that. And so you could see Prince Van kind of reduced and all the other stuff in comic books. Well, there wasn't enough. After a while, there wasn't enough. There was just there was just a limited number of syndicated strips and uh, and these printers wanted to make money. So what do you do? You know, there's a lot of little kids in Lower East Side in New York who can draw, and they can draw as well as some of these strip guys. Why don't we hire them and have them do cowboy stories and have them do, uh, you know, rocket stories and science fiction stories and have them do copy the strips, have them do cartoons. And so they did. They hired these, you know, New York Jewish kids. And mostly it was uh, it was Jewish kids. It was a Jewish business. Why? Because those printers 
We're the sons of guys in the garment center. The garment center of New York is a certain area, almost all Jewish. And so their sons said, I'm not going to do what you do, Pop. I'm going to print. I'm going to become a printer. Another center. line of business. Another business. Okay. So they were accountants and they were Jewish accountants and Jewish printers. And so they hired Jewish kids. So now you had Jewish kids. A lot of them would change their names. Gil Kane was uh, Eli Katz. Uh, J- uh, Jack Kirby was K- Kurtzenberg, something like that. Stan Lee was Stan Lieber. Yeah. His, his brother kept his name, Larry Lieber. So uh, there was a lot of that, you know, bringing the kids in, pay them crap wages, you know, and that, and then you get, you know, uh, the spirit and you get all these uh, strips and all this stuff happening, a lot of stuff being generated, but it's all a copy of the strips. In Cleveland, Ohio, were you the least place you expect to find two little Jewish kids? Because I, I didn't know there were Jewish kids in Cleveland, Ohio. They apparently found each other, I don't know, by magnetic attraction. One they was from Toronto, to, right? One was Canadian. I think so, yeah. So they got together and they started doing strips and hand sending stuff in. And they do this, did this character called Superman very briefly, who was a bad guy. And so they had this villain Superman and they didn't like it very much. So they did another Superman and made him a good guy. And so they did it. They were 17 years old and they sent it to all the syndicated, the syndicates around the country that did the syndicated strips and they all got, all rejected it. So, but while they were doing it, they were getting better at what they did. So they started to submit work to DC Comics and they started to draw, uh, Slam Bradley and, you know, cowboys and all the rest of the stuff that everybody else did. One day they traveled to New York and they were, I guess, 21 or, and they showed this Superman thing to Jack Leibowitz who was, you could call him a publisher, but he was an accountant at uh, DC Comics. And he said, you know, as far as he was concerned, it was just something else to put in one of the books. Mm. Kids came in, they said, he said, well, look, it cut it up to fit the pages and then we'll buy it. So they took their syndicated strip and they sliced it up and made it into pages, comic book pages. And they sold it and they signed a piece of paper. Boom, 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 boom. That piece of paper said, Whatever you do, we own. Did they know that? A 20, 21 Who gives years. a shit? The they wanted they to work know. in comics. They, they were going to work in comics. Right. DC Comics, Jack Leibowitz and his partner, uh, who was a drunk and a ne'er-do-well, um, uh, essentially believed that they treated them well. They honored them. They let them do the syndicated strip when it came along. They paid them better than other guys that they paid. They treated them well. Well, we look at it as historically, no, <laughs> you should have split it 50-50. And you know what? Maybe the story would have been a good story, but you didn't. <laughs> you were selfish, miserable bastards. And so you rook them out of uh, their uh, legacy. At the same time, they did get paid better than anybody else. They hired other artists. Then what happened was Jerry had to go to war. He was drafted. Joe couldn't hold on to the artist that he had ghosting him. So DC Comics hired them to come to New York. And so Joe had to come to New York where they could have him under their thumb. Jack Leibowitz's partner would go around kicking Joe Schuster in the ass, walk by him. Why? Because he was an asshole. Uh, isn't that the question that, that, isn't that the answer you get to an awful lot of It questions? seems like it, yeah. I'm sorry. I wish it was different. Essentially, he's going kicking Jor-El. That's Superman's dad right there. They would go, the boys would go to um, these uh, events where uh, 
they'd be sitting up in the balcony, highest balcony, and the creators of Superman would be paraded up front and they would donate $200,000 to the, bon- the bond raising for the war. And they would come out, Joe and Jerry would be up in the top balcony. They were not the creators of Superman. No, no. It, it was, I, and I, and I tell you, and I tell you this because I spent a lot of time with Jerry and Joe because I had them come to New York because we went into a bad situation. Anyway, so at a certain point, Joe came back from war and he had had an idea before he went to war that why don't we do a character called Superboy, which are the adventures of Superman when he was a boy. Jack Leibwood says, you, your head's too big, buddy. Forget it. While he was away, they started Superboy. So when Jerry came back, he sued. And that was the first lawsuit. That was the initial lawsuit. They settled out of court. The boys got, the boys ended up having a lot of lawyers. They got $400,000, which they split between each other. For Superboy. For Super, for Superboy. But it was never settled. It was agreed by the court that Superboy does belong to them. But, they had to spend all the money on lawyers, so they ended up with $75,000, and suddenly they found themselves without work. Because they had gone after their corporate masters. Exactly. Now, the corporate masters could have been smart and used them and could have turned it all around at that point, but they did What year is this? Well, it's obviously a, before Superman came out, 77. Not, not a historian. So anyway, years before this. This is, after, this is after they made the cartoons. This is after the syndicated strip. I mean, they, they, they were making money hand over fist on, on Superman. Superman's well-established. Well-established. So as time went by, there's, these lawyers uh, got a hold of Jerry and Joe, and they said, look. And the, Jerry and Joe at this point were 45. And they said, look, the copyright law says that you can regain the right to your character in this year, whatever the year was. And you'll be 60 years old, but we'll get it back for you. All you have to do is not say anything about it for the next 15 years and just live your lives. So DC Comics took their name off the strip and they disappeared. When I got into comics, I'm looking around going, where is this Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster guys? I don't get it. I don't see their name on the strip. They disappeared from age 45 to age 60. Now, I'm not going to say how stupid that is, but that's really stupid. Really stupid. Who gave them that advice? Lawyers. They're lawyers? I'm not going to tell you who they are. Not very good ones. I'm not going to get into trouble. So anyway, it comes to age 60, suddenly lawyers aren't answering their phones. (laughs) Funny about that. What happened? Ah. They either die or bought out. They don't die. Lawyers don't die. They just pass the names on. (laughs) Don't you know about (laughs) that? My bad. You know that? So between the time they said, go away, come back when you're 60, and they came back when they were 60. Well, Joe became uh, more legally blind um, and was delivering, uh, was a messenger. He was a messenger man. He was a messenger and he was legally blind, so he couldn't see his way very well. Jack Leibowitz found out that he was in the in the neighborhood and he brought him up and bought him an overcoat and said, look, don't deliver stuff around here. Oh, my God. I talked to Joe, who is an angel. When I see, you know, there are people, Jerry, not such a nice guy, Joe, an angel. Mm-hmm. If you ever meet a human angel, there's some, you meet, every once in a while you run into somebody who's like, I can't believe you actually exist. You're right. like an angel. We took, I took him to the Tom Snyder show. <laughs> and uh, 
and we were on. We're uh, we, we're going to go on. This is the old Tom Snyder mm-hmm. show. And and Tom the says, late, "Look, late we want to do or... yeah, whatever that was." He said, "I want to uh, you know have a conversation with him before we, I take him on." So he has a conversation with him. He comes out and he says, "Neil, you got to help me here." He says, "This guy Jerry is spitting." venom with every word he says he hates everybody he's just the worst person in the world i mean he's right but he's he's just joe is like an angel he's like i asked him how he feels about this and he said and he gave me a lecture on how many countries superman appears in in comic books he said i I can't do this you have to come in and do this i had to go on the show and moderate between the two of them I'm talking to Joe over dinner because I was dragging him in town and I was taking him to appear in various places. And I'm talking to Joe and I said, Joe, there's a, there was a Broadway show about a year and a half ago called Superman. Oh Broadway God, musical, yes. A musical. He said, I know. I said, what did you think of the show? He says, Neil, I used to go down there. And the people who came to the show, Mayor Lindsay, the president of the United States, movie stars it was one of those shows that everybody had to go to and they would come in and they would go in and see my show about my character he said it was unbelievable i said well okay joe i no that's great that's really great i actually wasn't asking you that question i want i wondered what you thought of the show itself oh, I know he said this is going i couldn't afford to go to that holy show. fucking shit man so you're outraged quietly yeah when is that when it begins? Are you like, I'm going to get these motherfuckers? No, it begins because Jerry wrote a nine page letter to the Washington Post, the New York Times, various news outlets, and the Academy of Comic Book Arts, of which I was president at that time. And I read the letter to my studio out loud. And I said, okay, when I finished the letter, I said, okay, this studio is going to be dedicated to making that right because it's going to go to the newspaper. And then it'll die, and it'll go to this newspaper, and then it'll die, and that'll be the end of it. We're going to make it happen. If anybody wants to help, I ask you to help. If you don't want to help, just ace out, forget about it. We're going to change this. We're going to make this happen. We're going to undo this, because this is wrong. And that's it. That's what we're going to dedicate the studio to. Otherwise, I mean, we can continue to do our work, but we did. Four months later, it got fixed. That's all it took. Four months. It wasn't it barely was barely four it was under four and what did they do for them and how was it fixed they paid them a yearly wage mm. they gave them medical insurance uh they gave them a bonus at the beginning which uh, uh jerry robinson no, i'll tell you the story it's a great story it was it was a long drawn out thing um and some of the some of the stuff is uh, very personal and very and very deadly and and uh, and interesting because I was up against Warner's and I didn't want Warner's to come out bad because they were the inheritors of this problem so right. I didn't want them to to be the bad guys but still I was negotiating with them on the phone every day and so it was got to be kind of funny and, and odd in some ways but in the end they started to soften and finally I was running out of options. Okay. And I didn't know where to go because they, they, I, first of all, Joe being legally blind would bang his head on the cab, the rim of the cab as he get in. So I had to put my hand up there because he'd bang his head on it. Mm. Right. Cause he couldn't see. 
Jerry had a, a heart condition, so he really couldn't hang around New York a ton of time. So I, I tried to make it easy on him. So we couldn't do too much. So we did a lot of interviews and a lot of TV shows. And the story got to be known. So after a while, I got all the New York, all the reporters in New York to follow this. So I got calls every single day. What's going on? What's going on? Well, how's it turning? How's it turning? And the movie is out at this point or coming oh, out? It, it, it no, hadn't, been, out. hadn't been out yet. Hadn't been, no, out. been out yet. That was a good time for that. Yeah, okay? right. So I finally, I called Jerry Robinson. This, uh, this is like three months in. I called Jerry Robinson, uh, who is the past president of the Cartoonist Society. I said, Jerry, Jerry Robbins, who had created Robin and the Joker. And that had gone on. Mm-hmm. And I said, Jerry, look, I don't know if you've been following. He's been following it. I said, I need your help. I need the National Cartoonist Society. Okay. Because I need to get a voice out there because I'm running out of places to go. He said, okay, I'll call a meeting of the National Cartoonist Society. In Times Square, there's the Allied, Allied Chemical Building. It's not, it, it's not called the Allied Chemical Building now. It's where the ball comes down. Mm-hmm. Okay, that building was used to be called the Allied Chemical Building. So there was a meeting in there. The National Cartoonist Society, they rent spaces to people. People in the building rent spaces to people to have meetings. The National Cartoonist Society has enough money to have really nice meeting rooms. So you have this big table in this big hall where you come in and you hand your coat to a girl who hangs it up for you. And you walk in, you see there's a table and there's all this empty space and there's a table with three lights over like a pool table. It's like out of some old detective novel. You can't (laughs) believe this. Really? This is where you have your meetings? I mean, we have it in a closet. This is incredible. So you had something like nine guys that were having the meeting, famous cartoonists, right? And I go and I have a meeting and I present to them. Jerry says, this is Neil. He does this, blah, blah, blah. And they all kind of know who I am. And so they have a discussion and uh, talk about it. And uh, so I so I say, uh, and I, you know, I really, really, really need your help. So they discuss it. And what are they going to do? They talk about writing a letter of objection. And they're going to have the letter publicized and of how all the cartoonists object to this happening to the creators of Superman and blah, blah, blah. And then they're going to have the sports cartoonists are having a meeting on another floor, do another letter, and they're going to have letters. And so they have this discussion. And... Um, a roundtable discussion. They decide what they're going to do. So Jerry turns to me and he says, so, Neil, what do you think? I said, okay, you want to know what I think? How fucking dare you? (laughs) How fucking dare you? These two guys, two little Jewish kids in Cleveland, Ohio, made your most of your careers. These two little guys made the comic book business. They made it by inventing a character called Superman. He is the most powerful comic book character there is. He sold millions and millions of copies in the beginning, and he made careers. You guys, half of you wouldn't have your jobs. Half of you wouldn't have your houses in Connecticut. And you're telling me that you're going to write a letter? Bullshit. Fuck you. Boom, I'm out. You walked. I walked. I go to the cloakroom, and now, now they're talking. Yeah. Oh, the fucker, we upset Neil. We got Neil pissed. Believe me, it wasn't that short. It was longer than that. And so I go out there, and I'm going to get my jacket. And there's a guy there, kind of not very tall, blocky, Irish, looks Irish. And he says, excuse me. I say, yeah, yeah. 
He says, uh, that was a pretty good speech. I said, heartfelt. <laughs> Thank you. He said, no, it was a really good speech. I said, well, thanks. He says, you know what this building is? I said, uh, Allied Chemical Building. He says, no. What else it is? I said, uh, I have no idea. He said, this is the headquarters of the International Press Corps. I said, yeah, really? And this floor belongs to the International Press Corps as well as a bunch of other floors. I said, wow, that's, <laughs> that's, that's very, I had no idea. He said, you know who I am? I said, no. He said, I'm the president of the International Press Corps, and I can get you a press conference like that. Oh, shit. Really? Come with me. And I grabbed him. <laughs> I took him over the table, and I said, gentlemen, this is the president of the International Press Corps, and he has offered to give us a press conference. And I think that's exactly what we ought to do. So we had a press conference. Where? In New York? In the International Press Corps. And what, press just flat everybody out came. Erwin uh, uh, Hazen, who drew Dondi, had Dondi with a tear coming out of his eye. No, <laughs> out of his big black eyes. No, really, unbelievable. Uh, Peanuts, the letter from uh, uh, Charles, Schultz. Schultz, Charles Schultz, the reading letters and stuff. I just put, moved to the back. I just let it go on. It was like whoa, and it was everybody going. Give these guys their of rights. Of course, give them their. Pay them some money. I mean, you could pay them as much as you you would pay a secretary. Yeah, a good secretary, and they'd be fine. They're getting nothing. They're getting nothing. That's the thing. Like, I, I guess people listening might have a hard time getting. Like, come on, they must have sent them some stuff. Nothing. 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 Jerry, and and the, as Jerry, was the custom in the yeah. day. They fucking give you nothing and then turn their back on you and back. pretend you didn't fucking exist. And they sort of let it out there that maybe you don't need to hire this guy. So they they no, I didn't say that. Maybe? I didn't say that, did I? It just no. sort of happens by magic, right? Right. That happens by magic. Jerry doesn't get any work. He gets work under a pseudonym. When he reveals his name, suddenly it gets withdrawn. Jesus. I wonder how that happens. Maybe just the guy's frightened. I don't know what the deal is. Lex Luthor is in control of all this. I guess. Anyway, so... Uh, um, so anyway, so, so DC... Uh, not DC. Warner Warner's. said, hey, okay. How much do they want? <laughs> and Jerry says to me, um, look, whatever they offer, take it. And he's the bitter venomous one. He's the bitter venomous one, but he's tired. He's got to go back to California. He's got to go to a plane. Mm -hmm. So uh, he says, look, whatever the number is, just take it. We're tired. We can't do it. So I get a call. I'm not going to say who called. <laughs> I'm just going to tell the story. Go I get the call and I say, okay, so what are you, what are you offering? He named the number. I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll go and ask Jerry and Joe. And I said, uh, I'll be right back. Of course, Jerry was at the airport. So I put the phone down. I went and made a cup of coffee, had half of it, came back. I said, I guess I'm just not good at this. They just don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to come up with another number. What do you suggest? Well, I gave him another number. I don't want to say what it was. It wasn't gigantic. It was mm -hmm. very reasonable. Fine. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> Boom. Okay. So let's make a deal. So let's make, and so the deal was made in a in a uh, and this is this this part of the story. My favorite part of the story. 
Uh, Byron Price, who used to be in comics, was a publisher. His father was Ed Price. Ed Price handled this and took care of it. He's a really, really great guy. So we did it in his offices, and we're negotiating over the phone. And Ed is like, he's very, very sharp. So these the Warner guys are on the other end of the phone, and we're talking about what they're going to get, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Ed says, of course, they're going to get medical insurance. We didn't say medical insurance. Well, wait a second. They're employees of Warner's, right? So they would naturally get medical insurance. Well, they're not. Well, I guess they are. Well, of course, they're employees. You are saying that. I mean, unless you're saying that that's not the case. They are going to get the very best medical insurance that your company can offer. Isn't that right? Well, I guess so. So he started to push little thing, push little buttons, <laughs> started to fix it up. And, cause I, and I realized I don't really know how to do this negotiating stuff. But I'm watching it go, and it's going. It's going good. And the guy who had been no- negotiating with me, and I'm not going to tell you his name, but it's a very funny story, and I can tell it to you privately. Uh, he says, uh, Neil, I notice you're not talking. I said, yeah. He says, why not? I said, well, uh, you guys have been talking about money and medical insurance and other retirement plans and all that. They don't have their name on the strip. Mm, you're my I hero, mean, Neil I mean, they should, they should have their name on the strip. Fuck yes. So he says, well, wait a second. Hold on a second. That's not good. That, that'll screw up the rights. That'll screw, how, how will it screw it up? No, it's it, it, there's all kinds of legal, right, right show, and he turns to the lawyer, and the lawyer says, well, yeah, you know, there are, no, and I said, hold on a second, Joe, you're the lawyer? Tell me what legal ramification there is. Tell me, because there is none. You're just putting their name on the strip. That has nothing to do with it. It's got nothing to do with it. I'll tell you what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you $1. You make a photostat, and then you make copies of it, and you put it on the strip. That's it. I'll absorb the cost. Do you want me to do that? Well, that's not the point. And he says, is this a deal breaker? Joe's in Queens. He's sleeping on a cot with a broken window next to him with pieces of tape over it. I have photos. Jerry's going back to California to go to his clerk job, $7,500 a year. So the smart move is, ah, let it go. Right. So I said, no, it's not a deal breaker. It's fine. Just move ahead. I go back to my studio. I called Jerry Robbins, who has been now helping me. Man who drew the Joker and Robbins. That's right. I said, Jerry, Tomorrow, you're going to get some calls, and they're going to say, we've been trying to call Neil Adams, but we can't get a hold of him. He's disappeared. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going on a plane to Florida with my kids, and we're going to go to a comic book convention. Only we haven't told anybody. So as far as the world is concerned, I will have disappeared. So your story is, you have no idea where I am. I'm going to tell my guys in the studio to say the same thing. I am just gone. Mm -hmm. And that's your attitude. So you know nothing. He says, what are you driving at, Neil? I said, just, you'll be able to play it and you're fine. Okay. So now I'm getting my daily calls from the reporters, reporter calls. I hear that the deal is good. Yeah, before Christmas, it's going to be great. Everything's getting taken care of. It's just this thing is almost perfect. 
being a reporter, he heard the word almost. Right. He says, uh, what do you mean almost? I said, well, you know, all anybody, you know what a byline is? Mm-hmm. You know how important it is to a reporter, writer, artist? Well, they've refused to put Jerry and Joe's name back on the strip. And I have no idea why. It's a totally insane thing. It doesn't cost them a dime. So because Jerry is sick, we have to fold on this. Really? It's 10 minutes to five. Another reporter calls up. Same dialogue. Another reporter calls up. Same dialogue. Another reporter calls up till six o'clock. I go home. I get my kids. We head to Florida. Go to bed. Get up in the morning. In the morning, we're coming to the lobby. There's Jack Kirby and Roz. Jack goes, what's going on? What's going on with this? I said, Jack, I think I have a story to tell you. <sighs> Let's go to breakfast. All right. Well, you got to tell me everything now. You got to tell me everything. Don't worry. I'll tell you everything. Somebody from the hotel walks over, right? Says, excuse me, are you Neil Adams? I said, yeah. He says, I have a phone call from you from New York. I said, who is it? He says, a, a guy named Jerry, a person named Jerry Robinson. Okay, I'll take that. Jack, excuse me for just a minute. I take the phone, hand me the phone, whatever. And Jerry gets on the phone. He says, uh, so are you sitting down? I said, no. He says, go sit down. I said, fine. <laughs> I go sit down. He says, so this morning, starting at around 930, I get a call from so-and-so from Warner's. He says, where's Neil Adams? He's disappeared off the face of the earth. Where the fuck is he? I don't know. I have no idea. No, no, don't give me that shit. You're working with Neil. Where the fuck is he? I'm getting, oh, another phone. I got another phone call. Every reporter in New York wants to know what the hell is going on. They want to know why their names aren't. I got to talk to Neil. We got to settle this. We got to settle this. I told him this was a deal breaker. Well, was it a deal breaker? No, he said no. But this is just bullshit. I'm getting calls left and right. These, everybody, I don't know who all these, I don't know what to say. Well, you better say something. Well, you have to help me, Jerry. You have to help me. You know, as the uh, past president of the Cartoonist Society, you have to help me on this. It's just bullshit. I can't put their names back on there. There's ramifications. Jerry says, you know, you're talking to the past president of the Cartoonist Society? That all the members of the Cartoonist Society have their names on their strips? I am the last person in the world you want to be talking to about. <laughs> oh, fine. Their names are on it. That's Good. It. All right. Is everything okay now? Jerry says. Well, that's almost perfect. Almost. Well. You know, the boys have been through a lot this last half a year. I think you ought to give them a bonus just to start them off. What figure do you suggest? <laughs> so he says, well, I don't know, $30,000. Fine. Oh, my Lord. And was that the end of it? Was that everything? How was it? Jesus. How delighted were you to tell them you did it, boys? I was delighted to tell Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Jack says, no, really? Aha, that's great. 
Let me ask you this, man. Is that possible to do today? And let me ask you if, you, if you think it's essential. Why not? Bill Finger doesn't seem to get uh, the credit. You got to understand. You gotta Go understand. ahead. Tell me. Remember I talked about Jerry and Joe? Yeah. If it was just Jerry, I probably wouldn't have fought. I would have fought for Joe. Jerry was a bitter, nasty guy. Uh-huh. Um, and it's hard to fight for somebody like that because if he's your front guy, it's very, very hard. Bill Finger, I don't, I never met Bill Finger. Um, I did met, meet uh, Bob Kane. Mm-hmm. I had never had a good impression of Bob Kane. Mm-hmm. Uh, did I he like your stuff? He's like, I like your Batman. Or did he have criticism? As far as he was concerned, it was making money for him. Yeah. That's all he cared about. He only seemed to care about Bob Kane. You know, you can have a conversation. We're talking about me, and I'm talking an awful lot about me. I don't normally talk an awful lot about me. I like to talk about other stuff. Other stuff, but you're on the spot to but talk I'm about But I'm on the spot, so I got to talk about it. Uh, Bob didn't have to be on the spot. You were just talking really about Bob. Just talking about Bob. And, uh, and, and, I, and if you read, you know, enough about it to see how the development of the character went, he had a lot of really bad ideas, and Bill Finger seemed to have a lot of really good ideas. But I know some of those old guys, some of the some of the drinkers, and some of the guys who you know whose uh, month run out runs out before the end of the paycheck, right. and uh, they're always borrowing money, and they're always don't stand up for themselves, and they have nothing to say. Bill Finger never said anything as defense, as far as I know. Yeah, that's what I've, he never I, presented I've himself as saying I'm being ripped off or anything like that. Why? I'm one of those. Look, I'm a pretty straight shooter. Mm-hmm. Okay. You come to me and you have a real problem and it's black and white, I'll help you. I'll help you no matter who you are. I mean, unless you're a bum on the street, even the, even that, I'll help you. I'll help you stop being a bum. But if you don't, you're not willing to stand up for yourself, I can't do anything. You have to be able to say, you know, this is what, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. I never, it's just other people. Other people are saying that. He deserves, no, he doesn't. He didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He was just good at his job. Just like, hey, why don't editors get a piece of the action? Mm. You know, Julie Schwartz ought to get Green Lantern. His family ought to get Green Lantern. Explain why. Because he well, was because like, let's do he this. He created it. Yeah, yeah. He essentially created the new Green Lantern and the new Flash, as far as I know. So why don't they get, it? well, let's stand up for every, everybody. You know, there's got to be a time. And I've, and I've, ever since I got into, into doing this with people, mm. Here, I'll, I'll tell you a story, give you an idea of how, a little bit of how people perceive this approach. Mm. Um, I had stopped doing comic books after Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Very famous. I did some publishing. Gorgeous cover, one of the greatest comic book covers ever made. So anyway, so, so I, and I kind of stopped doing comic books. I sort of went on strike. Mm-hmm. It wasn't significant, but I sort of did. And I did a lot of advertising, a lot of stuff, waiting for the field to catch up to me. Mm-hmm. In what it, way? What do you mean? In well, terms of your ability? Technically, or? and or, or also artistic ability. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be honest about this. When I came in, there weren't that many people who were doing work of the level that I did it. It, it, it sort of was unfair, you know? On the other hand, I had started the ball rolling with a lot of guys in, in college and in high school who were going to learn to become really good artists, the Jim Lees and all those guys. But I couldn't just be there and be the only guy doing it. Also, technologically, I was presenting technology that they, they didn't understand. My daughter, Chris, brought uh, the industry to Canada to do printing on better paper. We Quebecois? Yes. My daughter went to Quebecois first. And said, hey, let's go up here? Exactly. Why? Because why we were like, why are we printing Sparta? on toilet paper? Why are we doing it on toilet paper? Exactly. We were, we were using uh, uh, print, a printing method that was used uh, at the time of Ben Franklin. 
and, and on on toilet paper, why not? If you can get a good price, why not go somewhere else? Shop. Oh, there's an idea. Right. So my daughter shopped, and she found Cabacore. And then she showed samples to DC and Marvel, and they went to Cabacore. That's right. For anyone who doesn't read comics, I mean, as long as I've been reading comics and publishing comics from time to time, Cabacore is where we sure, go. Yeah. Sure, sure. And now there are more more printers out there. Thank God, you know that's great. But it was if it wasn't for Chris, that would have taken another ten years for them to discover. Well, I couldn't wait for all that. You know, I had done you know dropouts and different colored lines and all kinds of techniques and pencil techniques and and steel engraving techniques, like on the uh, Batman Robin. Robin's on the ground, and there's Ra's al Ghul behind him, done in this steel engraving technique. Mm-hmm. Like it's some big miracle, you know, not as if advertising had known about this. <laughs> but nobody for, bothered doing for a comic book no. before you. So uh, it was better for me to say, okay, I'm quits for until things, you know, kind of catch up, come come back. It wasn't that solid. It was, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm just going to do Superman versus Muhammad Ali, and then I'm going to back away for a while. I'm going to do advertising and support my family and take care of things. So... Coming back, where were we? Where did we jump off from here? We jumped off from, uh, we were talking about Bill Finger. And oh, like, let me tell you okay. a story. Okay. So about five years into this, uh, Neil backing off, mm-hmm. uh, there's a San Diego convention. I believe it's San Diego, but Harlan Ellison was a guest. And so there are fans there asking questions. And one of the fans said, well, look, what's going to happen now with Neil Adams going away to the industry Okay, and the rights of the creators. And Harlan Ellison said, and I, this is not a direct quote because I can only, Harlan Ellison said, yeah, said, yes, Neil may have gone away, but now the publishers have to worry about the sons of Neil Adams. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> You're a hero, dude. Think about it. You, yeah, you, draw, but, you drew heroes for yeah, a long time, and then you got I to did. be the heroes to the guys that gave birth to the hero. You... But Think about how you close the leap. The loop. You were able to give thanks to, in the best possible way, monetarily, particularly at that point in their life, the guys who were responsible for you yes. doing eventually what you exactly. came to love exactly. and, and do so but damn we well. We all do it for everybody. I just happen to be the right pl- person in the right place and the right time with the right amount of knowledge who could then make the changes. Whereas I knew there was no penalty for doing these things, and I knew these things need to be changed. It's sort of like. I would be debating, um, say, Jeanette Kahn, who is, you know, wonderful. Um, Former uh, president yeah, of DC Comics, of DC Comics editor. And, and, uh, and, and other people at DC. Uh, various times this various debate would take place. Why don't the artists get royalties? Well, because they're doing uh, periodicals, magazines. No, they're not. They're called comic books. No, but they're not really books. They're periodicals. They just are called comic books. No, no, they're not called comic books. What they are are books with comics. And the reason you know that is because a magazine, two-thirds to three-quarters, is advertising, if not 100%. -hmm. And that's why it exists, because it doesn't exist because of the number of copies that get sold. No magazine could exist if it sold 200,000, 500,000 copies because the production on it is so expensive and all the rest of it is so expensive that they'd be out of business in one month. It's the advertising. Comic books don't. Comic books are more like books. Books sell and they make money on the number of books that they sell. Mm-hmm. So they are books, just like books. 
Well, that may be true, but they are periodicals and they come out periodically. They come out monthly. So do books come out monthly. All publishers who know what they're doing publish books every single month. Well, that's not the point. These are comic books. And oh, hold on a second. Say what you will. OK, these comic books that you call periodicals depend on the creators that are doing them. OK, so what? We pay them money. OK, let's do this a different way. If you could sell a comic book and you could sell enough of that comic book to make you enough money to feel comfortable that you had made a profit, what would that number be? Well, it could be any number. No, it's a number. For every comic book, there's a number, okay? In fact, if you want to make, enough, make up a number, we'll say it's uh, 35,000, but make up a number, say it's 70,000. Say it's 100,000. I don't actually care what number you say. Say whatever number you want. Well, if something sold 100,000 copies, we'd certainly be making a profit. Well, in that case, if a comic book sold 500,000 copies because of the efforts of a writer and an artist, don't you think they deserve something? Well, 500,000 copies, of course. Excuse me, I just won my argument. You just lost. You've just agreed that they sell more than the number you expect them to sell. They should get a royalty. Now let's just discuss what that royalty should be. Because you're wrong and I'm right. right. Aren't I? Absolutely. Well, if somebody sold 500,000 copies, of course they deserve it. Then why don't you just pick the number? It can be it can be unfair. You can be a uh, Scrooge. You can be a terrible person and pick a number that is so unfair. But you know what? That will make your creative strive to do comic books so good that you'll surpass that number. And that's all they want. Yeah. Oh, I guess we can do that. A bit of incentivization. That's why we have royalties. Man, is there anything you didn't do when you got in that field? Well, yeah, there was not too many things left. I can spend an hour doing Dead Man, and I can Try. spend an hour doing Hard Traveling Heroes. But the show is Batman on Batman, so Batman. I'm going to ask you this. Sure. Who was drawing Batman when you first drew him, and what did you do different? Carmine Infantino. Now, how, what did you think of his Batman? Well, he, I liked the, particularly like the log that was behind him that was a bat cape. Went like this. I, I sort of like that. Looked like a log. I think that was a very good idea. And Robin still had the pixie shoes. I thought it was right. not bad. And, and Carmen put a circle on his chest so the bad guys could shoot at it. The target. That, that's a really good thing. <laughs> um, and the TV show was kind of winding down. So did you have to battle that? Um, well, there were things that, things floating in the air. Like there was a contract with Bob Kane. And Bob Kane had ghosts do his stuff. Now, it's bad enough that Bob Kane may have been one of the worst artists in the universe. <laughs> didn't exactly hire great artists. I think he hired Joe Giella, who was a great inker, perhaps not a, the greatest pencil in the world, but a terrific guy. But he would hire people that you wouldn't necessarily hire to be his ghosts, and he'd say, I did it. And you go, Bob, you know you didn't do that. We recognize who it is. No, no, I did it. <laughs> okay, fine. So he would ghost, he would get ghosts to do his stuff. So you, you would get Carmine, mm -hmm. who was okay on some things, not necessarily Batman. Mm -hmm. And then you would get Bob and his ghosts. Okay. 
And then that you had the show. So you had uh, a show that was a satire, which we loved, totally loved. Mm. I could, I say nothing bad about Nobody the at the time in comics right. was like, this is, oh, they're right. ruining Batman. It's they were like, this rocks. Show. Rocks. It wasn't Batman. Right. Mm. I found that out on the first show when uh, there was a cyclotron built on a stage. Notice everything was on a stage. It was on a stage. It was a cyclotron. It had a big hole in the top. And uh, Jill St. John was on top of it. And she did this go-go dance. And then she jumped into the cyclotron. And Batman said, oh, what a way to go-go. <laughs> I was pretty much convinced that this was going to go comedy. All right. So... It wasn't going to be what we hoped it would be, but it became what it was, right. which was fantastic. And Shines wonderful. a light on the source material again. Exactly, exactly. And it was wonderful, but it wasn't Batman. Now, Jerry Robinson did Batman. He did Robin. He did the Joker. He did a lot of good things, but it, this wasn't Batman. And even though Carmine is a good artist in some areas, some genres, I said genres and I'm ashamed. Uh, <laughs> I'm always ashamed if I say that. We, you have you know? no reason. I'm, I'm listening. I'm yeah, yet started, to hear anything you need started, to be ashamed about. So, anyway, so, uh, so it really wasn't. So I went to uh, Julie and I said, um, Julie, I'd like to draw uh, an issue of Batman. He said, get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> uh, you know, just, uh, just an issue. I'd like to, let Neil, get out. Get out of here. There's things you don't know. Well, one of the things I don't know is the sales are down. Are they? He says, yes, they are. We're thinking of canceling Detective. The fuck out of here. And the sales on Batman aren't doing so good because the show is and the stuff not very good. I said, yeah, look, before you do anything, let me he's, get out of here. So I did that a couple of times and I got kicked out. So I went down the hall to Murray Bolton off who was doing Brave and Bold. He was also doing Jerry, um, Jerry Lewis and Bob Hope comic books that I did for him for a while, and that had good sales, and I did them. I made the best money in comics doing those comic books. I could pencil 10 pages a day. Of Jerry Lewis. Oh, <laughs> great money. 10 pages a day. That's, that's a, great. That's, I know. That's a lot of pages. Now, nowadays, most artists Ooh. are like, if I can get a page I have to surrender so that for dead, man. It's stupid. Anyway, <laughs> so I go to Murray, and I say, uh, Murray, I, I'd like to do Brave and Bold. Because Brave and Bold had Batman and Dead Man and Batman and uh, Aquaman and Batman. When every so it's like a backdoor as opposed to going, let me do Batman. You're like, eh, let me do Brave and Bold, which Batman. allows you to do Batman. So so he said, uh, he said, yeah, that that would be great. He said, you can whatever you want. Because he was like, as far as he's concerned, I'm going to make his life. And for the next 10 years, he's going to hit retirement. He's going to be making money because this is whatever our relationship was was great. He says, you can do it. No problem. He said, well, you want it to change? You want it to, you know, you can edit if you want to. I said, no, I don't want to edit. I'm just fine. Bob Haney, terrific writer, terrific writer. And I just want, I just don't want, I want everything to happen at night instead of the daytime. Because I think Batman walking around in his long johns in the daytime without people pointing on him, at him and saying, mommy, that man's in his underwear. Mm -hmm. Probably not going to happen. So anyway. So you're the first one who's like, let's move him back into no, the No, back in the old days, it was right. Yeah. It, was, it was in this middle time. It was stupid. Batman walking down the street with Commissioner Gordon having a discussion. A woman with a dog and a kid walk by and they don't even notice. <laughs> in a costume. Look at that. Jesus. <laughs> So anyway, it happens at night. It has to happen at night. And I don't want Batman to walk through a door. He can come through a window or come through a closet or whatever, sneak up on somebody and go, boo. And that's good. But, you know, walking through a door, we don't do that. He says, that's fine. Go ahead. 
So I started doing Brave and Bold. Now I'm going to dramatize this next scene because it didn't happen exactly like this. Hmm. Okay. Several months later. So I come into DC Comics. Remember, I am dramatizing this. It didn't exactly happen this way. <laughs> I come into DC Comics and sure enough, all the lights are out. I'm looking around and I'm going down the hallways and the only lights are out are the exit signs. Those red exit signs mm-hmm. that make everything red. It's like a Photoshop, mm-hmm. you know, and you go like this. So I go like this and I see as a hairy kind of bent over creature, hair coming down under one of those exit signs. And he goes, Adams? Uh, Julie? Yes. He's got paper in his hands and he's waving it like this. What you got in your hands? I have a lot of letters from a lot of people saying the only Batman in DC Comics is in Brave and Bold. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) He says, yes. Why do you think you're the only one who knows what Batman is? I said, well, Julie, I don't think it's just me. I think it's every kid in America knows what Batman should be. The only people who don't seem to know what Batman should be is everybody here at DC Comics. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, is it like we're moving you over to the other books? Exactly. And now, do you do one book a month or do you do both books? Whatever. They throw you a Batman assignment. You're on it. They, they, there was a lot, there was a lot of talk in those days about how bad I am. I was at deadlines. Uh The same people who were giving me five covers to do a week were complaining that I wasn't getting the jobs in on time. And you were doing fine. I'll stop doing your damn covers. No, no, don't do that. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) You're doing covers and you're doing the guts of the book. That's right. So if you take a list and you read the stuff that I did at a particular time, you can't believe it. See, so when you think of what you brought to Batman, you, it's no, right off the top. You were like, I, I want to put him back in night. Exactly. Which I, had existed no, before. I took, all I did was I took Jerry Robinson. I drew it better. Really? Really? Was there. Truthfully. What, what, now, when I think of the Neil Adams Batman, it's all about the cape to me. That was where the cape first started to be. I'll tell you where that happened. This being that he that wears happened. on his back. There's uh, you know, Hammer Films? Yeah. The old Hammer Films. Uh-huh. There's a Dracula Hammer film with, um, um, who's the tall one? Christopher Lee. Thank you. Marilyn. Christopher Lee. Well done. Right? Uh, and so uh, he's on top of a parapet over the gate of his castle. Mm-hmm. And a coach rides out from the bottom of the castle, and it's a down shot, right? And so we see Dracula with his cape, right? And we see the coach go out. And there's Christopher Lee as Dracula. We see the back of him. And so he sees the coach, and he's going to now turn and walk away. Well, if you just turn and walk away, you walk into your cape. So he didn't. He turned like this, and then he turned like this, and then he walked away. So what happens is the cape puffs out, and then it follows him. And I went, oh, my God. There are people in the world who know how to walk with a cape. (laughs) That. They must, I don't know, he must, they must train those guys, guys who have capes. They must take them aside and train them. Go, no, you can't just fucking walk. Right. You have to do this. Flare of the dramatic. This. You have to do that or else you're going to run into your own cape. So there's this thing then that happens when he did that, where if you took certain stills, it'd be like, oh, magic. 
So why don't I do this? Why don't I take Batman? I know that cape sucks. Okay, it's too big. Why don't I just wait for that moment and take the picture? After that sucks. Before that, it's up. But right there, that's perfect. Why don't we take the picture there? And everybody believes that that goes on all the time. Right. Imagine when they're doing the shooting of the film. They get him to turn and to do stuff, and he doesn't have to, oh, let's do it again. You know, 20 takes, you know. Why don't you do this? Why don't you turn, like, over here and then move this way? Great. We got it. Okay. Right. For every shot. But Batman, if, you believe, if you're willing to believe it, knows how to work that cape, just like Christopher Lee. So he's on top of it. That's where that came from. It's just, to me, it's just like the artist picking that photograph that's just right and using that and let you, and let you go on and do it again. Who are the villains? The, is Ra's al Ghul yours? Was you, were you the first one? Well, this is how Ra's al Ghul happened. Um, we were doing, uh, Denny and I were doing uh, Batman. And uh, we were doing more realistic stories because Denny, and I liked it because Denny was doing, Denny was a reporter on the night beat, I mm-hmm. heard. Before he got to comics or at the Before same got, time. Mm, I guess, I guess. It's hard to make money in comics yeah, yeah, way yeah. back then. Nowadays? He was working, he was not working so for much, Charlton. Not so not bad. So much, not so much. So he's working for Charlton, I guess. Anyway, so he's drawing, he's writing um, more realistic stories, Orson Welles type stories, you know, uh, people smoking uh, flowers and smelling flowers and losing their age, Uh, wolves attacking Batman rather than uh, clowns. Uh, there had been a lot of clowns. Even when Carmine was doing it, there were quite so many clowns. They, they would show up, but uh, we decided we were going to do, do without the clowns. But then a- after a while, it became realistic to start including the clowns. So we did, a, I think, a two-face, and then we were going to start moving into the Joker. And I, and I went to Julie, and I said, Julie, the biggest problem with Batman, whatever we're going to do with Batman, is he has no Moriarty. Okay, we'll, we will agree that uh, Batman is the greatest detective on earth since Sherlock Holmes and maybe one of the greatest athletes on earth. He would win the decathlon and all these other events. But there has to be somebody equal to him, like him. There has to be a Moriarty. And so, and it can't be a clown. You know, it can't be one of these stupid, you know, you have to understand that uh, uh, Batman's characters, uh, his villains, were all based on Dick Tracy characters. That's why they're like large in life. Sponge yeah. shit like that. Two-Face. Mm. So they're all basically clowns. I mean, I one of the one of the jokes I make in uh, Batman Odyssey is I have, uh, I have dead men inside of Joker's body sitting next to Batman in the Batmobile, turning to him and saying, does it ever occur to you that you spend an awful lot, a lot of time dealing with clowns? <laughs> Batman goes, what? He says, no, I mean, really, I mean, I, I mean, there's an awful lot of, I mean, if you start running down the list, there's an awful lot of clowns. Batman says, I put a lot of guys in jail, too. Yeah, but basically, I mean, are there a lot of clowns in Metropolis? I mean, don't you, doesn't it ever occur to you that maybe somebody's like jerking your chain? Maybe they're like throwing these guys at you when something really important is happening and you're fighting with some clown with question marks on his clothes? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to take that seriously. Real. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, so um, uh, where was I? Uh, uh, he needs oh, a priority. Yeah. He needs, so Raz, so so Julie comes in one day and he points at me and he says, "Raz Al Ghul." Who says this? Julie. Julie Schwartz. So not Danny O'Neill. No. Julie Schwartz says Raz Al Ghul. Raz Al Ghul. Okay. What does that mean? I mean, it sounds Arabic. He says. Yes, it is. It means head of the demon. Cool. I like that. So what? 
that's your Moriarty. Oh, cool. What does he look like? I don't know. No, I mean, what what do you think he looks like? I have no idea. Just do that thing you do. (laughs) Just do that thing. Oh, right. We're just going to name somebody. We're going to make him a bad villain. And now I have to create what he looks like. Uh, The first thing that first thing that came to my mind was Jack Palance. Really evil looking. And mm. I could like work with that. That's a base, base model. And Denny got it quite instantly and said, you know, that's good. I can work with that. So it made, it made Denny write a character that was in line with his attitude, more realistic, mm. more understandable. You know, this kind of guy who wants to take over the world, but for the good of the world, and he'll kill some people along the way. And that's what Batman gets pissed off at. The first echo terrorist. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and so he's our Rosal, he's our uh, Moriarty. And he, and th- then one of the first stories or where they introduce him is where he figures out who Batman is by reverse engineering, by going, who this would have the, this This is money? the deficiency of not reading Batman Odyssey. You have to read for everybody. What is, explain right now for everybody, including me, what is Batman Odyssey? It's a book Batman. that you did, what, not too, re- not too long Recently. ago? Recently. Recently, yeah. It's the new, my new comeback. Uh, a lot of people on the internet didn't understand it and criticized it, really heavily criticized it. And everybody told me, don't bother with those people on the internet. Big mistake. Big mistake. Anyway, uh, it can, the idea was that it, it's a book. Mm-hmm. It's not a, uh, a series of stories. Mm-hmm. It's not hush where you hear clue, 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 clue. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a book. So when you read the first chapter, you don't understand what's going on. Well, you, you understand exactly what's happening, but you don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. When you read the second book, you don't. When you get to the 13th chapter, you kind of finally get it. Right. Then you have to go back and read it again because there are all these things along the way that you should have gotten, but you didn't because you weren't paying attention because you thought you were reading a comic book. So anyway, one of the things we go over is this. Ra's al Ghul is... If you go back and study uh, religion, mm-hmm. which I, I don't highly recommend, <laughs> but culturally and religion, there's the worst sin of all is a lie. The lie. They, they talk about it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, uh, but the lie is what the devil does. Devil never tells the truth. The evil guy never tells the truth. Good guy always tells the truth, sometimes to his detriment. The bad guy always lies. How can you tell he's a really bad guy? Because he lies. How do you know he lies? Well, you probably don't know he lies because you believed him because he lied very, very well. Right. Okay. So when you first met Ra's al Ghul, you thought he was telling the truth. Because he is Ra's al Ghul, he lied. Everything he said was a lie. And you go, well, that's really not true. <laughs> Wait a second. Ra's al Ghul with Ubu is in the Batcave facing Batman, saying that he figured out through various means who Batman was, and it turns out to be Bruce Wayne. And you go, I think it's possible for somebody really brilliant to figure out through of all the people that it could possibly be that maybe it's Bruce Wayne. In fact, there were stories done in the past where people are like that, and then they die usually, right. can figure out that it's Bruce Wayne. But in general, you're not going to figure out it's Bruce Wayne. He's covered his tracks way too well. So if you're a smart person mm-hmm. who thinks about this cyclically, you go, well, chances are, odds are, 
He didn't. That's a lie. Well, wait a second. Is there some way we can prove that that's not only a lie? It's a bald-faced lie, total lie. Okay, there is. And when you hear it, even though you've read the story, and even though you hold, you heard me say this preamble, when I tell you, you'll go, jeez, of course. Okay, let us just say that Raz al Ghul could, going through the internet or whatever he ha- has to do using assistance, can figure out that Bruce Wayne is, in fact, Batman. Mm-hmm. How the fuck would he know there's a bat cave under the Wayne mansion? Right. That is totally insane. You could believe somebody is a costume superhero, but that there's a cave under there with bats flying around? Nobody would ever figure that out. That is totally impossible. Somebody must have told him. Man bat, who accidentally stumbled on the bat cave, and who seems, as you read the story, kind of cringing and cowardly, and in fact tries to tell Batman that he told Razzle. Ah, so how's it going? Not as brilliant. That could, of course, he's not that brilliant. Can't figure that out. And if you could, you couldn't figure out was the Bat Cave. Like Bat Cave. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Superman has he got a super cave? Sorry. (laughs) A Flash got a Flash cave? I don't think so. It's was Odyssey fun for you because it was a return to like more old friends. Oh, you can't. If you read it densely, closely, there's so much stuff in there. There's hydrogen power. There's uh, a relationship between uh, Bruce Wayne and Talia when they were little, tiny kids. Mm-hmm. There's an indication of the breakup between Wayne and uh, Ra's al Ghul, who were close friends, we reveal. Mm-hmm. There's all these little things that w- have been scattered around on the floor that all I did was I took my, my human vacuum cleaner and I vacuumed them all up and I got them. Here, I'll give you one. It's really simple. Uh, Robin, how does his, how do his parents die? Uh, they were uh, on the trapeze. Uh, the wires was cut by uh, Basuko, and, uh, and down then later, they were. they were shot. Were they? Yes. How was dead man killed? Uh, shot on the trapeze. On the trapeze for a test for the League of Assassins. Oh, my God. So you tied them together? Oh, that rocks. Get out of here. So Boston Brand was killed as a prep for, or vice and versa. So Which was one was Robin's it? parents. Oh, that rocks. Doesn't it? That is right. rock. So All you got- of that stuff is in there. All of that stuff is in there. And it's all in one volume? Oh, there's 13 books. So it came out, it came out over the course of like a one year? Yeah, a little bit more because they put a big space in between the six and seven. Is it now compiled? It's all compiled. Kids, go to Amazon.com right now. I wish now. I had a copy here because I would. I'll just order it, dude. I'm ready I to order it. I would so You've screw just, you up if I had a copy here. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I'm delighted because I remember my friend Walter was just like, Neil came back into the Batman book and I just have not, I have not picked up and now Nobody I'm picking up. expects it. If I say to you, the guy who did Superman versus Muhammad Ali did a Batman Odyssey, there's a little party that has to go, wait a second. Something's going on here. Something's going on. Okay, this is what I did for Marvel since then, which nobody has paid too much attention to, except that Marvel actually promoted it on the internet, so it actually made it better. The first X-Men, before the X-Men. First time you ever meet the X-Men, what are they? They're... Uh, what's his name? Uh, the Professor Xavier in a wheelchair mm-hmm. with these costume teenagers around him. Uh-huh. Can't have started like that. 
There must have been mutants before. Who might have gone and protected them and tried to help them before Charles Xavier was even an adult? Who is old enough to have been able to do that? You tell me. Um, hold on, let me think. Well, my Marvel history. And he's a mutant. Gotta be mutant. It'll be so obvious when you hear it. God damn it. Um, hold on, hold on. Mm, X-Universe or just Marvel Universe in general? Marvel Universe. Okay. Mm, 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 who's older than fucking time? In the... God damn it. No, I know. Go, go ahead. Wolverine. Oh, <laughs> of course. Wolverine. Now, why does Wolverine keep on showing up at Xavier's school and then goes away? Because he's checking up on his work. Because he failed. And in this story, in the first book of the series. It's called X-Men? First X-Men. First X-Men. X-Men. Men. The X-Men. What he does is he gathers mutants. Does the same thing that Xavier does, only he does. He's the first one to do it. Gathers mutants and he discovers that he's a mercenary and he's not very good at this. So he goes to Charles Xavier at Cambridge, who's like 17 years old. And I'll describe the scene that I described in the original script, which kind of got adjusted by editorial. Okay. Uh, but I like my version just a little bit better. There's a knock on the door. Uh, Charles Xavier, who can walk and is not bald, but got golden hair, runs to the door. It's the planetarium at Cambridge. Okay. Opens the door. There's a guy who looks like a werewolf with a dead teenager in his hands. And he says, you have to help me they die and he says i'm going to call the police he says no no you have to help me we are mutants we have to stick together i can't do this job i'm not good at it they die you have to help me savior says first of all you look like a fucking werewolf <laughs> second of all that's a dead teenager third of all i am not a mutant or whatever the hell it is that you're calling me I'm calling the cops and turns away from him. Wolverine says, no, no, you're a mutant just like me. He turns back. He says, I'm not a mutant. I'm smart. I'm smart. Okay. I'm going to have a wife and I'm going to have kids, kids, and I'm going to have a life. And I'm not going to do whatever you're doing. Whatever that is, I'm not doing it. And he turns away to go to the phone again. Wolverine says, you are a mutant and a liar. And the last thing that will happen to you in your life is you will hear one more mutant die screaming in your head if you don't help me. Xavier turns around and says, that will not be my life. And you are, not, are a mutant and maybe a mutant, but I am not. And Wolverine says, that last thing I said, I didn't say out loud. Ah, nice, bitch. God damn it. That's good. Isn't that nice? Uh, Neil, for those of you, of course, who are uh, maybe a little younger, or perhaps don't know as much of comic book history, not only did he work at DC for a long time, but him and Roy Thomas did perhaps the, the, the reason you know about the X-Men today yes, right. has everything to do with these gentlemen. That's in a history of, God, I can listen to you all day. In the history of uh, not just the guts of you comics. You haven't asked me about X-Men. 
I know. I'm this fat man on Batman. I'm telling you. <laughs> you got to get. You got to go over to Thin Man on X Men to get That's that really going. Good story, but go ahead on Batman. The uh, the the aside from the internal, the the interiors, all the guts. You're known as cover man. You do yeah. some of the most beautiful covers in the world. Mostly my because favorite, other people don't know how to do covers. Which is what? What do you mean? Was the how? How does one know how to well, do cover? You either have iconic covers or you have storytelling covers. That's sure. sort of how the way it breaks down. There are there are other subtitles of uh, what you could do, uh, but an iconic cover is always a good selling cover, and the comic book companies love it. So you do some hero standing there bravely or standing on a rock or some local, uh, an eagle on, a, on the Chrysler building right, or something, right. some crap like that. Or you tell a story. The problem with the storytelling covers is the storytelling covers don't sell magazines. People are used to the iconic covers because it's almost like they walk in. This is the first day. This is the first time I've ever seen the Punisher. I want to buy this because I can now he's a man with a gun and I'm going to buy it. And it's sort of a decoration. Mm-hmm. When I started doing covers because of my training in illustration and other areas mm. and a lot of other areas. <laughs> anyway, um, I like the idea, always like the idea, and they always needed the idea of having a, co- uh, a, a cover that told a story. They needed a cover that told a story. So you'd have Superman sitting in a, in a uh, witness chair and a little girl with a polka dot dress would point at him and say, that man killed my dad. <laughs> right. right. And you're like, oh, I got to right. buy this you issue. I got to buy that. Exactly. So it's iconic in the small way that you have Superman sitting in a, in a witness chair, which he's like very big and kind of looks uh, oddly uncomfortable. But also it's a storytelling cover. So the idea is as much as possible to combine the two to make something that's sufficiently iconic to sell the book, but it was also uh, a storytelling enough to make you want to read the book when you buy it. That's hard to do. So what you get is comic book companies demanding of artists do an iconic cover because that's the easy answer. Mm -hmm. For me, it's not the right answer. The right answer is first you come up with the ideas, then you find a way to make them iconic. One of the reasons that I've been so successful with covers is because I solve both problems. It, with other a lot of comics that you see, you'll see it's mostly iconic and every once in a while you'll see a storytelling cover and there's 50 guys on the cover, you know, throwing rocks and crap and you can't tell what the hell's going on or who what is that a leg whatever that is. So, um it's 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 a problem solving thing. For me, that's the best thing. I love solving problems. I'm a big if I, I have I have commercial clients and other clients who say, look, I got a problem. I don't know how I do amusement park ride designs. I don't know how to f- make this work. Can you work on me with superhero rides and stuff mm-hmm. like that? And so I come up with answers that somebody else might not come up with because of all the various backgrounds. And I love that. And they love me for doing that because it's like, a, how can you do a 3D comic without doing the red and blue 3D comic? I have a way. Hot laser holograms. God, it helps to be the smartest guy in the room. It does. It? it does. It does. I love it. I love it. What uh, if in terms of, when you say iconic and storytelling, it's what I think of now that you say those two things and those two are those are the two types mm-hmm. of covers. You're able to do that with every cover. You combine the two of them. Right. It's usually not just like here's iconic, here's story. I will tell even you, if it's iconic, I even will, like the giant Joker holding the card and right. that Batman over Gotham. That's a pretty iconic yet. But tells the fucking story. Exactly. You know what's going on in the exactly. book. Exactly. But it is 
absolutely iconic. Even as I start describing it, most of the people in the audience go, I know it. I know I love so damn well. What's your favorite cover of everything you've done? Well, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good cover. I mean, that that stands the test of time. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what my favorite cover is because, because I'm just as bad as everybody. So I can do a cover that I think is a great cover and everybody goes, oh, hum. Right. Because I haven't succeeded. That Whatever that magic, the extra little magic ingredient is that I should have found, I didn't find. I did a cover for uh, DC Western, a DC Western book. And it's a, a drawing of a, a cavalry officer, I believe, behind a dead horse on the sand. Mm-hmm. Okay, And the horse is clearly dead. Now, drawing a dead horse is not easy. I can tell you one of the hardest things that you can, because the weight falls heavily on the on the sand. And he's kneeling behind it and he's shooting, presumably he was shooting at Indians that are galloping toward him uh, and, and a series of Indians. The, the Indians, as they gallop toward him, wheel in their horses and look backward at a giant spaceship landing behind them. <laughs> now, the drawing of the Indians wheeling behind, even though they're small, one of the best pieces of art I've ever done, okay? Yawn. It's a big, big yawn. Big yawn. Now, contrast that with, uh, you know, the Superman cover with, with Kryptonite Nevermore where he breaks mm-hmm. the Kryptonite chain? Yes. That is one of the worst drawings I've ever done. And that's iconic. Totally iconic. I cannot Superman avoid busting it. those chains. There are people Why do you feel it's one of the worst drawings you've ever done? Because it is. Not you don't like I think so. his face? You don't face, like- body, anatomy, it's terrible. I opened his legs so wide to put the logo in there that his legs are stretched. This is a terrible drawing. You're the it only just, one that sees that. I That's true, but that's the point that I'm making is the artist, you never ask the artist, you know, what's good or not good. It's like he does the thing and he hopes that something will happen. And then very often he's disappointed to have people look at the thing that's a piece of dreck. And, the, and, and they're they like, love this and rocks. The, and, the, and the good one, it's like, yeah, I have one over here I think is really good. Man. I have a, a similar memory um, in as much as uh, we made this first movie I made, Clerks. Uh-huh. So proud of all that dialogue. Right, people right, are right. saying all these things, all those big words. And I'm like, right on, right on. When the movie comes out and goes into the world and the theaters, video, whatever, invariably, seven out of ten people who talk to me about that movie, like, you know what my favorite scene in that movie is? When you guys are dancing in the dark. It's not a single line of fucking dialogue. Exactly, exactly. It's like anybody can do please, that, but please. that's what they love. They're like, there's something magic about them outside, blah, blah, blah. And I sit there going, all that time I spent writing dialogues, right. could have done 90 minutes of them dancing outside. Exactly, exactly. But that's why you can't ever ask the artist. True. The artist that is the worst person to ask and the last person to ask. How long did it take you to do that Superman Muhammad Ali cover? Oh, a year. Really? No, it didn't take me a year to do it. It took me a year from beginning to end. So, do you start thinking of this, who's the, involved? No, no, it's what it is. is uh, originally, Joe Kubert was doing the cover. Uh-huh. He did uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali boxing in, in exactly those poses. Mm-hmm. Then he did gangsters around it, like uh, like uh, the Norman Rockwell illustration of uh, boxing, mm-hmm. like gangsters around the ring. He basically took the idea from that, but he made it better for a comic book. So he had all these gangsters. Then uh, the Ali people didn't like the way he did likenesses. So I had to do the thing. So I I traced his layout. But then I started, I thought, well, if it's going to be a battle between between, uh, these great superheroes, 
then the most famous people in the world are going to be watching it. The president's going to be watching it and his wife and all these. Uh, Sonny people. and Cher. Yes. So why don't I do that? Why don't I start collecting photos and start putting them together? And But pastiching those things together is not so easy because you have like the backs of people's heads. Like I have. Uh, it's true. They're all watching the fight. They're watching so the fight. Not, so how do you see their faces? Yeah. It doesn't. One of the ones that is in the middle is uh, Telly Savalas. Mm-hmm. Okay. TV's Kojak. TV's Kojak. Well, what happened was that DC Comics, in their wisdom, decided to I'm get, look at it while you're talking to about get it. permission from the various people for them to be on the cover, even though they weren't photographs, they were just drawings. Right. To which I said, "Are you out of your mind? <laughs> you're. I'm trying to draw all these things, and you're going to go ask permission. What if they say no? What do I do then?" Well, I guess we have to put somebody else in there. It's not, you don't, we have to put somebody else in there. I have to put somebody else in there. I, you're crazy. You're, this, this will take forever because you have to send the letter. Somebody has to consider it. They'll call the lawyer. They'll talk to their friends. They'll answer the letter. No, I don't want to be in it. This is in, totally insane. You people are out of your mind. You're luring us to death. Kojak just said no. He said, no, I don't want, I want to be in it. I drew the back of his head, back of his head. So he's bald guy. Bald guy. So I made it Luthor, but I couldn't just make it Luthor because making it Kojak, I put a lollipop in his hand. And <laughs> I'm so looking at him. It, he's he's in the front it, row, correct? To change it to Luthor, I took the lollipop out of his hands. But anybody who knows what Kojak looks like what Telly Savalas knows that that is Telly Savalas. That is not Luthor. Would they? Luthor's did they take Jagger away too? You put Jagger in. Oh, is God, he in there? Yeah, I, I took. I took. Uh, they did. They removed him. Jagger's I, been replaced. But here they show. There's a page here that shows not just. There's the original. Was uh, oh, the, that's Joe Kubert's original, and then they show yours, and they say there's Luthor. Right. But they say Jagger's here in this corner, and then when they publish it, he became this guy, right. not Mick Jagger. Right. Exactly. Here's another one too. Go I ahead. got sick of it. This is fucking. I, I come guess, on, dude. The little boy in me who bought this fucking giant book is getting to talk to the guy that drew it, and you're like, look at this. This is a dream come true. Go. Okay. John Wayne didn't want to be in it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm like, I'm like, I had, I had drawn John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Okay. I had drawn John Wayne right next to Johnny Carson. So I put a mustache on him. Ah, that's how you got rid of him. So now if you want to know other people I hit when I finally got disgusted with it, you look for people with mustaches. So the guys with mustaches. <laughs> those are the people who didn't want to be fa- famous, famous people who didn't want to cover. Insane. Uh, subsequently, I'll tell you an interesting story about this. Wow. Year 2000. Okay, a female editor of ESPN Magazine, Mm -hmm. there it is, of ESPN Magazine calls and says, "Um, you know that, you know that uh, the cover you did for Superman vs. Muhammad Ali in the 70s? In the year 2000, I have to do a cover, I have to do a cover for ESPN Magazine, I have to do the 100 greatest athletes of the century, and I don't want to put little postage stamps all over my cover. I want you to do that cover over again, but I want you to have the two leading people, Jordan and Ali, fighting in the ring, and all the other athletes of the century, the hundred, the other 98, in the audience around them. She said, will you do that? I said, over my dead body. <laughs> I will not do it. She said, okay, what about for money? Funny thing about the word money, you know, <laughs> yeah, like now. It's, a, it's a magical word. I find it to be 
Um, incredible. It is. It's, one of the, it's a never mind abracadabra. And it turned my head. So that appeared on that issue. Unfortunately, that is not a spread because the other athletes are on the left-hand side, too. It's called, the the cover was called, ESPN put it out, it was called Thrillennium of the Millennium. And not only that, they did uh, three million copies that they sold to all their subscribers, none of which were comic book fans. Well, maybe three. I'm thinking three. So, I mean... Maybe five. So, and... and as always, you're an ambassador of the field by going into a place maybe they don't even know about it. Like, I don't read comics. Like, ooh, this is a great cover. That's right. It's Jordan and Ali. Well, not only is that, is that cover in there, but they have they feature four or five different athletes as double-page spreads inside the magazine. One of them done by Todd McFarlane, a certain hockey player that you may know. Wayne Gretzky. And uh, Michael Jordan by Kyle Baker. Um, the, uh, of all the DC care, I'm, 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 I love all comics, but naturally I, I lean a little more toward DC cause I'm mm-hmm. a, a Batman and Superman fan, mm-hmm. but of all the DC characters you've drawn and, and Christ, you've drawn a lot, who is your favorite to draw? And then I'm gonna follow it up with a Batman question. Well, because I'm a professional. Yes. Okay. Because I'm a professional, wouldn't you think that the character that I'm drawing currently would be the mo- one is that is my favorite. Is it? It has to be. It has to be as a professional. I have to enjoy that more than anything else. Otherwise, I'll be shorting the character so that I have to, that has to become my favorite character to draw. It's true. That's it's when I make films. Right? Same thing. People are like, what's your favorite yeah. movie? I'm like, the one I just one finished. I, one I just finished. Good point. Unfortunately, as I tell fans at conventions, that's a boring answer. <laughs> so for the sake of that being a boring answer, I right. made up a lie. Sweet. I'll take it's it. Important. The dramatized response. <laughs> My favorite character to draw is Batman because he's like drawing two characters, Batman and his cape. Oh, my God. That's a good answer, Perfect dude. Answer. I would totally take Total that. Total bullshit. <laughs> Sorry. Speaking of Batman, that is my follow-up question. What do you draw first when you draw Batman? Where do you start? Ears, feet, cape, eyes? Oh, wow. I don't, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a draw. I'm, I never drawn. I'm terrible. When you talked about how difficult it is to draw a dead horse, yeah. all I could remember is being in grade school, and not even be able to draw a live horse, make it look like a dog. The, so the, if, if you're a tr- pretty well trained artist, what you do is you go, you go to the different levels of what you learn at different times. For example, uh, uh, in fashion, we do sweeps, what we call a sweep. Because you want to have an arc to the body, like somebody's aggressive, aggressing on somebody else. And so you want to make a sweep that shows that aggression. Sometimes you just want to quickly do like uh, tubes and stuff so that you can get to the face because you want to make the face angry. You're always sorry when you do that because then you have to put it on shoulders and sometimes it doesn't work. So the sweep is a good idea to show distance and size and how you want to do it. And then you pick areas that you want to build, like you would stick the arm out and then you have to correct the arm and straighten it out or maybe you want to bend it more or whatever. By the time you get the, the, the blocking of the figure, then you can go to the face. So I save the face for the second thing. Uh, the, the first thing is the blocking. I have to get the position of all of that before I can go to that face. And then the face, would you consider like fine detail or? Sometimes, sometimes. It's, you know, I, I wish I could say that I do th- things the same all the time. I'm, I'm really an experimental artist. Even now, I, I experiment with everything that I do uh, because I never know what's going to show up tomorrow. So I, I try it. And if you were to stop me in the middle of a drawing, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you even where I'm at because I don't know how I approach it. I'm a- approaching it 
Okay, in acting, mm-hmm. re- related to acting, you want to say, okay, what comes first, blocking or acting? Well, you take the actors off and you act, have them act. Mm-hmm. Well, that's important, incredibly important. But then when you do your blocking, you go, oh my shit, this guy, it can't be over here. He has to be over there. So now we have to reblock. How's that going to affect the acting? So you have to move yourself back and forth between these things. I had a, I shot a commercial where, um, <laughs> I, I blocked this whole thing out. It's three women. There's a woman in the kitchen. She's doing this stuff. And then these two women are coming to visit her in the third commercial. Everything is blocked out for the first two commercials. Everything works fine. The board comes in. The two other women that come in, one is really tall and one is short. Mm-hmm. Well, in a commercial, in mm-hmm. a commercial, you can't have, all women have to be about the same size, mm-hmm. more or less. They can be a little bit different size. So then I'm realizing, oh, sh- I can't. I can't do this because this little girl is too short. Until they sit down, and they're going to go over to stools to sit down, the difference in size is going to be incredible, but I have to do the sizes. So now I have to change my camera to lower my camera to shoot up at the short girl, put her in the foreground, and have the taller girl in the background behind her change my lens a little bit so that I'm shooting past this girl and shooting to the tall girl, and the difference in size is only small. Mm-hmm. And then I do another trick for over here, and then they sit down. So you you can't know all those things. Until you're in a physical until space, you're in actually space. doing it. But then how stupid is it to then rehearse your actors, then come to physical space and find that it doesn't work, and then not go and do another rehearsal? Rehearse in the physical space because that changes everything. Now you have to do something. So... I don't find easy answers. Uh, I, for example, if you, you take that page, this is Superman. It's a boxing thing. Mm-hmm. Superman's there's, fighting Muhammad there's Ali. A cer- there's certain ways that Ali boxes, okay? Uh, he do- See where he draws back and lets uh, uh, Superman, Superman go after swing. him, mm-hmm. and then he belts him in the chops? Like a rope-a-dope kind of right. thing? Right. So if you do that with a close-up, it doesn't work. You have to do a medium long shot. In order to communicate all in that. In order to communicate the bo- what happens to the body, as it, those two bodies as they work together. You don't have to do it here, and you don't really have to do it there in the first panel. So even the size of the figures in the panel has to do with the what's going to go on in the panel. You could just do a quick, and one of the, one of the things that I do is I take a, a page of typing paper, mm-hmm. and I fold it into quarters, and I do my layout on one quarter of that paper for one page. That way, I'm not afraid to erase. Mm. If I screw it up, I can erase it. I don't care. It's just a quarter of a piece of paper. Then I tighten it up, and then I blow it up, and I have it on a light box, and I trace it off. You got a character. Go ahead. You got a character like Batman. Mm -hmm. Is there, and and this is, again, comes from a place of not drawing, but I know when I'm writing, Mm -hmm. there are some things I like doing more than others. Sure. What's your favorite part of that character to do? Like when you're, you say or you what, start in character, the Batman, a, you say you start like with the movement or the, what was it? The in fashion it's called. I the, hate the, I hate the action. I hate the action. I love the dialogue because the action I got to leave up to myself later on. What do you mean? Explain. What do you well, mean? because if, if I have action going on, I'm going, all I want to know is what gets accomplished in the action. I'm not going to draw it right. as a writer. So while I'm writing it, I write it to get past that moment and let Neil take care of it. <laughs> the other Neil. <laughs> Sorry. Too bad. That's Writer Neil fucks yeah. over artist Neil. Exactly. Uh, you see, there's this, there's this thing that happens in comics, which I really think is terrible. And the, there's, there ought to be some way to, to get past that. I don't know what it is. Uh, 
writers don't get the idea in general that that action and what happens within action is as important as dialogue. There's a poetry to it. And if they can start to understand the poetry, it's like there's a thing that, ha- that happens at Marvel which just drives me crazy. Writers will say, okay, well, now we're going to have a double-page spread and we're going to have the X-Men over here and the Avengers over here in their clash and have a good time. <laughs> Stan used to- <laughs> Stan used to say, uh, this is too magnificent to write any dialogue, Excelsior or something like that. <laughs> and, and so the, it would be up to the artist to draw that battle scene. He doesn't know what the hell he is expected. He's like, now, oh shit. Now I just have to sit here. I'm in a vacuum and I'm drawing a battle scene. Why? Why don't we just take it out? They, it, it's the most hateful part of uh, writers dealing, uh, artists dealing with writers. It's like, you just left me on my own to do this battle scene. Something you could just leave out. And you're like, oh, you're going to get paid for two pages? Excuse me? Hmm. Stupid, stupid wrong. And they do it at Marvel all the time. You see these battle scenes, you kind of go, really? Why don't you design the battle scene? Why don't you figure out what you really want to happen in this battle scene instead of, you know, they're clashing and hitting each other? There has to be some poetry in the action. One of the things about um, uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali is there is. There's that poetry there. It's a, each fight has certain significant things that happen within each scene and then the next scene relating to the next scene, then what happens, then the climax and all the rest of it. One of the things that makes it a good comic book is the unconscious present that you give to a reader that has to do with developing those things and making them work. I did a, uh, Batman downshot where I had four guys attacking Batman mm-hmm. at one particular point. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was a haunt, the house that haunted Batman. I think Len Wein wrote it or whatever. And four guys come at Batman. And because four guys are coming at him, he has to take them all out. So he uh, spins backward and with his elbow, he takes one guy out here. And while he's spinning, he does another thing and then he does another thing. He does another thing. At the end of three panels, they're all taken out. That's poetry. That's something you can just sit there as a comic book fan and go, oh, so cool. Right, right. So cool. I, could, I, like, I would like to see that on film. Do that on film. Then do it in slow motion. <laughs> Those are the things to me, because I'm such a fan underneath it all, that I want to see that stuff done so people are like, go oh, cool. That's so cool. There's a thing that happens, and I'm sure that uh, you can respond to this very easily. You put something in that you just put in because you just think it's great, but it's a little thing. And five years later, somebody comes and says, you know that weird thing you did? And they describe it and you go, God damn it. Somebody so, got it. Somebody got it. Yeah. That is so cool. That, that's so satisfying. People, oh, really? That means if you got it, a bunch of other people got it, but thank God at least you I got it. I met somebody who actually got it, but that means by process of elimination, I bet you a lot, a lot of, of people, people got it. I may not meet them all, but, but until you meet that guy, you kind of go, maybe I lost that. Yeah. Uh, you, we've talked about uh, you drawing, of course, naturally. Um, and we talked a little bit before about uh, you writing as well, but let's talk about right now in terms of Batman. How do you feel about the character? You spent so much time with the character doing so many different stories you've been written for, you've done your own writing, you've drawn him doing a, a, a number of things. You've had ideas for the character. You've brought things to the character that have since stayed and, and been incorporated from that point forward. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Alan Moore, who did the killing joke famously, was just like, I, I don't find Batman very interesting. Years later, he's just like, that book, people are still talking about that book. He's yeah. going, nothing really all that interesting about Batman. As somebody who has spent a good portion of his life working well, on the well, character, I, how do you I, feel? I, about I think it? when he talks like that, he's full of shit. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, 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 I got to imagine he's in a room going, yeah, this will piss him off. This will piss him off. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I can't I, I can't feel that way about it. Um, I do feel it's a, somebody else's character mm-hmm. first, and I have tremendous amount of respect for that. Whose do you feel it is? I, 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 in a way, I just think it's a conglomeration. Of yeah, that, there's no one. Per, you're not uh, like, oh, it's Bob. It's Bob right. Kane. Or is it Jerry Robinson? I remember, I, I think of Robin as Jerry Robinson for sure. And mm-hmm. then bouncy Jerry uh, Robin that I put in Batman Odyssey. Like I have, I have a uh, man bat in the right at the beginning of the story where Robin is examining this gun. He's examining this Colt 45 and he's examining it. Hmm, it's pretty good. <laughs> and we've just seen a story where Batman failed to use guns. And uh, Man Bat comes into the cave and he just grabs Robin and starts flipping him up into the rafters. And so they fight up in the rafters. But while they're fighting, Robin is talking to Batman and Batman is talking to Robin. And for Robin, that's great. It's like, first of all, he's hearing from his mentor and he's hearing this shit. And yet he's flying around in the top of the cave, you know, battling or jerking around with Man Bat. And they're spinning on stuff and doing all this shit. That's Jerry Robinson's Robin to me. Mm-hmm. You don't, he doesn't stand there and have a conversation. Boy, if he can be up in the rafters and, and spinning around, that's Robin. And I love that Robin. Batman, of course, is not up there. He's sitting there saying, he's telling Robin a story saying, okay, so listen, one of the reasons you don't want to have a, like a gun is because they're dangerous and there's, and there's, uh, there's lots of responsibilities. But let me just give you a test. Okay. You're the, you're the one guy in the room with a hundred guys and they all have guns. Okay, and they all don't like each other. Okay, who's going to die last? Robin says, well, I I don't know who's going to die last, but I'm going to die along the way because they all have guns and I don't. Batman says, no, really, that's not the, the case. The case is that they're going to shoot at people who have guns. They're actually, you would be the last person they would shoot. They wouldn't shoot you. They don't consider you a threat. Because they don't consider you a threat. So... Uh, Robin says, well, well, that's probably true. He says, okay, so who's going to survive? And Robin says, well, we got down to it. No, I'm not going to survive. One of those guys is going to survive. Batman says, no, that's really not the, tr- not, the, not the case. You're thinking about hiding 100%. They're thinking about avoiding and then killing the other guy. That's what's in there. They're thinking about two things. All you're thinking about is survival because you can't kill them. Mm -hmm. So you will put 100% of your energy on survival while they'll put half their energy on killing the other guy and or hiding, which then will make them vulnerable and they'll die. I like that. And they're flipping around up there. That kind of stuff. I love that stuff. It's just like, do a lot of that. I, I just don't, I, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of people who do, who do comics these days, I, it's, it's not just these days. It's, it's forever. I, I don't like to say these days because it's, it's really bullshit. Uh, they do the comic book because, oh, the editor liked the idea and they had to get it done. If it's not wonderful, that, if isn't that the best thing you've ever done, you know, it's a shame to be doing it. You should be really doing it. It's the best thing you've ever done. That's the way it should be. And that's the greatest joy that I have is to like, wow, 
and I and I've done some stupid things. Some people throw uh, stupid ideas at me, and I, I say, "Okay, fine, I'll do it." But because I think it's a stupid idea, I could okay. I'll give you an idea. I did a, a Batman zombie story, which, by the way, you should read, and it's in the black and white. A series of books. Uh-huh, they, Batman they've done two, thing. or maybe they're going a couple into volumes. Yeah, now. I think it's the third one. But I did a short eight-page story in Batman. I did a Batman zombie, but he's not a zombie. He's Batman helpless. Right. So he wanders through a scene. So the first sequence in the story, a woman is being faced by the sheriff and a lawyer, a sheriff and two deputies and a lawyer. She's being evicted from her house. Because she applied for a loan at the bank, not a loan, to refinance her house. Mm. And the bank okayed it. And they said, okay, so for the next three months, you don't have to pay these payments until you get the new papers. Then you can do that. She didn't send the check in. She has the check. But the sheriff and these lawyers are going to kick her out of her house. Mm. She didn't, no, I have the check right here. I have all the papers that explain all this. Well, you can tell it to the judge. Meanwhile, she sees this zombie walking across the horizon. It's Batman, but he's a zombie. And she calls out to him to help her, and he can't. He's a zombie. He says, no, I can't help you. Uh, just keeps on walking and walking. Because he can't. Batman could not help somebody who's being, you know, handed papers. Right. So he can't help her. So she's going, and she explains everything, the whole thing. That girl works for CGC, and it really happened to her. And we really raise money to save her house for her. It's a real story. Really? Next story. Okay. Next story. There's an armored car. All the Batman villains are robbing the armored car and beating up the guys who, you know, the guards. Batman zombie turns into Batman, beats them up, punches them out, kicks their asses, does all this stuff, gets them wrapped up. The cops come, take them away. And he sees one guy surreptitiously running away, and he's got these two bags, so he thinks maybe he's one of them. So he runs after him, chases the guy down to his car in an alley. Chicago has alleys. New York doesn't have alleys. Mm -hmm. To an alley. And he looks into the car, and there's a woman with two kids, and they're clearly living in their car. And he's saying, look, I'm going to get to my brother. I just went to get groceries. I I I had no part of that. And... Batman starts to turn into the zombie again, right? The guy says, I, I, I'm not a criminal. I didn't do anything. But, but by the way, what, what you did over that was that was really great. He says, that's why you're Batman. That's fantastic. And the zombie wanders away, okay? Suddenly he appears in the jail. And all these clowns are dancing out of their cells because they're going to go to Arkham, what we call the... Uh, spinning door of uh, of uh, criminology in Gotham City. They're going to go to Arkham, and, of course, they're going to be let free. And so the zombie Batman is standing there, and making they're making fun of him, and they all go away. And he turns, and he looks over to the side, and there's a guy in the cell, and he says, so why aren't you going with them? And the guy says, because I'm not crazy. He says, well, so what are you in here for? He said, well, I had an ounce of marijuana. And so they arrested me. So... The zombie now says, well, so they'll let you out in the morning. He says, no, no, I'm not going to be out for 10 years. And the zombie says, that, that's, no, that's, that's a manslaughter charge. The guy says, yeah, but that's my third offense. And so I'm going to be in for 10 years. Zombie says, that's, that's, that's insane. But that's the law in this state. 
don't worry about me. Worry about that guy in the back of the cell. Batman turns the zombie, turns the guy in the back of the cell. He's in for life. Why is he here for life? Because his third offense was stealing a pair of socks. And the store, the store decided to prosecute. That's a real story about a real guy. That's what those three stories are. They gave me my eight pages. That's my story. What else, what else would one expect from the guy that drew yeah. hard traveling heroes? Of course. There you go. Of course, those are real stories. Well, I think we're, I think we're in a new time. I think hard traveling heroes was good, but I think it's time for us to, you know, we're not going to have any wars anymore. And there's a lot of humanity that needs to be treated just a little bit better. And there is injustice going on and we have to do something about it. Sometimes it's subtle. I don't know how much we can use superheroes to do something about it, but I think we better. Turns out at the end of the story, it's Bruce Wayne that decides to do something about all these things by calling lawyers and getting these guys out of jail. As opposed to Batman himself. Who is pretty much useless as a song. When it comes to that kind of stuff. Exactly. I have the end of a, of a, Joe, a, a Jerry, not a Jerry Siegel, but a uh, Joe Simon story for you. Okay. Very funny. Well, it's sort of funny. Ironic. Okay. Remember the Archie story? Yes. Remember talking to Joe, to Joe Simon? Mm. A bunch of years later, we'll say it's six years later, I have now gotten the reputation of fighting for getting the return of original art, fighting for royalties, fighting for better quality, fighting. Apparently, I got quite a reputation. Scrappy. Joe Simon comes to DC Comics. Joe Simon's about yay tall. And Joe Simon is the creator of Captain America. Right. He comes to DC Comics. Very tall? Six Very feet? You tall. indicated oh. over six? Oh, he's like six, seven. So he was six, seven. Big, big guy, tall guy. Compared to Jack Kirby. Uh, <laughs> he was Joe, a little dude, right? Abbott and Costello. <laughs> anyway, so he comes to DC Comics. And every, the rumor goes around, oh, he's here. And I have my little room where I'm hiding out artists uh, with my little darkened room with my autograph and artists are hiding in the corner so that I can deal them out every once in a while to the editors who don't know how to hire people. <laughs> it was an insane time. Yes, this guy's name is Howie Chaikin. He can draw. Holy shit. This guy's name is Bernie Wrights and he can draw. Holy shit. Alan Weiss can draw. All These These were your them. your boys? Yes. All of them. Bernie Wright. Oh, keep going. Tell your story. Oh, my God. I could, uh, I Alan can. Alan Weiss, uh, uh, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman. Uh, I can do 24 uh, hours with you. No, without even breaking, breaking a sweat. Right. You are so full of information. Okay. So, so anyway, it's, but it's the only way that they could actually hire people is for me smuggling them in and hiding them out in my room. <laughs> it's unbelievable. They didn't know what to do. So they Simon hadn't hired anybody in 10 years. So anyway. Joe Simon comes to D.C. and the rumor goes around Joe Simon's coming to D.C. So he, he's going to come in and talk to some folks because he's become a legend, pretty much a legend. He's also tall to be a legend, too, so especially. He's, he's, like a, he's like a mast. You know, he sails, sailed. Anyway, he went to see uh, Carmine, went to see various people, went to see Joe Orlando. But Joe ran back to where I was and hiding my guys out and said, hey, Joe Simon wants to meet you. I said, really? Well, that's really cool. So I went down the hall and I shook hands with Joe Simon. He says, really, I really, I really would like to talk to you. I said, well, oh, go to the coffee room. They had a nice coffee room at DC with the machines with the coffee and, and nice white tables. And we sat down and he said, look, I, I, uh, you know, I've, I've heard about some of the things you've done and, uh, I have some problems. I have this Captain America thing. I, I don't know what I'm going to do about it exactly because, you know, I'm fighting it. 
and, and there's other characters, but I don't know the process. I don't understand how to get from A to B. And I said, well, okay, that's very reasonable. I can help you there. There's two, there's a graphic artist guild type of organization that's being formed and there's a lawyer that works with them and he works for free. There's another lawyer that works for free. So I'm going to give you two cards with their names and their uh, information you call them. Both will work from different angles and they'll work for free. You don't want to pay money in a case like this because you don't know how long it's going to take. That's number one. Number two, what you do is you figure out who you think owes you money for the work that you did on whatever it is. And you make out bills for what you think they owe you for whatever you did. And then there's this, now this piece of advice that I'm giving you is based on a natural phenomenon that exists in nature that nobody really quite understands, that accountants are born with glue on their fingers. <laughs> so that you understand that if you send an accountant a bill, he can't throw it away. He can try to throw it away. And his boss can tell him, throw him away. But he can't. He can't throw He can't physically throw it away. So he files it. He will never throw away a bill. So what you have to do is you have to leave a paper trail. You have to send in a bill. And then two months later, you have to send the same bill again, and the same bill again. He'll never throw it away. So what you build up is a paper trail because a judge will say to you, well, if it was so damn important to you, why didn't you send the bill? If it was so damn important to you, why didn't you write a letter? So you have to, starting this day, have to write people bills and letters saying what they owe you so that there's a record. So you make a record. And I talked to him for another half hour and made it clear various, various steps he had to take. And so it was, and he was very happy. He says, look, you know, I really appreciate this. I really didn't know where, where to go or how to do this. And I, you have no idea. This has clarified it in my head. And thanks a whole lot. And he gets up, he starts to walk away and he's walking away. And I look at him and I go, uh, Mr. Simon? He says, yeah. I said, do you know who I am? He says, yeah, you're Neil Adams, the fighter and, uh, you know, all that. I got a story to tell you, Mr. Simon. Come on, sit down for a minute. Oh, <laughs> and I told Lord, him the story. You told him the story. story. And he goes, he sits there and goes, no. <laughs> no. No. Did I say that? No. To you? No. I can't. Oh, no. <laughs> Everything comes full circle. The man is brilliant, ladies and gentlemen. And without him, you wouldn't have enjoyed the last 30 years of your life as much as you've enjoyed it if you're a big Batman fan or comic book fan in general. Um, there's a pile of uh, older stuff you can go buy, of course, but what do you want to drive them to now? Batman Odyssey? Batman Odyssey. New? You should read Batman Odyssey. I'm, I'm all over it let now. Me just, you just uh, told let me. Let me just say something about Batman Odyssey. Ba Batman Odyssey, in some ways, is the first book, comic book. I mean, people have done written graphic novels, narrative novels. People have done a combination of book where you do multiple books and you put them together. This was written as one book. This is part of the future of comics. There's certain areas that are future, future of comics. There are the collections that mm -hmm. are going to be expensive and big and wonderful, and they will just expand exponentially. Then there's going to be the other form. We have the pamphlet form, which is our regular comic books. We have our graphic novels, and we're going to have our books that are full books that have full stories, beginning to end, beginning, middle, and end. The end will be the payoff. It'll be like a Stephen King book or whatever book that you like. Mm -hmm. And it will be a book compared to 
these pamphlets, which are still books, but they're smaller. This is one of the beginning of those things. And you'll, when you read it, you'll say, oh yeah, this is a book and you have to go back and read it again. And, and the future in, of that area is fantastic. This will take our best talent, the best talent in our field. And let them tell long form stories. Long form story. Mm. Exactly. Without having to hit a, like a monthly deadline or break it up or, exactly. hey, you got to end on this page and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. What, all right. Batman Odyssey, Batman Odyssey. What was the X book you said? First X-Men. And when was that? That came out fairly That's recently? That's after Batman Odyssey. But yeah, it came out fairly recently. So they can pick up good. first X-Men as well. I think it's pretty good. Um, I, yeah, I was delighted to hear that you guys are, have a place out here and yeah. back east. So that means I can get you back into this sure. back cave. And easy. Because there's so many. Dude, one day I get I'm just, working on Superman now. Are you? What are you doing? I'm doing a Superman series, six books, called The Arrival of the Supermen, where we get a whole bunch of supermen who arrive from New Krypton. And they're really arriving so that they can actually take Superman's place so he can go back to New Krypton, which is on the other side of the sun. And save New Krypton from the incursion of Apocalypse and Darkseid. Get out of here. I use a lot of Jack Kirby stuff. Oh, my God. You're going to draw. You're, are you writing and drawing? Yeah. So is that your thing now? You're like, yeah, why bother drawing unless I can write it as well? Yeah, really, really. I mean, I wrote most of the Dead Man stories. Right. I wrote Bat, uh, Superman vs. Muhammad Ali, even though mm-hmm. a lot of people think maybe not. I plotted all the stuff I did for Marvel. Uh, the dialogue was great, but I, you need the story. Did you, uh, did on Hard Traveling Heroes, did you no. had a voice at all or no? no you just no, had no. scripts and you would go from there? I did the last two pages of um, of the second drug story. In terms of uh, writing it as well? Mm-hmm. Look at you. That it needed it. It was, a, it was a story that didn't have an end and it needed an end. So those last two pages, you pull that out and read those last two pages. That's you. Now you can, now that's what he does. He writes and he draws. I, I can't wait now. I'm, I'm lining up for the Superman story already, but as soon as we're done, man, I'm going to go see. Do they, do they do Batman Odyssey digitally? If they're not, if they don't, they're crazy. They, they probably right. did. I'm going to first like, go check, see if I can I like buy it on Comixology. So do I. And then the next thing I'll do is just call up Walter at the Secret Stash tomorrow and be like, send me out, Odyssey. Exactly. Um, now, now that I know that you're out here, you got to come back. I, there's okay. a bunch of people I can already hear in my ear in <laughs> advance going like, he must come back. You are fucking rich and fat with details. And sir. I, you uh, know so much fucking history. It's not such an easy whore. Yeah. Oh, I can. I, I, you're one of my favorite guests in the world. Cause I'm like, hi. And you just go, <laughs> you've got fucking stories galore. Um, the, go out and, and pick up the new stuff, go back and look at the old stuff. If you're unfamiliar, if you're one of those cats who's like, I, I didn't know. I just, you know, casually know Batman. I don't know the names mess with the show, Bat Fat Man on Batman's about introducing you to the people who bring you what you love or brought you what you love so much in the past. The tales of this hero, man, you find out how they get there. How these, how, how uh, a little kid uh, who ran a ring booth at the carousel in Coney Island winds up not only redefining the comic book industry, but getting uh, propers for people who birthed the comic book exactly. industry, man. Exactly. It's nice to know that uh, I could always see your work. You know what I'm saying? In terms of the visual representation of what you do, you've always obviously been a hero. Yeah. But hearing the behind the scenes, hearing all the work you put in, 
on behalf of, of what was right, what was There's fair. There's more stories. I know shit. Sure. So you're going to, that's my point. Stories. You're going to come back and tell me every fucking one of those stories, Neil Adams. It's a pleasure. Over and over again. Thank you for, for being here. Thank you for doing everything you've done. Thank you for that cover, which I love so much. Okay, kids, yesterday was the 25th anniversary of the release of Tim Burton's 1989 Batman movie, man. The Batman movie that we were all like, holy crap, he's finally dark. This is the real Batman. And the Batman movie that you watch now and go like, oh, my Lord, this is campy as it is the Adam West show. It just <laughs> it, it didn't did the darkness didn't quite hold up. Chris uh, Nolan came along and showed us a very earnest uh, humorless, uh, joyless, but wonderful, dark, real world Batman. And pretty much everyone, you know, for, looks at the 1989 Tim Burton Batman as, oh, that, that one. Yeah, that other one. Jack Nicholson was in it, right? But if you were alive at that moment in time, holy shit, man, you couldn't beat. There's been no hype for a Batman movie since that's been bigger for the hype that preceded 1989's Tim Burton uh, Batman movie. It was unheralded. It was everywhere. That bat signal was in your face at every juncture. Now it's the same way in, in, in the world. You walk around a mall, there's bat sig- symbols and signals everywhere. You know, you can't avoid uh, that bat insignia. But 1989, man, it was it was a different story. You know, it, it hadn't been since the 60s TV show Batman uh, that the Dark Knight had entered into the mainstream in, in such a tremendous fashion. And the movie did a bunch of business and whatnot. So uh, we're we're in a world 25 years later where the bat business um, outside of comics began, I would say. In earnest in 1989, that's when suddenly people are like, oh, this Batman's dark. Like, yeah, this is a cool Batman. Kids like this and adults like this Batman. And 25 years later, it's an institution and the guy that I once directed a mall rat's going to fucking play Batman. Go figure. So world is weird, kids. World's very weird. In this weird, wonderful world, I get to meet people here in the fat cave. Uh, the people that I get to talk to, who I've long admired people who've, uh, captured my imagination, who've shaped who I became because of their art, uh, because of their, uh, ardor for the character of Batman and other characters as well. Um, I've had this week's guest in the fat cave before, and it is hands down one of the most, if not the most popular episode we've ever done. Uh, it was a multi-parter and people could not get enough. Uh, when, uh, a friend, a friend of his was in the fat cave, not there long after in his intro, I said of Denny O'Neill, he'd be one of the faces on the Mount Rushmore of Batman. And as I said in the episode, the other guy up there, definitely side by side with him would be the guy who is revisiting uh, the Fat Cave and who you could all see at Meltdown Comics in Los Angeles. On Saturday. Saturday. Exactly. What time? Uh, what time are we getting there? One thirty. We're getting there one thirty, but we're staying all day. I mean, oh. this is like a really big thing. We're showing some video. Uh, I'm going to talk. I'm going to bullshit. And uh, we're just going to chatter with folks and uh, hang out the whole day. The voice you Everybody just heard, fun. that's the legendary tones of neil adams uh-huh. welcome back sir it's a pleasure to be here you uh you do you after you were on uh fat man on batman you uh, do not have to tell me what happened after i was on fat man on batman i had people <laughs> i've been going to conventions almost every weekend i had people coming up Marilyn said Marilyn is sitting over here my mm-hmm. wife said seven people in a row seven people in a row five people in a row eight people in a row i heard you on fat man on batman and like every once in a while they turn to somebody who's next to them and say right and, and it's a girl or a guy and they go yeah he keeps telling me about it i have to listen to it and it's like ma'am you know you really do have to listen to it you'll have a great deal of fun yes and you can't you know you can't 
describe it. You know, Mm-mm. we obviously had a great time. Absolutely. Uh, the show was a lot of fun. But the ones who are ape shit over it yes. are ape shit over it. They're not like, oh, calm. You know, they're kind of grabbing people. They you, put it on, They put it in their cars and they listen to it on the way the to The gospel work. of Neil is something you want to spread as soon as you hear well, it. Well, no. Yes, it is. Neil, it's, it, it, yeah. The bullshit of Neil, call exactly. it what you will. But people love hearing you talk because, A, you t- I told you right before we went again, you talk fucking real. You put it all on Front Street. You tell fantastic fucking stories. You're, you've got conviction, a that's point of view, and you're an you amazing up, talent, dude. Who's not going to listen to you? That's what happens when you grow up white trash. Is that what it that's is? What I grew up white exactly. trash as no, well. No, no. I saw your town. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was in your town. I was at that bookstore. I saw the town. I go, oh, this is so nice. That's this that's is- the town. I'll be, be credited, though. That's the town where the hospital was, where I was born, but I grew up in a town didn't look like that town. I love my town. It's very quaint highlands, but, uh, but yeah. Oh, all right. You Canarsie, got me. Coney Island. You got me there. <laughs> Black bad. leather jackets and motorcycle boots. I was trying to throw down street cred. I got none. <laughs> I grew up on the Jersey Shore. I I got I have a I have a white trash sister who mm. is she's no longer alive, but she was she represents that part of the that part of our family that is like oh yeah we that clung behind mm. we grabbed onto the lamppost and hung right. like. Oh, really? Uh, do I have to be responsible for this? I guess I do. But that's reminded me all my life of, of uh, you know, what it's like back there. And so it's a it's a yin and yang kind of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I really am part of a white trash uh, uh, growing up. I don't know who really my family is. I don't know who my dad is or my I know who my dad is. I don't know my grandfather. No mm-hmm. grandfathers on any side. Mm-hmm. So it's why is that? Why no grandfather? Because because my mom died. <laughs> my mom, uh, mom's parents died. The mother died when she was like two years old, and she went into this uh, Catholic orphanage, mm-hmm. and she stayed there for years until uh, an uncle of some sort of some denomination that she has no idea of uh, took her onto the farm. She and her brother and her brothers, and they went to like third grade, and then they left school and they worked on the farm. So pretty much whatever was there got cut off. Right. But my mom was the storyteller. Maybe she only went to third grade, but she had stories to tell. If you would like, I will tell you a story. Oh, God, hit me. Ladies okay. and gentlemen, a story from Neil Adams. Now, understand, this is not a Batman story. It's not a Superman story. And we've already talked about Superman here before the folks came on. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about Superman again in a little bit. Like, Neil's my, got exciting my, stuff to talk about. Mom, this is a, a story of the past. And, and the thing is, you, when somebody's a good storyteller, you want them to tell the same story over and over again. Yes. When you're a kid, it's just fantastic. And, they, and my mom used to giggle in the middle of it, and she'd all scrunch up into a little ball while she was giggling. I just love. <laughs> that it was just so wonderful she, she said you know when i was a little kid i had warts all over my wrist she said i warts right down my thumb and all over my wrist and i, I didn't you know i was told one day a doctor may get take them off you know but it, they were you know they were bad but it, they didn't bother me they didn't bother me they were fine and uh, and on the farm when we went to the farm you know my uncle and my aunt you know they said well don't worry about it one day we'll take care of that anyway her uncle and an aunt, an aunt would leave them alone on the farm every once in a while and they just do get into mischief, you know, they go and torture the pig, right. which is what you do with the pig because they're ornery, right? So you go torture, say them with a stick right. and then they yell at you and they hit them with a stick again. <laughs> One day, eventually that pig died and the family didn't know what the hell happened. <laughs> <laughs> Asked my mother, what happened to the pig? Did you kids bother the pig? No, no. We never, we never bothered the pig. No, no. Well, it just up and died, you know, like, I don't know if we should cut it up and eat it. You know, maybe if it, you know, something happened to it, we could cut it up and eat it, but maybe it had a disease and maybe that's why it died. Well, we didn't do anything. 
they had to let that pig be buried. <laughs> without, without, without telling, being like, look, it's our telling. fault. And we could have eaten it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> they couldn't have eaten it. They couldn't eat it. So anyway, they get into mischief, right? Mm-hmm. One day, uh, aunt and uncle go off to town and there they had a, a wagon and a buckboard, right? So they left the buckboard. What the kids would do, she and her brother would go and they'd take that buckboard out and ride around the farm. What is a buckboard? Buckboard is sort of like a wagon that you load supplies into and has a little seat. You see them in the old Western movies. Yeah, it yeah, usually yeah. has one or two horses in the front, very often one horse and four wheels. And so it, if it wasn't loaded, it was light for the horse. If you loaded it up, it was heavy for the horse and you go into town. So it was a buckboard. Anyway, I don't know why I call it a buckboard. It didn't cost a buck. <laughs> anyway, so they, they'd get into the buckboard and they'd hitch it up to the horse and they would just ride around the farm, which, which is what they weren't supposed to do. Right. Right. They're kids. They're kids. Now, her brother was the one who could hitch up that horse because he was trained by the uncle. She could ride it. She could. She held the reins and she could ride it. So she held the reins and said, okay, let's go. And so ha, and she started with that buckboard. And they she, they decided to ride, ride around the ridge of the edge of the farm, which was, they had never done before. And it had a lot of gravel on it. This is the equivalent, I guess, of like a kid getting in the car and go for right, a ride at age 13, 14. It's exactly the same thing, mm-hmm. you know. And then suddenly the horse started to pull out ahead of the buckboard. And she realized that my her brother had not put that bolt in uh, at the, at the, uh, at the, what do you, the yoke. The yoke. And it had not held on to the horse and it popped out. So and she's holding on to the reins, right? And the horse goes. And she flies off, off, of the, the buckboard. Uh, off the buckboard onto the ground, holding onto the reins. And her brother's saying, let go of the reins. Let go of the reins. She goes, he's, guys, stop him. Stop him. Let go of the reins. Let go of the reins. Let go of the reins. And the horse is headed for a tree. So finally, she lets go of the reins. And the horse just slows down and stops. And she gets up and she looks at her hand and goes, my warts are gone. <laughs> and she would curl up and giggle. And I would have her tell that story over and over again. Because it was just such a wonderful story. This magic. It's evocative. That's sort of where I got kind of that storytelling thing. You know, mm. it's like she's, she was terrific at it. It was the bug that was inside. Oh, I'm telling you. So uh, after you did Fat Man, you went and did a signing at the stash. It was insanely successful. Uh, you're doing a signing out here at Meltdown this week. Yeah, I am. I am. Uh, and, and in between doing the signing, I'm doing the Superman story. That's what now. Let's let's talk about that real quick. What, well, you know, uh, since I've come back. Yes. Well, I didn't know you were gone. I know. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, and I don't even mean that in a facetious way. Like, you've all, you're omnipresent. I Every, I've been a comic book kid forever, and there's never been a year where Neil Adams hasn't been around in some way, shape, or form. Well, you know, I don't know. if You may remember back in the day. Okay. I know you weren't really much there back in the day, but essentially, I was making things move forward very rapidly, mm-hmm. okay, by new production methods and stuff, things that nobody else knew and ways to use color and all these other things. And it got to the point where uh, I ran into this, uh, doing this kind of battle for Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And, and in the middle of that, uh, the the copyright law changed. You might know something about Mm-mm. copyright law. Well, I mean, it's what, it's something like 50 years or something? Copyright law uh, had to be rewritten by the, by the Congress. Jerry Siegel told me in the middle of fighting for him, he said, don't fight for us anymore. Go out and fight against the new copyright law because they're going to screw everybody. So Jerry Siegel... Half creator of Superman, who, as we heard about in previous episodes, Neil went to bat for it and got those guys finally uh, paid and uh, and recognized. He said to me, Neil, 
it's more important that you, as the president of the Academy of Comic Book Arts, go and fight against the work made for higher provision in the new copyright law, to which I shrugged my shoulders and said, uh, I'm busy. That was a bad mistake. Why? Big mistake. Because out there in Congress, uh, they were changing the copyright law that had been written in 1906. Mm-hmm. It was a fairly good copyright law. In fact, one of the reasons that there's a guy going to the Supreme Court right now over the Jack Kirby stuff yes. is because Jack Kirby worked mostly under the old copyright law, not the copyright law of 1976. So he's grandfathered in. That's right. So the question that the Supreme Court has to deal with is, one, is the new copyright law fair and just? Two, did he work under the old copyright law in which work made for hire does not mean the same thing? So uh, let me just tell you about work, what work made for hire means. There you go. I was just going to say, so yeah. for those of us who are defined, right, right. you have two methods of employment. You have you an employee, which, in which means basically you're the slave of the person who hires you. He runs your hours. He runs. He gives you a desk. He gives you supplies. He tells you what to do. He pays you by the hour. When you work overtime, you get time and a half. He pays your unemployment insurance. He pays your social, part of your social security. You pay the other part. And, uh, you also have disability benefits under, as an employer, uh, employee. Now, the other way is as a freelance contractor. Freelance contractors like a plumber or somebody who comes and does a job or builds your house or whatever it is or draws comic book pages or writes comic book stories. You, as a comic book writer, work from your house. You set your own hours. You don't get paid. You don't have money taken out for your for your future or to pay taxes. You have to pay quarterly. You don't get unemployment insurance. You can't collect Social Security as long as you keep on being a freelance contractor. Only people who are employees can collect Social Security. You're kind of at the back end of the stick. As a freelancer. As a freelance contractor. There's a third category that has been created by the new copyright law. It's called work made for hire or employee for hire, which means that you can be a freelance contractor, but you cannot get any of the benefits of being a freelance contractor. You are owned by the company. I understand. Why? Uh, what's the... How come? What is, is this? Is this the 1976 law? Or That's right. The- That's right. That's what the law says. The law says that you can become, if you're willing to sign a work made for hire agreement. Let me see. Do I want to get paid? Huh. If you're willing to sign a work made for hire agreement and if you are making a contribution to a larger work. Oh, let me see. Uh, yes, we like your science fiction novel. But we're doing 10 more science fiction novels this year, and we consider it a contribution to a larger work. So here's a work made for a higher agreement. Unless you have the wheels to fight against that, you get a work made for a higher agreement. There's no such thing as a work made for a higher agreement. How can you be an employee and a freelance contractor at the, at same, the same time? time. Mm-hmm. How can you have the, ben- the, the non-benefits of one and the non-benefits of another? Well... One of the ways you could do that is if, let's just say, an encyclopedia publisher comes and speaks to Congress and says, well, gee, look, I have a, uh, uh, I have a guy, I'm going to hire him to write a paragraph in my encyclopedia as an expert in that area. I don't want to have to give him a seven-page contract for one paragraph. So he should be able to be a, a freelance, he should be able to be an employee for that period of time. 
Now, you might say, well, if he is an employee for that period of time, then he deserves the privileges of being, the benefits of being an employee. No, he's a work made for hire. There is no such thing in tax law. There is no such thing in reality. It's a made up thing. But they've been doing it since 76? That's right. Since 76. I've worked at comic book companies. And you have signed work made for hire. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you don't own these characters. That's right. Well, forget you don't own these characters. You don't own that story. That's right. The artist doesn't really own the artwork. You don't own your script. You don't own anything. Because you signed a work made. And because publishers are so afraid that 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 the Supreme Court or somebody is going to strike down the work made for higher provision. They write words in contracts that say things like, in case something happens to the work made for higher provision of the copyright law, we demand these requirements of you that you have to sign. Oh, so they know. Just like, in case. Yeah, they're like, it's flimsy. One day it'll <laughs> fall. We got to cover our That's asses. That's right. They're covering their asses by writing all this other stuff. So my argument would be, then why don't you just write all that other stuff and leave the work made for higher provision out? Isn't that the right thing to do? Because it doesn't exist. Yeah. So Jerry Siegel, while I'm fighting for him and his wife and his daughter, said, you really need to focus on that. I I didn't even know what it was. I had no idea. When it finally was was established, Mm. I was finished with Jerry and Joe, and then I found out what it was all about. So I told DC and Marvel that I wasn't going to work for them anymore under the work made for higher provision of the law. That's when I stopped. What year is this? 78, 79, somewhere in that area. So the last job that I did was Superman versus Muhammad Ali. And and at this point, you are, you're it. Like who, who, who are the people you stand shoulder to shoulder with in terms of your peers? If you were to look in, in all the areas, you might not find anybody. You would find people who are recognized in certain areas like Jim Starenko. Right. Sure. Bernie Wrightson, for sure. Barry Smith, for sure. A group of guys that I would say, you have to recognize those guys. Overall, as a finished artist who made, who could make contributions, a little hard because the comic book business hasn't, hadn't really caught up to me. So I thought, well, you know what? If I go on strike against DC and Marvel, it's probably not going to count for much, but maybe in the future I'll be able to do some battles against work made for hire. I'm doing advertising. I'm doing other things. I'm supporting my family. I got kids going through college. I really need to pay for this stuff. At 50 bucks a page, kind of hard to pay for that. Superman versus Muhammad Ali, one of the hardest working jobs I've ever done. Was I was paid $50 a page for pencil. The fuck out of here. $50 a page. And were there royalties or no? Yeah, there were some. In fact, I wrote the contract because they couldn't write the contract. They didn't know how to write the contract because they had not been writing contracts before that. DC Comics and Marvel Comics didn't have contracts. What did they do? You came in. They, were they just wrote like, a statement on the back of the check that said, if you sign this check, you are everything that you do belongs to us. Stupid. 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 Unbelievably illegal and wrong. And they did that. It was the standard of the business. Did DC do it as well? I wrote, yeah, both DC and Marvel did it. They put a statement on the back of the check. So I wrote a newsletter as as part of the Academy of Comic Book Arts as 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 the vice president. And I said, guys, that statement on the back of the check means nothing. You cross it out, 
or write under protest and take it to your bank. The bank is no is not a witness to a contract. It's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. So that that statement went out there so that everybody could get it. So everybody was put on notice. So then the comic book companies had to kind of scramble to actually write contracts. It mm. took them a while because they were so used to not they didn't write contracts because they thought they would be out of business next year. They didn't think it would go on. Mm. That was going to go. Nobody saw nobody, movies. Nobody, nobody saw television. We see today the insanity of what's going on. Who could who could possibly imagine? Right. Advertising agencies. If they if you don't get a contract, you get a purchase order on the back of the purchase order. It has seventeen paragraphs on all their rights, and then they take away your rights. But you're a freelance contractor. Meaning. Meaning that you are a freelance contractor and you have certain rights unless they take them away. Right. <laughs> if they take them away and you agree, you're a freelance contractor. Right. If they make an overall statement that says work made for hire, you don't get anything and forget it. Okay. Now advertising agencies do that. Now movie companies do that. Right. TV companies do that. All these production companies do it. You're a work made for hire. You get nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Why do you think uh, uh, Europe laughs at America? Um, creatively because uh, our idea of beer and football are completely <laughs> there's a possibility but if you look at if you look at the uh, creators creators in europe mm-hmm. the people who create asterix the guy who created tintin mm-hmm. guy who created lieutenant blueberry or asterix and whatever is obelix obelix all those lucky luke all yeah. those guys are heroes of their country Paid very, very much money, and they're paid royalties wherever this stuff goes. They live in big houses. They have big cars. They're actually, they actually do incredibly well. While comic book artists were getting what fifty dollars a page, like Mobius and stuff like Mobius, that. Right. Mobius, right? Lived a rich life. And why? Why? My friend Mobius, Jean Giraud, mm-hmm. okay, and I could not talk the same language. I went to Europe, okay, for a period, a very short period of time, and I spoke to different publishers. I would go to a publisher, and would say, Neil Adams, we would do very much like to have you do a feature for us, but we cannot afford Neil Adams. It's impossible. Neil Adams. Apparently, my name is one name <laughs> in France. Neil Adams. Neil Adams, uh, we cannot uh, possibly afford it. I said, well, well, hold on a second. Maybe you can. <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk dirty. What, what, what for are you? you? What are you willing to pay? Well, oh, the best rate. Oh, I'm I'm embarrassed to say, three hundred and fifty dollars a page. Really, really? No kidding. I got a news for you, buddy. I get paid fifty bucks a page. No. Yeah. No, you are making fun of me, Neil Adams. <laughs> no, I'm not making fun of you, Neil Adams. I'm paid 50 bucks. A pay. No, you do a feature for us. And I did a couple of features for, uh, I did, uh, uh, what was the name of that uh, French superhero? Uh, Super, Dupont. Super Dupont. <laughs> Super du- I did an issue of Super Dupont, which was a uh, uh, takeoff of an American superhero. It was a French superhero who wore a beret. Had a, he had a little uh, French mustache, a big pot belly, and he wore uh, long johns and slippers. <laughs> <laughs> and you got superhero. paid a, a phenomenal oh, rate to do so. I got paid like $350 a page. Unbelievable. And in America, nothing. Nothing. So then what? How does one – you can't get rid of that. The, battle, the battle had already been won. I had already won the battle. Let me tell you. Let me give you an idea. 
what are things that I did to get the original art back? Yes. Okay. And we talked uh, about that last get royalties. time. For those cats who didn't, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody listening has heard that, but the previous episodes with Neil, but on the previous episodes, we talked about, uh, Neil was the guy who was like, Hey, can we have our artwork back? That had never happened before. Right. And then right. the royalties. And, if you don't, and oh, by the way, and if you don't pay sales tax on those, you better give them back to us pretty damn quick. Oh, so. Then it was then it was a quality in the printing. My daughter Christine mm-hmm. got the quality of the printing moved up by going to Canada and having stuff printed. Yeah, Cabo mm-hmm. So the all these things were in in the the process of happening. But at that point, I had kind of finished. You know, I had finished with Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I did uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. And if you're right. walking away from the big two, then where do you go for, to earn advertising? advertising agencies? And this is what 1970 something. Get some just to give you some reality. Let's say I do a page, comic book page, all pencil hmm. for fifty bucks. A sh- a small panel of storyboard about that big. Mm-hmm. Do about twenty a night, fifty dollars. So I could do a comic book in a night by doing a series of panels, right. storyboard panels, fifty bucks a piece. And way better than 50 bucks a page? Well, if, I, if I'm going to, it takes me a day to do a page. It right. takes me a day to do 20 or 30 Pen- storyboard panels. Ta-da. Ta-da. Unbelievable. My kids, none of my kids have uh, loans out for their college tuition. Advertising pay for it all? That's right. Where did you work at one of the, uh, all company or refreelance? Oh, I had continuity. Continuity, which you might have heard about, uh, old the old continuity where guys with smoking drugs and doing drugs and shit hung out. Old continuity on 49th Street. Uh-uh. That moved on to, oh, that's the legend of continuity. Let me tell you, just say, send me letters, guys, about old continuity. Old continuity was the only place that people could go when they came into town to deliver their pages to hang out and have a cup of coffee and bullshit. What was it like a club or a? It was it was magical. I mean, not to me, not to me. To me, it was just shit. You know, I just like I, I have to have a place to work. I had a I did a work for a um, place called IF Studios. Mm-hmm. IF Studios had a large uh, production house that they did uh, animatics and they did uh, finished commercials and ads and stuff like that. And I and I did work for a guy in between doing comic books, and they said, well, they're they're putting they're Getting a new place on the east side, they're building a new new quarters, are really fancy and nifty. And that's so this place on 49th Street, I I told them, look, I'm looking for a place to rent. I just like I just like to get a room, you know, uh, because uh, Carmen Infantino no longer wanted me to hang around DC Comics because you know too many people were listening to me. That's so good. <laughs> so I'm at I'm at uh, Lou's place, and Lou says, well, why don't you rent a space here? You take a room. I, I, I can't afford this whole big space. He said, well, it's going to take us a year to move into the new place. Start by taking a space and then, you know, move into the other space. And if you can't do it anymore, then let the landlord rent the rest of it. Well, the rest of it was like a, it was like a, a, a railroad. <laughs> it went into the building mm-hmm. and it had no windows. So the landlord couldn't rent it. So by the time I got it all, I was paying $1,200 a month for the whole thing. And so I rented space to different artists for 50 bucks a desk. Nice. So guys came in and they rented a desk. I had uh, Carl Potts. I had Larry Hammer, Ralph Fries. I had uh, uh, Mike Netzer, uh, Marshall Rogers, uh, Carrie Bates, uh, uh, Jack Abel was renting space there. A whole what crap load of guys. Why do that as opposed to just be home? Just a change of space, change of venue? 
be yeah, around other creatives? To be, to be in the city. To, there you go. Because I was doing stuff, stuff for advertising agencies. The other thing was, as I was, as we were growing the space, we got, I got more and more work, more and more advertising work. And so I had some of the comic book guys do the advertising. So you'd be work able to turn me. to be like, Hey man. Okay. And so they learned how to make money. <laughs> Learning how to make money, not so easy. Right. So I kind of trained guys to make more money. I trained guys to represent themselves. It was a lot harder even for the comic book companies to pay them the rates they did when they could turn and say, Hey, Neil, you got any extra advertising work? Mm -hmm. So suddenly it was not quite so easy for them to be pushed around. And rates started to go up. So we, we kind of put pressure on the companies through continuity, which you couldn't, well, you can't come and attack us, you know, big deal. So we're in a, on 49th Street. And so guys would come and hang out. And, and guys would, Neil, yeah, let's go and uh, let's uh, smoke a joint. No, we're not smoking a joint. <laughs> here, not smoking a joint. No, no, wait, it's getting late, man. Let's go. Come on, let's sit on the floor and have bagels. <laughs> And smoke it. You guys get the fuck out of here. I'll kill you. If you don't get out of here, I'm going to kill you. No, no, no. It's nothing. It's nothing. Just look, just take a couple of tokes. Okay. I'm the straightest guy in this room. I want, don't want to take any tokes. Ah, turn the lights out. Click. Okay. Fine. Fine. Hey, this isn't bad. <laughs> I tried a couple of times. It was really, I was like, no. Not so good, but it was it was friendly. Right, but the place became a hangout. Now I had to lay down the rules because you know guys couldn't bring in marijuana and mm -hmm. they couldn't bring in uh, coke or anything like that because you know you could get caught and it would be, it would be yeah, and you're in trouble. But it was a good place to to work out of, and so it became like a, I don't know a communist cell. In the midst of two big superpowers, right? And uh, and so so. Uh, uh, the, I would teach the guys how to represent themselves. Mm -hmm. so, okay, you, you go and, see, and you say this. This is how it works. And the, I can do this to anybody who's in the audience right now. Okay. If you're going to get work for, with somebody, this is how you comport yourself. Listen to, to me carefully. And you guys, executives, be warned. Okay. I'm telling them. Okay. You go into somebody and they want to use you. Okay. You show your portfolio and they like it. And they say, so what do you want to get paid for this? They have just made a mistake. Big, big mistake. What was their mistake? They asked you how much you wanted to be paid. What they should have done is they should have said, we only pay $600 for this. Is that okay with you? And then you'd have to say yes, because you want the job. Mm -hmm. But they made the mistake of saying, how much do you want to get paid for this? So what you do is this. You put in your mind what it is you'd like to be paid for it, not what you think really you're worth, right? So let's say you think you're worth $500. Mm -hmm. So you'd rather get $1,000, okay? But you have a pretty good idea. They're not going to pay you $1,000. So what you do is this. You say to them, the last time I did a job like this, I was paid $2,000, but I'd like to work with you, so I'm willing to adjust my rate. Smart. Now, what have you just done? Well, you put them in a position of having to bring your number down. They, they'll go, oh, well, uh, you know, we really, uh, we, the most we really only pay is, you know, uh, 1200 Now, they've already brought their number up. They've mm -hmm. doubled their number. But it's way below your number, right? 
So they say, so I, I don't know. Uh, and you'll say, no, no, I told you I want to work with you. I think this is a great job and I really do want to work with you. So I'm willing to do that. You've just done them a favor. They're going to go into the guy next door and say, hey, this guy came in. He wanted $2,000. I talked him down to 1200 Right. He did me this big favor. What have you done for yourself? Now, remember this. And this is for every one of you guys out there that are going to try to get work with some of these people. Okay. In, in the first, all the conversation and all the time it took you to make those samples and all the time it's going to take you to do that job, you might stay up all night or whatever it is and hand that job in, you've made $600. In 30 seconds or less, you made another $600 by saying the right thing at the right time. Mm. It is about comportment, isn't it? Now, I'll show you how I found that out. How? I go into an advertising agency. They want me to do an ad for a comic book. And I and I, <laughs> I show them my samples. They like the samples. They say, okay, good. We want you to do it. That would be terrific. So why don't you uh, take the layout and go ahead and do it? And uh, I, and how much do you want to be paid for it? And oh geez, I've been getting two hundred dollars a page from Johnstone and Cushing. I was getting, I got four hundred dollars. I said uh, five hundred. The guy said, <laughs> I don't think my account would make out a check for less than twelve hundred dollars. Really? <laughs> and he laughed when he said it. I was like, Oh Jesus! And I turned red. I was like, oh, What a f- idiot! <laughs> this is a stupid idiot. So, I mean, that's how you learn your lessons. This is like a lesson learned. Okay. Now I got my brain screwed back on. I get it. I get it. So never underestimate yourself if you're out there, uh, billing stuff. Make sure you, and don't let them give you the price first. Give them the price. Find a way to give them the price and then bring your price down if you have to. You're always going to get paid more. Useful. Useful damage. Exactly. So wait. Take, well, I, so I'm training my guys in continuity, in, in continuity, just in, in, in hanging out, you know, and bullshitting and stuff. You know, I, so anyway, so I heard I hear a story. This is my fun, one of my favorite stories. Harlan Ellison is at a comic book convention in I guess San Diego, and Harlan Ellison is in front of a lot of people, and I have sort of dropped out. Mm-hmm. So the fans are wondering what's going on, and so they say, "So uh, what's going to happen now that Neil Adams is like gone? What's going to happen to all the freelancers and all the rights and everything?" And Harlan Ellison waits for everything to go quiet. And he says something like, I'm sure I don't, I'm not quoting it exactly. He says, yes, but they haven't accounted for the sons of Neil Adams. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was true. I mean, all those guys, you know, nobody's, people don't put up with bullshit anymore. They, no, once they see one person get smart. Exactly. They're like, Suddenly, well, yeah, well, what about me? Exactly. No, things change. So what happened was that I sort of backed away from comics. I have, I, I, in, within that time, hmm. I did covers here and there and I did this and that here and there. Did they do and commission I stuff and, back then? Like where somebody, no, could somebody go, hey man, can not, you draw me like a killer bat? A little bit, a little bit, not too much. Right. Um, but I did, uh, I did, uh, I published as well. I published my own characters and discovered that, Ooh, this isn't bad. If you do it bad, uh, it's bad. If you do it really good. I did a thing called death watch 2000 made $3 million. Holy crap. How, when, Ooh. what year is this? Uh, uh, what was it? In the early nineties, the early nineties. Death watch 2000 was about when, when, uh, image started, came, mm-hmm. was coming up. And uh, I did this continued story, and the continued story, I 
I, I, I jumped from 1,500 co- copy sales to 150,000. No, uh, 1,000, excuse me, 1,500 copies mm. from 15,000 to 1,500 sales across the line of all my comics for three months. What happened? It was one story, and I did effects on the covers. Ah. I'm doing an effect on a cover for Blood, a collection of Blood that I'm doing. For any of you out there, I just want to let you know, I'm doing not only uh, 3D, but I'm animating the cover. How? Lent- not lenticular or something It else? is lenticular, but if I say it, then 15 other guys are going to go ahead and do it. I, I but I got it, and I know because I'm a tech head, and I understand the technology, and I know how to draw. <laughs> how to draw and that helps. tech head that always helps so i'm going to do an animated 3d thing where it, in, in lenticular lens you often see animation or you often see 3d but you don't see animation and 3d together, together. but and what is this for doable. blood 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 is a graphic novel that i've been doing with dark horse in mm-hmm. segments mm-hmm. and so we're collecting the first chapter which is a book so it's blood now, you, so you work with everybody at this point. Well, because I'm the freelancer. I'm the classic freelancer. I'm the outrider. What nobody, brought you back? Gets a, what brought me back was the the recession. What, Hard as that is to believe. The what? The recent recession or the which power, recession? The recession. The recent Bush's recession. Right. Well, those of you who love Bush, excuse me. <laughs> believe me. <laughs> Listening to the show? No, many. So anyway, uh, uh, Bush's recession. And uh, what happened was that the advertising agencies looked at us studios on the outside and said, those guys are making too much money. Because you're all freelance. Why don't we do all that stuff on the inside at the agency? And so they started to do that. That took a tremendous amount of work inside. Battling for that work became really, really hard. And at the same time, uh, Marvel was Marvel and DC were both considering doing motion comics. You know what motion comics are? <laughs> a motion comic is a comic book that you watch as a film, and it sort of moves, sort of animated. I think okay. I've seen one for The Watchmen back in the day. Oh, you saw the shittiest one done. A piece of giant piece of crap. Excuse me, guys. If you worked on The Watchmen and you're out there, I'm sorry. It's a piece of crap. They left balloons in. They had a man's voice for women's voices. It was the worst thing out there. But what you didn't see was you didn't see the X-Men, mm. which we did for Marvel. Six-parter, uh, drawn by John Cassidy, mm-hmm. which is really good, and written by Joss. Yeah, that was astonishing. Astonishing yeah. X-Men. I remember that storyline. It was okay. escaping me as well. So anyway, it was that we did it as a motion comic. And now, your, your company did it? Yeah, continuity. Why? Because we have been out there for 30 years doing uh, animatics for advertising agencies. And what's the difference? What's the difference? There is no difference. Advertising agency animatics are the best animatics in the world. And the best studios in New York City and other places do those animatics. They do them with photographs. They do them with drawings. They do them with with, uh, computer technology. It started out uh, as a video at, at video film. At, like the company I, who's, I took over their space, mm-hmm. they did animatics on film, one frame at a time. Then a couple of guys started to do them on video. Mm-hmm. A couple of guys who worked for Dimension Animation started to put them up on walls and move shit around and, and pretend that they were animated, even though they weren't animated. And then the computers, we jumped in, Continuity jumped in. We we're the first company that did it. And did animatics on computer. Blew everybody away. Mm. Blew everybody away. 
So if you get to see this X-Men book, it will blow you away. You just sit there and you're watching a movie. That's a comic book by John Cassidy and and, uh, and Joss, Whedon. Joss Whedon. So wait, what happened? Why? Well, what what happened uh, was that it proved to be mildly expensive, and comic book companies don't think in terms of of um, anything past this week. Mm-hmm. If you get to see Gifted, anybody out there that get, has seen Gifted the animatic or motion comic or animation or what? I mean, we like to call it animation now because everybody goes motion comic. What mm-hmm. the hell is that? It's a, it's watching, it's reading the comic book, but it's all moving. Guys punching each other, kicking each other, doing all kinds of stuff, talking mm-hmm. with moving mouths, moving mouths. I created moving mouths. I created moving mouths. So you can watch that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But what? why is it more popular? It isn't more popular because people, why isn't, why aren't the um, internet comic books more popular? They take about 6% of the audience. Very yeah. hard. It's something that's going to happen in the future. Mm. It's not so, things don't happen overnight. Things move forward. So that motion comic, there's they did one on Thor. It was pretty good. Mm. Marvel. That motion comic took a certain amount of money to do. In doing it, then they, the question is, how do you distribute it? How do you make money on it? You go on the internet and you get uh, you know point dot 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 five percent of a penny that you're going to get on that right and they finally sold it on a video on a videotape and we're now working with the videotape people doing blood as a motion comic because we can't wait for dc and marvel to catch up right we did the best motion comic that's out there and i'm telling you believe me if you guys go see gifted it'll blow you away and you'll be sitting there you're going I'm watching John Cassidy's drawings and I'm listening to Josh Wheaton's words and I'm watching, watching it as an animation. I'll never see that as a true uh, animation by animators because right. they adapt it. They change it. Always. Every single word is the same word. All the drawings are the same drawings. We just moved the drawings. And when they had to talk, we made the drawings talk. That's genius. And there's more technology that can do that stuff than when we did that. And we're doing it with blood. And in fact, at, uh, at on Saturday, we're going to be showing a small video of that so people can see what's going on with blood. At, yes, right at on. Meltdown. You know why they call it Meltdown? No. Because they make chocolate. The older brother makes chocolate. Meltdown. Really? He melts chocolate. He makes chocolate. They're going to have Neil Adams candy bars. Ah, that's awesome. <laughs> they got six different candy bars. Really? Neil, do you mind if we make uh, candy bars, chocolate bars of your stuff? Huh? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did I just like. So what, a couple different covers? A pe- different pieces of art. Nice pieces of art. You know, Conan type uh, drawings. If you've ever wanted to meet, eat Neil Adams, I'm this saying, is the opportunity. Saying, like, and they're going to take him at the, to San Diego, San Diego, and they're going to show him in San Diego. At the con. They're going to sell him. Nice. $10 candy bars. Thick, chunky chocolate with, you know, all kinds of stuff inside. And it's going to have my art on it. And they're, and they're, it's like, why are you guys doing this? Well, one of the owners of the of the store makes chocolate. That's awesome. Really? Yeah, that's what the origin of the business was. That's what we call it meltdown. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow, this is great. You get so, your own candy bar. You know I'm you made it in the world. T- you and Babe Ruth. Exactly. <laughs> be sitting at a table selling candy bars. Nice. Not really. <laughs> as well as the art. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. No, it's great. Uh, where were we? So Motion Comics brought you back in, back to comics. So wait, you were gone a total of, yeah, you Motion left Comics, about 78, yeah, 79. Motion Comics brought me back in uh, 78, 79. But I did, remember, Sporadic I did publishing. Yeah, I did yeah. covers and stuff. 
but it was not a ton. I was enough in that people knew who I was and didn't forget, but I wasn't really doing that. Even our own publishing, I wasn't doing full books. Mm -hmm. I was doing lots of covers. And I was coming up with creative ideas to do covers, and that made us a lot, ton of money. So anyway, now I'm back. And since I came back, I did uh, Batman Odyssey. Mm -hmm, Which we talked about last time. Which we talked about last time. And because we talked about it last time, I get to flash that double-page spread that blows everybody away at the conventions. Uh, I did uh, First X-Men, which is incredibly reminiscent of the movie that just came out. Really? The Days of Future Past one? Yeah. It's a movie about... They steal liberally, don't they, when they make those pictures? (sighs) I still, fuck, I swear to you, dude, every time I think of the words (laughs) Green Lantern, I think of your very logical story from the last time about why the fuck would they have not used Jon Stewart? Exactly. Because if you ask any child who's been watching television for the last 10 years who is the Green Lantern, they'll say Jon Stewart. There's a piece of that story that I left out. What is it? I believe I left it out. You can tell me if I left it out. Okay. I'm pretty sure I left it out. So I thought in the middle of this, everybody knows that, uh, you know, I created uh, um, a black Green Lantern. John Stewart, John Stewart, the black Green Lantern. No, wait, no, wait. So Julie Schwartz insisted that I draw the book and blah, blah, blah. And yes, I agreed to draw the book. And I said, look, I don't want to draw. I don't want a Green Lantern that is a gangbanger Mm. or an African chief. I want a college graduate. I want him to have a profession. Okay, none of this pull him off the street and suddenly reconstruct him and mm. he becomes a hero. None of that stuff. I want a real black man, American black man. So Danny O'Neill wrote the script. It was a pretty good script. Mm. I mean, he turns out to be a college graduate, architect, out of work, which in the 60s was exactly right. And his name was Lincoln Washington. No. <laughs> is that right? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> and I'm reading it. I, Might as well name him Black Black Man. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I go, Lincoln Washington. So I go to Denny. I go, Denny, Lincoln Washington. Denny goes, not me. This is not me, Julie. <laughs> I immediately is like, Julie I would it. never have written Lincoln Washington. I would never have done that. Oh, shit. Okay, so I go to Julie's office and I close the door because there's going to be some yelling, right? So I go, Julie, what? Lincoln Washington, Julie. (laughs) What? I know lots of guys with names like that. (laughs) No, Julie. No, uh, that's a slave name, Julie. Lots of guys are changing their names because that's a slave name. That's a slave name. You're going to fill this room up with letters. I'm not going to have drawn the comic book, but you are going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. It's going to, well, what the hell? What would you do? What would you, what would you name? I wouldn't name him Lincoln Washington. You already named, uh, uh, an Asian guy pie face. Now you're going to call this guy Lincoln Washington. You're out of your mind. Well, what would you call him? What would you call him? You name him. I said, just a name, just a name. Pull a name out of a hat. He says, you name him. God damn it. You name him. You name him. I said, fine. John Stewart. How would I know he'd become a late night comedian? <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> the, uh, the, yeah, man, I, th- I swear to you, I think about that the weirdest times because it is. It's the most logical thing I think I've ever heard about the comic book movie business, where it's just like, yeah, why wouldn't? It feels like now in retrospect, it's like 10 people in the world who would appreciate a Hal Jordan movie, yeah. whereas well, like the could, audience who it was made for. If you want to be authentic, you start off with Hal Jordan, and halfway through, you introduce John Stewart. Mm-hmm. Perfectly logical. 
You bring in Owen and you even bring in Green Arrow to make the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams thing. And then you bring in John Stewart. It would work perfectly. They'll probably get around to the to the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams thing. Don't I'm you thinking think? they will now that they've, you know, they're, they're getting over losing one hundred and fifty million dollars. Who? What? Now What's see, this? they lost one hundred and fifty million dollars on that movie. Who did? Warner's DC. DC uh, on what movie? Green Lantern. Green Lantern. Yeah. Oh, shit. I Green was like, Lantern. what? What do you Where? know that I No, no, no. Yeah. Green Lantern Green was. Lantern. Bad, bad. Ooh. But now in the re, like the, uh, it looks like they've mapped out, you know, fucking six know. movies. I don't, it scares me. I mean, I, 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 you know, you look at the photos, you know, that they're releasing and you kind of go, and could they have taken a worse photo of, uh, of what's his name in the Batman? Of, ba- of, of uh, Ben in the They're suit. making fun of, of it on the internet. Sad, Sad Batman. Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that they did it as like a, a gag. Well, know, they got moment. two years, so you got to figure they're yeah. like, we're not going to put out our primo yeah, stuff. We'll exactly. just put out enough. Trump That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. But it's uh, funny. Wait, so yeah. let's. So we're talking about movies. Go back to the the recent X Men movie. You went. You saw it. Do you go see every comic book? I haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. But you when saw I trailers. To, when I stuff. went to Marvel to present this idea, um, I I said, look, okay, so. The first time we see the X-Men, we see Professor X in a wheelchair. He's bald, and he's got these uh, six teenagers standing around him in funny costumes. Okay. What happened before that? In other words, there had to be mutants. There had to be, um, well, somebody to help protect them, gather them together. So who would that be? Who's old enough to protect them and to help them and to, you know, not have them crunched by the military-industrial complex that we all fear so much. Who would that be? Wolverine. Exactly, because he's the right age. Except he's a mercenary and he's dangerous, not exactly like Professor X. So at the first, at the end of the first book in this series, I have Wolverine show up on the doorstep of uh, Charles Xavier, who is like all of 17 years old at uh, Cambridge, first year at Cambridge, with a dead body of a mutant saying to him, uh, you need to help me. You're a mutant like me, and I need to help these kids because I don't know how to do it. I'm, I get them killed. Mm. To which Xavier says, first, I'm going to call the cops, and you get the hell out of here. I don't know who you are or what you're talking about, but you're obviously <laughs> demented. I am not whatever you think I am. I might be smart. But I'm not a mutant. And Wolverine says, yes, you are. And he turns away to call the cops. And Wolverine says, yes, you are. You are a mutant. And the last thing that's going to happen to you on the very day you die is you're going to hear one more mutant screaming. And he turns around and he says, I am not a mutant. I don't know what you are. You look like a goddamn werewolf to me. And Wolverine says, that last thing I said, I didn't say it out loud. Ah, nice. Nice. So that's the first book. That's the end of the first book. So basically, we go through Wolverine trying to take care of these kids and then Charles Xavier um, uh, stepping up finally. And what is it called? I don't know. It's called, I think, Marvel Comics New Movie. <laughs> uh, wait, this, so this wasn't the X-Men book that you did? This was that's something you book. pitched? That's the book I did. That's the book I did. What first is, X-Men. First X-Men. Yes. And the movie was? I don't know what it's called. First Class, X-Men First, first Class or whatever. X-Men First Class. And they don't have to give no, you a tip they, of the hat or anything no, like that. No, no. It's funny how that happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> funny meaning don't. unfair. 
Um, let's talk about the, uh, uh, we were talking about Marvel. Let's go back to DC, man. You're working, you, before we started, Neil whipped out some pages, some pencils, some gorgeous pages. This is a Superman book? It's, it's a Superman story. Okay. And it's, um, it's a Superman Jack Kirby New God story. Um, I'm going to try to be the first guy not to screw up New Gods. <laughs> I don't know if I'll make it, but, um, uh, there's a lot of scraps that's been left around. Nobody seems to have settled on what's going on. Mm-hmm. And they had this, they've had this in, in the science fiction and the uh, media. They have this thing called Nibiru, which is a planet out there that's on the other side of the sun from Earth. I've never heard of this. Yeah. Okay. This is where in, if you, in if you DC the, comics or just no, in general? It's just in general. If okay. you read the geek science crap. Okay. You know, like uh, hollow Earth and shit like that. Uh, so there's this place called Nibiru, right? And so it's this planet on the other side. That's why we can't see it. See? Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's hiding. Uh, so anyway, I'm thinking, you know, if Superman is going to settle the new Kryptonians from mm-hmm. the bottled city of Kandor, which apparently they decided to break one day on a cover um, or inside, whatever, that was, one of the dumbest stories I ever read in my life. <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. A city full of people. <laughs> really? No kidding. There's the deficiency of putting them in a bottle. <laughs> so we come on and smash it. So anyway, why don't I put them on Nibiru? That would be good. So new Kandor. Okay. Nice. But what happens if uh, Darkseid in the in trying to find a place to begin apocalypse, the new apocalypse, lands on the same planet? And the new Kryptonians put up a force field. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then you have the planet is not quite cut in half, cut into thirds, perhaps. And so you have the new Kryptonians and you have Apocalypse. But Apocalypse and Darkseid is not going to be happy with that. They're going to go and tunnel into, you know, new Krypton. New Krypton's going to, they've got Superman, right? Maybe not quite as powerful as Superman because they're affected by the uh, the red sun moat that was affecting him in the bottled city. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're not quite as powerful as Superman. But they, they're more powerful than the Apocalyptians, right? But the Apocalyptians are mad dog killers. Right. So they kind of compensate for not being super. Right? And then they have the boom tube. So they can invade any period of time. So then the new Kryptonians have to defend against it. And sort of they're kind of helpless. So why don't they try to get some help from, let's say, somebody like, say, Superman on Earth? Why don't we send three Supermen to Earth to take over the chores of Superman? And let Superman go and fix this apocalypse thing. Nice. So that's sort of the basis of the story. So Superman gets replaced by three. By three other Supermen. We're not quite as powerful. Now, what's happening is that Darkseid is making a deal with Luthor. I don't want to tell too much about the deal because it is in the story. But Luthor has learned certain things about Superman, like the Red Sun concept. And Mm. he might be able to manufacture a red sun moat that he could plant in the sun. And so Darkseid would like that. So maybe a deal is going to be made between these two guys to get rid of Superman permanently. Nice. Ba-ba-ba-boom. Nice. So anyway, so we got six chapters. What's it called? It's called, it, ba- I, don't, I don't have my finished uh, title, but it's basically the, you know, the arrival of the Superman. We're going to have. Superman. I don't think it feels a little weak to me. I think it's going to be a little bit stronger than that. 
How many? So wait, six issues. So anyway, so what I've done? How many is, pages? Twenty each. Uh, twenty-two each. Twenty-two each. That's the standard. It used to be, now. and then DC lowered to twenty for some. That's weird. No explaining. Money. It's all about money. It's all about Same money. money. Stupid. Can't run ads. Yeah. So anyway, so since I've come back, I've done Batman Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I've done first X-Men. Mm-hmm. And now I'm doing Superman. I don't know where I could go from there exactly. Well, in today's world, I mean, look, Avengers are now big time in play. Captain America, yeah. after that second movie. They're is, doing a good job on Avengers, though, don't you think? I think The they, comic they, itself? Everything in general. The comic is good. How could they not at this are... point? They got the world's eye on you. You better be putting forward the best Avengers possible. But they're doing it. That's the thing that's so wonderful is that they're doing. Whereas DC, maybe not quite so much. Right. You know, we're waiting for the very first good Superman movie. Very good. Did you not? You movie. weren't. You weren't in the into the Man of Steel one. Uh, Man of Steel. Let me see. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know of a dog that gets out of the car last? <laughs> I, I've never met such a dog. I, you know, I'm sure that there is one in existence, but that dog is out of that car like that, like right. a flash. Right. And uh, and if you don't like your father, no matter how bad he is, nobody can't can't be bad enough. Wouldn't you? Do something to rescue him, no matter what he said. Of yeah. course you would. That was stupid. That was a tough scene to kind of. It was yeah. a, a, emotional in the moment because you're like, oh man, he's making the sacrifice. But then after a sudden, you're like, wait a second, wait, your kid's Superman. Right. He could have got you and been back before right. the first Nothing. tear fell. Right. In a Freddie Fender kind of way. Left the sweat in the air. <laughs> yeah. Out of it. Truly. And then at the end, uh, what did he do? Uh, he killed the guy. Can't put his hand over his eyes. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> You know, put your hand over his eyes. That would stop it pretty much. You got and even one, if he burned him, that'd be a cool thing because he'd be like, ah, and Superman took right. it. You know, one arm, well, but he couldn't. You know, one arm is around the throat. Put the other eye in front of his hand in front of his eyes. That's pretty much it. Take him <laughs> off to the moon or Saudi Arabia or someplace and finish the battle there. That actually would have been visually interesting too to like sure. cover his hands with his eyes, take him well, straight up into the other atmosphere and bury him on the moon. That they did too. Is it almost like there's like a, I don't know, a rivet in the back of uh, uh, what's his name's head? That makes his eyes not move like our eyes can move. Like there are people over there. All I have to do is go like that, and I'm they're dead. Oh, Zod's, yeah. Why is why are his eyes traveling the movement of his head? He had no ocular motion. He could only move his head. Exactly. He was like 1989. Let his head move, then he'll cut some more wall. (laughs) Those guys. Oh, there's people over there. Oh, I just looked at them. Sorry, they're dead. Dude, you had me with covering his eyes with his hand. I right like that. (laughs) But why were they fighting in Metropolis? I don't understand. They, even the even the uh, the Kelvinator movies the uh, the I'm sorry I was just joking uh, those the, the robot movies uh, Transformers Transformer the Kelvinator movies they went to they went to Saudi Arabia to fight you know they're knocking down the Sphinx and stuff but mm-hmm. they're not so many people they're you know they're they're in the they're middle of nowhere in exactly the middle of nowhere they could have gone on the moon. But as soon as, you know, uh, Superman hits a building, it's going to fall down. Aren't, didn't we lose 500 people there? Yes. It feels weird. And, and also like Superman, like I think of, uh, Chris Reeve Superman battling the Kryptonian supervillains. Right. And, you know, he was like, think of the people and yeah. trying to rescue people and stuff. And exactly. this was well, more they hit about signs. There were a lot of <laughs> yes, signs. They would coke signs. Burning of stuff, you know. Yeah, it was, uh, that was one of those things that, uh, I, you know, for me, I'm like, all right, they're off to the races. They're reinventing their universe and stuff. But that one was tough for me as well. That's tough. But you're, especially the let's fight in the middle of 
Metropolis. Metropolis. Now, you know, there enough had happened in Metropolis right. where that last fight could have went to but the cornfields. You, you almost think or the you, moon. Why not the moon? The man? moon would be a great place to fight. But Beat you the shit of, out of the moon. He could punch him through. Right. He could crack the fucking he moon in little half. Little things, you know. Yes, the, on the moon. Oh, that's where they fought. <laughs> yes, but right. I guess it's all integral to their next plot. Like the I, word is that I don't Lex so. is very like. We we can't trust this Superman because look what he did to our city. And and it's true. Yeah. Pretty much. You know, <laughs> yeah, really. You're like, I'm with Lex for the first time ever. We're marshmallows and he's, you know, iron and steel. Right. It's a not. It's and the, and the movie they did before. You would think they'd be super sensitive with this movie and not make those kinds of stupid mistakes. Mm. Because the previous movie had more kryptonite than you could ever have and still Superman was alive. <laughs> That's right, a whole island You had a whole island of kryptonite. <laughs> and then you had him go away for, I don't know, they said, I think it was six or seven five years. years but five he, years, They yeah. said five years, but he comes back and the kid's, I don't know, 12 years old. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So he's got I a bastard that. son. <laughs> I mean, that does, and she change. also did not remember having sex with him, which right. also raises a lot of questions that for me. Changes the plot a whole lot. I don't understand where yeah. that came from. So you would think after that movie, the they would be very careful about what they wrote, so that you would go, oh, thank goodness, I, I'm I'm fine with this now." But uh, but no, it just made everybody more nervous. The chest While Marvel is doing all these great uh, movies, like fucking above and beyond, like they they even their mistakes. Are, are glorious successes and because they don't have any fucking mistakes. I, I don't know what they're doing over there, what's in the water, but like all those movies realize, are enjoyable. Do you realize what a burden Marvel has compared to DC Comics relative to the movies they're making? Explain. DC Comics owns all of their characters, all their 52 or whatever the hell the number is. They have their main characters and they have their sub characters and other characters. They own them. Marvel doesn't have anything. What do you mean? You think? I mean, they. I re even remember the ads that Marvel used to have. They'd say, "We have one thousand two characters." No, you don't. You have the Avengers. You don't have X Men. You don't have the Fantastic Four. You don't have Spider Man. Yeah. You don't have anything. You don't ha have have. Uh, you only have the Avengers. Yeah. Well, that's why they're making the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. That. Was not a good comic book. No. Well, I love the people who worked on it, but really, you're kind of going in a trash heap to make that comic book. And I admire that, that they're doing They're that. digging deep. They're, they're like, digging we're deep. In, we don't have a, a bona fide right. uh, license, but and, we'll take a garbage license and turn it into gold. Which is way more than DC is doing. That's right. And they're doing a great job of it. I mean, you, there's nothing about that thing that you see. You go, you know what? I want to see that movie. I know. Trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy. Movie. You sit there going like, when you first heard about the movie, you cringe going, why the fuck? Would, why of all the things. Okay. And then you're like, oh, my God. But, well that's, but that's all they had. They just have the Avengers. Necessity and being the, the mother of the, the And the various characters in the Avengers. Mm. So they're trying to work up, break up, uh, break out other of their licenses so they can go ahead and do them. And they've got Disney to help them. So that's really good in a way. They've you know, got strong lawyers and right. maybe they'll be able to recapture some of it. But really, they don't have Iron Man. They don't, they don't have their characters. And it's not for a bad reason. It's the reason is. That Stan Lee, who is in some ways a hero of our business, went out and sold licenses to these people at a time when nobody was buying licenses. Right. Unfortunately, the terms of the licenses were terrible. And for Marvel, even worse, because now that we're into all this superhero stuff, the, all those licenses are sold. Right. 
And all they have left are the Avengers and whatever they build from there. And now explain for those who maybe don't pay as much attention, but they can't get them back because the terms of these contracts dictate that if a studio wants to make another Spider-Man movie, that immediately re-triggers the deal. That's right. So they can keep it out of Marvel's and Disney's hands forever. There's a German company named Constantine. Mm. Constantine had the rights, bought the rights to Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They had them for 10 years. Okay. The terms of the contract, (laughs) the terms of the contract were if before 10, I don't know exactly the terms, so don't, don't, Mm -hmm. don't excuse me of being a lawyer in any way. I'm just saying the general knowledge. Okay. Is that if they made a movie before the end of the 10 years or whatever that amount of time was that cost at least a million dollars and was Mm -hmm. distributed nationally, then they get to keep the license to do it. And so they did. They hired Roger Corman. I remember that movie. Who got a director, I forget who it was, to make a movie for a million dollars. It was distributed in enough states to qualify as national distribution. And my understanding was that Marvel gave him $2 million to take the movie off. (laughs) (laughs) But that sealed the deal so that so that Constantine doesn't have to make the movie. They can get partners mm-hmm. and make the movie with them and they can profit by it for as long as I, I understand it for as long as they want. I know I spoke to uh, to the folks from Constantine. I don't think I'm revealing anything, any big deal, because it was mostly in casual conversation around some, you know, these hotels they have in Hollywood mm-hmm. with the beaches and you yes. sit around <laughs> and you drink these tall drinks and they have these bull- bullshit conversations. And a guy who who was uh, who represented the people who owned uh, owned uh, the Fantastic Four said, "Well, what do you think we should be doing with the Fantastic Four? I said, "Well, you should be making a movie, and there is only one movie to make because Fantastic Four doesn't have a lot of movies in it. You have to kind of make them up, but it does have one movie, and that's the Silver Surfer and Galactus. Hmm. You should make the Silver Surfer and Galactus." They said, "Well." Well, what we've done is we've worked it out so that we've separated the Silver Surfer from uh, the Fantastic Four so that we basically now have, because of how our cleverness, have have made two licenses. I said, then you just screwed yourself. Right. You're out of your mind. The one Fantastic Four movie that needs to be made is Silver Surfer and Galactus with the Fantastic Four. I don't know any other Fantastic Four story that comes anywhere near it. Mm. That is the one you could build off of that, but that's the one. So you guys have really just screwed yourself. Oh, you think so? (laughs) No, I don't think so. You just asked me. I'm a comic book creator. You have just screwed yourself. Screwed the pooch. Why did you do that? Oh, I don't think it's that serious. Yes, it is. Yeah. You don't understand. It would be like going like, well, we sold Luke Skywalker and Han Solo over here and Darth right, Vader's exactly. over there. What? what are you people are crazy. So they tried to bring it back together and then they did the worst of all possible things. They turned the Galactus, Galactus into cloud. a puff of smoke. Yeah. <laughs> what? That was what at a time, is- though, oh. where people were like. Well, the suits can kind of look like they do in the comics, but not too much. Like, you can't go too close. That's the, how the X-Men wound up looking like Matrix characters and how fucking Galactus turned into a cloud because somebody was like, who's going to buy that big goofy suit? I'll tell you who'd buy it. Everybody on In Earth. America Everybody and, and fucking Earth. across the world That's because they're right. like, in I Africa. can't believe they did that big burr purple fucking exactly. suit that I've seen since my exactly. childhood and Wait, made it work. We're waiting for it. 
But that's but they'll get to it now. Like they're rebooting their Fantastic Four hope so. universe, and, hope so. and hopefully they'll Maybe learn. Maybe they'll from actually get a tall person to be the thing. <laughs> Just winking over here. Um, but you're right, man. I mean, Marvel is Marvel's digging in their garbage and coming up with because viable movies because it's all they have. Right. Even Blade, yeah, a sub character in a sub book. Has, is, has made movies. And I now we're waiting for, I, I, what's I, his name, to do another one. I give credit to Blade as the rebirth of the comic book film because Batman and Robin sure. killed it and it was dead after the Batman and Robin movie for about a year or two years. And then it wasn't until Blade came back. <laughs> and everybody went, like, Blade? Is yeah, who's that? Marvel character? Yeah. Yeah, he's no one quarter of a team of people that kill vampires. And then they had what? Sony went to Spider Man after that, and then the X Men was after that, and then suddenly we were off and running. Exactly. No, and and we are now taking over the world. It's we are huge. truly, truly taking over the world. It's um, unbelievable. It's it's how nice for you though, in terms of like you got to go to comics, make your mark, and 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 make your mark at a relatively young age, and make a mark so fucking big that it stands today. Yeah. Wow. Then you got to go and have like a whole different career. Um, build a company of your own. Yeah. Experience a bunch of different other shit. And then you can come back and there go. There are people like, who think it was a plan. No. Was it? <laughs> no. It just happened as it happened. I like, it's not the, here, Some to me, it's the, the brilliance of Kiss, right? Where Kiss is like, you know, we're the guys who rock with makeup on. And then one day they were like, we're taking the makeup off. And most people were like, well, that's it. Once you take the makeup off, who yeah. gives a fuck? But then what nobody realizes is like, ah. Once you take the makeup off, you can put the makeup back, back on. on. And that's, yeah, that's the right. return and exactly. stuff. So that's, so you coming back to Marvel and DC and working on full stories as opposed to just covers and stuff like that. That's the equivalent of putting the makeup back on, dude. It's an, and, and what I'm trying to do. And to me, the, to me, this is very important because I do travel around and I do talk to comic book stores and I do talk at uh, conventions and, and speak to people because I, Personally, I believe that we have a community. I believe that it's a, it's a community and I don't like any friction between, I don't like friction between DC and Marvel. I don't like friction between stores and conventions and any of that stuff. My feeling is that the next step is novels. Explain. Graphic novels? Just like no. instead of doing. A graphic novels, no. A novels in comic book form, which is, you could call it a graphic novel, but it's not exactly, but it is. Okay. In other words, write a novel. Uh huh. Okay. A really good, significant, good, good, powerful novel, Stephen King novel or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and then do it as an illustrated, in illustrated form, not second, but first. That's what Batman Odyssey is. That's what, that's what uh, the X-Men tried to be, and that's what this is going to be. This is a little short form, a little mm -hmm. bit of a short form, but Superman versus Muhammad Ali was a short form as well. And the idea of it is that you don't, you're, you're kicking, you're kicking the crap out of, uh, uh books and bookstores. Mm. Okay. And, uh, and what's left? You have the internet, but wait a second. You have novels. So what's happening is the bookstores are saying, Hey, we can carry comic books, but we can't carry comic books. We can carry comic book novels mm. because price point wise, it has to, when the cash register rings, it has to be a certain amount of money. Is that right? So oh. like anything under two ninety nine is too little. Anything under fifty. Really? Anything under $19 is no good. Wow. So that's you, why they won't fucking sell comic that's books? That's right. Of course. I always thought it was just like, well, graphic that's novels are easy reasons, to write. That's one of the reasons comic books went out, nearly went out of business. Why? Let me tell you a story. <laughs> Please. <laughs> that's why you're here. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story. Do it. Okay. 
Back in the day when I was, I don't, I'm relating it to myself only because I'm aware of it, okay? Uh, comic books really early on before uh, the Congress had attacked comic books and the, Frederick Wortham wrote the book, comic books sold for 10 cents and all kids across America bought comic books. They bought millions of copies for 10 cents and they couldn't afford it because kids couldn't spend that much money. So what they did was all the kids in the neighborhood would buy one comic book and then they trade comic books. So mm -hmm. it was called trading comic books. Trading comic books was the big thing in America. So you get to read all the comic books because you traded and some asshole wouldn't let trade unless you gave him two comic books because he got this best <laughs> jerkwad. So you would trade and you know, make a sacrifice just so you could get to read the comic book and you curse yourself for not buying that one instead of the other one. But all of that was going on and that was part of what America was. I went to Germany. Okay. I told you about going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the when I got back, things had changed. Uh, Frederick Wortham had showed up. Congress had showed up. This uh, Congress had turned the page on uh, communists to find the next thing that started with C, you know, legislation by dictionary, <laughs> and decided that comic books were bad for America. But they decided on television. They decided on television, just like they attacked communists on television. They were in their glory. So you like to watch uh, hearings uh -huh. on, on television? No, you don't. No, you don't of course like not. It, unless it's very slimy, like a, a like a Supreme Court judge who has made moves on a girl, you know, stuff like that. Right. You watch that. You watch that. And you watch commies being attacked. And you watch comic books being attacked. And all America watched comic books being attacked. And comic books went down the shitter. And so now they were, and they wrote a comics code. The comics code said, said uh, all this, uh, you know, you can't say, use the word crime uh, on the cover of a comic book. Uh, you can't have somebody stab or shoot somebody. You can't do this. You can't, can't say you zombie. You can't imply, oh, that's nothing. You can't imply that a person in a federal, state, or municipal government could do any corrupt act. So you couldn't be like, this DA, uh, a bad right. DA. <laughs> so they did comic books like Mr. District Attorney. My Greatest Adventure, Sugar and Spike, one of my favorite comic books, by the way. And, uh, oh, Pat Boone Comics, one of my fave raves, okay? So while that was going on, okay, the comic book companies, because they were suffering tremendous losses, and many of them went out of business. Fawcett went out of business. All these other ones went out of business. They didn't like the idea of getting comic book returns because as things got bad, comic books would be returned, they'd have to receive them, they'd have to give credit for them, they'd have to destroy them. So why don't they come up with a plan that's not quite so punitive for the publisher? Why don't we do this? Why don't we strip the title off the comic book, wrap the titles in rubber bands and send them to the publisher instead of sending whole copies? That's the way to do it, right? Send them, okay. Playboy magazines, whatever you want. We used to do that at uh, Quick Stop and at the Krausers. Instead of sending back the whole magazine, the right. cover gets torn up. That's right. Now, of course, we can depend on now on the honesty of <laughs> yeah, that's, um, our that's local where it's distributors faulty. <laughs> to make sure that those comic books, the remainders, got destroyed. Right. Now, of course, I'm going to junior high. I'm going to I'm going to junior high, and I can stop off at my local toy store. This is before Toys R Us. Local toy stores that sold birthday gifts, cards, and other shit. Mm -hmm. Right in the beginning, right at, right in the front, they would have comic books. They would have comic books for three and four cents with the titles stripped off. They just sold them without the fucking titles. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So now we have discovered 
some of us, that all uh, 410 distributors across the country are honest, straightforward people <laughs> who would never sell those stripped off covers to people for to sell for three and four cents. Right. It was a wonderful plan. Well, wait a second. Could we make that plan any better? Knowing that these 410 distributors, local distributors across the country are straightforward and honest men, here's another idea. We don't really want to get those stripped off titles. Why don't we do this? Why don't we have those guys sign affidavits that they destroyed the comics? <laughs> and then we'll just get the affidavits so we don't have to strip off any titles. We don't have to receive the rubber bands wrapped around titles. We'll just believe them <laughs> when they write an affidavit to say they destroyed the comic books. And they almost destroyed the comic book business. <laughs> almost. Excuse me. So now you have teenagers, smart kids with their dad's station wagons, who would drive to the local distributor, pull up around the back, go up the stairs, and there'd be a table. Playboy magazines, comic books, whatever you want to get. And they would buy them for seven cents. And they would take them to a motel or a garage or their house. And they tell all the kids in their area they, they were selling comic books, but they would charge two bucks for the good ones. Wow, this is the birth of the of of the the direct sales. Yeah, market. the direct sales market. That's right. That's where the direct sales market came from. They would go, and they wouldn't buy. You know, uh, one of the things that the publishers would tell me, they'd say, "You know, Neil, I don't understand it. You know, you're dead man. Uh, everybody likes it, but nobody seems to be buying. It hasn't got good sales." Or Green Lantern, Green Arrow, everybody in the world seems to love it, but, uh, gee, the sales aren't that good. But when you do Superman uh, Lois Lane, it jumps up 10% in sales. I wonder why that is. Because nobody cared about Superman Lois Lane. Because they had a Neil Adams cover. They cared if I drew the book. Hmm. They cared if Bernie Wrightson drew the book or Jim Steranko drew the book. So they were starting to fall in love with the talent. That's right. And so when these kids would go to those places, they would buy the ones that they could sell for two bucks and five bucks, not the stuff they could sell for 15 cents. So suddenly those books couldn't get distributed. Kids in their local area couldn't buy, can't get uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. It's, because they were gone already. Because they were gone already. They were bought by all these kids across America. Who were scooping them up and selling them at premiums. Wall books, essentially. 410 distributors. All doing the same thing. All doing the same thing. Selling the books out of a table that if you went to a distributor's shop, even now, they would take you to that table in the back and you could buy books. Really? Now. Uh, like, now. Right now. And right that now. that is, but that was Tables represented right the birth of the direct market and well, what they happened was, still compete what against happened, themselves. What happened was that guys like Phil Suling went to Sal Harrison and said, I'll buy comic books from you and I'll have, I'll give you no returns. Anyone I buy, I keep. No problem. No returns. Really? Why would you do that? Well, because we think we know our market. How do we know our market? So that began mm -hmm. the, this network of people who would buy from, you'd get Phil Suling and certain people across the country and they would sub distribute to these kids. Those kids 
became the owners of those comic book stores. The first comic book stores, direct market only. That's right. Wow. Those guys with the, uh, you know, with the little gray ponytails now with leather skin, you know. Chuck, goes around. Like Chuck uh, <laughs> over in Denver, <laughs> guys, in Mile High. Those guys, all those guys, those were those kids. Really? All walking around feeling tremendously guilty, but that was the beginning of their business. Why were they feeling guilty? Because they had all the good books? They, were, they knew what they were doing. They but I mean, but doing. it seems like a kind of backdoor business that turned into the primary industry. Like it did. If you look at my daughter, who, uh, Christine, who, uh, publisher, listen, to this, yeah. listen to this story. My daughter, Christine, in the midst of all of this, she, we were selling some books to newsstand market and, um, and, uh, she's at the, uh, she's at a convention, New York convention. And we did a glow in the dark cover. Mm. Right. But we did the glow-in-the-dark cover for the direct sales market, but not for the newsstand market, right? So she's at this convention, and some uh, local comic book store comes to her and says, I got some complaints from some of my customers, Chris. They said that the you know, cover is not glow-in-the-dark. And she said, you really? Then it's not glow-in-the-dark? It's amazing. Um, uh, and, and you got it from the dir- your, your direct sales um, uh, from Diamond, right? Yeah. I said, well, it's, it's funny. We, we sent the ones that didn't glow in the dark to the newsstand and we sent the ones that glowed in the dark to Diamond. The only way you could get those is by, by going to a local distributor. Oh, good Lord. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, let me go. Let me check into this. <laughs> <laughs> so even after it was happening, what was happening is the store, the comic book stores would sell out of the books and they would go to the Local distributor, national distributor, and buy extra copies from him. So without, so then a, a company was never going into second, third printings because they were getting them getting behind their back. That's right. That's right. And at what That's point did we have our industry? I was going to say, at what point did somebody was like, let's regulate it and make it a business? <laughs> well, but but our industry began by being very clever teenagers who went and bought the stuff. And the, and the publishers, I mean, I, I talk about the publishers all the time being stupid. Okay. And I apologize <laughs> to a certain extent, but really they were stupid. Mm-hmm. Really, you can't be that stupid, not knowing that this is going on, not doing anything about it. Why didn't you take returns? Yeah. If you took returns, you would stop it immediately. So they almost killed their business, but almost then killed their business because the of the kids. Saved it. How fucking charming is that? Isn't that wonderful? That's a movie in and of itself I'm right there. You, the history the, of fucking comics. Exactly. Um, and you've seen it. Yes. You got to, do you remember walking into your first like direct market comics only store? Yeah. Like when I was a kid, usually there weren't was, so many. It was, it was like buy them on a spinner rack. It was a hovel where they bought, they would rent some, you know, cheap dive uh-huh. with wooden floors and you know if you bled on it, it would soak into it just, <laughs> <laughs> and uh and and guys were hiding boxes of shit all over the place and and the, it was it's like uh you know uh i guess now you'd call them gaming stores yeah, yeah. gaming stores they, oh, you wouldn't go in if you were a regular person just, right. if you're a freak <laughs> freaks go in these stores but now like- they're now they're in malls it is, uh, you've been, you've made comics in one era, you've made comics in almost every era, but like between the era that you came of age in and the era we are in now, which would you prefer or choose? Now? Oh, God, it's wonderful now. Why? Every, we're taking over the world. We really are. I mean, you know, I'm a, a historian to a mm. certain extent. I, I look at trends and I look at all this stuff. I'm, a, I'm very, very much of a geek and I am ashamed of it, but I, I, 
You wore it. You wore it long enough to now it's in vogue. So don't right. be ashamed of it. <laughs> um, uh, people, if if you go, if you go to the movies, okay, and you watch the previews, if it's not comic book movies, it's mm. movies that are based on comic book related stuff. Like let's say Godzilla, mm-hmm. or you know somebody would pick up a graphic novel, and at the end of the movie, you'd go, you'd read it based on the graphic novel, and you go, I didn't know that. Mm. It'd be some obscure graphic novel that somebody would do. Really? So what's happening is Hollywood is looking at that stuff and go, hmm, yes, but there's bad stuff. And they go, yeah, there may be bad stuff, but guess what? The winners are the, are the comic book graphic novels. Because you know what? If they last with an audience, mm-hmm. something there's something to be said for. If you just write a script, what does it mean? You know, you're lucky if you find some guy, but who's so bright that they can read a script that – you know, it's written well, but it's who gives a crap? It's, mm. There's nothing exciting. Just words on a page. Yeah, it's words on a page. So you have uh, you have these this pre-chewed material, mm-hmm. and a comic book artist can draw a movie in a month. <laughs> Jack Kirby was drawing movies. You know, true. You take that stuff and 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 they're doing and they're trying to do it at Marvel. They're doing it. I mean, let's pretend. You know that Stan Lee came up with all this stuff. Mm. Let's pretend that Stan wasn't doing these, you know, these uh, uh, little horror stories that Jack and he finally said, you know, they looked at, at, at I don't know what the conversation was. They looked at each other and said, why don't we take these little horror stories and turn them into comic comic book superhero comic books instead, instead of, instead of monster pages, stories? No, they did monster stories. That's, that's the thing oh, instead of doing comic strips, turn it into the thing that book. people don't understand. I'll show you the difference between DC and Marvel as a historian, mm. okay? Because DC and other companies were the way they were, everybody at DC, all these heroes, and because they went through the Wortham thing, were good guys. They began as good guys. They continued as good guys. They're ending up as good guys. Little sparkles go off their teeth when they smile. Uh, the Flash was a chemist who worked for the police you know, and and chemicals fell on mm-hmm. him. He became the Flash, and all these guys were good. They they had good motives. They had good intentions. They were great guys to begin with. Okay, mm-hmm. over at Marvel, that all Stan was doing was Gogog the Mogog and Doctor. You know, a doctor who was so rotten that when he lost the use of his hands, he'd go up into the mountains and become a magician so he could use his hands again. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, he was still a rotten sob. Sounds familiar. okay. Uh, gamma rays hit the, hit uh, this doctor and he turns into a giant version of Frankenstein. Excuse me, it is Frankenstein. He's just big, mm. okay, and wide, okay? But that's Frankenstein as I understand it. Uh, mutants, you know, strange characters who, Ant-Man, Ant-Man appeared in two comic books before he became Ant-Man as this guy who would crawl into, you know, and kill people and do stuff. <laughs> they were all kind of bad guys. They were all kind of, Warped and strange and odd because they came out of Stan Lee's background of doing these monster stories. Mm-hmm. So instead of having these bright, shiny tooth good guys, they everybody was flawed. Even Spider-Man had to have his Uncle Ben killed for, before he, he decided to become a good guy. Otherwise, he was the j- biggest jerk in the world. Mm-hmm. All uh, Four people go up into space and they come back and they're monsters. Fantastic Four. Uh, Dr. Banner gets hit by cosmic rays and he becomes a monster. Mm-hmm. All of these are based on, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Aunt Tony Stark mm-hmm. is a, an industrialist who is not a good guy. If you read the early, drinker. Comics, not a good guy, drinker, More heart problems, 
war profiteer, really nasty guy, and his life is being saved by this suit of armor, okay? Not a good guy, but he has become a hero. All of these characters have more dimensions because they start off as rotten guys. Right. They're monsters turned into As opposed into to starting gleaming gold and staying gleaming yeah, gold. and I'm sorry. You know, there are no really gleaming gold guys. They rarely ever become heroes. Those guys are just, you know, they're impossible to believe, you know. Mickey Mantle drank. It's like, you know, no, Mickey Mantle. No, no, mm -hmm. Mickey Mantle didn't drink. Yeah, he did. I'm sorry. There's no, there's there, Real people are imperfect, and people like that with Marvel. And it's very hard to take with DC, you know, even if they do 52 of them. You know, they're all just too nice. You know, we want a flawed characters. We want them to have some background. That's why Batman probably works the best in DC because, right? because he's the most flawed most, or he's the most, most human. Flawed, most, most human character. And Superman is an alien. He's right. <laughs> got three penises. Just, just, is that what we're going to see I'm in the new miniseries? Just saying. Woo. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I got actually a, a twist on that story in these stories, but I can't tell you. I tell you off microphone. All right. All right. But wait, so finish. So so Marvel, as a comics historian, Marvel made comics more interesting. Did that make because DC make them more interesting then or no? They, it, it was almost impossible to do it because they had already done their thing. They right. they represented the beginning. DC you know, did. the Doc Savage, the, you know, the the good guys. And Marvel was the leftovers, but those leftovers turned into fantastic characters. Yeah. Can't Mar DC can't go back and flaw the characters already perfect? How do they do that? That's true. I mean, so you can they, retcon and stuff, but still, it, it's and it's hard to create new characters. Mm. I mean, I know I made some effort within within uh, my work at DC Comics to take a dead man who was a flawed character mm -hmm. and and boston uh, brand boston brand it was not necessarily a nice guy circus aerialist yeah even uh even green arrow was kind of flawed you know he yeah, was fuck not, yeah he was yeah. a rich prick right. and right. then goes overboard has to go the other way yeah go right. the other, live off his wits so i got back to i got to humble. play with the characters uh, a lot at dc and you know the funny thing is all those characters are the ones that are prominent now. Hmm. Isn't that funny? Yeah. You added some complexity to them, and that's right. what attracted people to those well, characters. You got the Arrow TV show. I mean, I can't take any credit at all for Superman, and I and I and I know that very, 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 very much. But everything else, mm -hmm. whether it's Batman or Arrow or Green Lantern or anything, just seems like it's the Neil Adams universe over there. Well, I mean, think about it. The people who are in positions of power now, either the people pulling triggers or saying, "Yes, yeah, spend billions of dollars on this type of stuff," or the people choosing the material. They have a, they're, they're all of the ripe age, man. They were all raised That's on right. your stuff. So and your stuff informs but, what they're doing and now. You, and you've got, look at, I, 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 I'm sure this happens to you. Producers, directors, writers were comic book fans. They yes. wanted to be comic book artists or writers. Yeah. They will tell you right to your face, I wanted to do that. So those same guys take that same kind of thinking, mm -hmm. that same kind of attitude. And that same kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, the making of uh, music videos. Mm -hmm. You know, in making music videos, you do a tremendous amount of cutting. You know, you do that Alfred Hitchcock cutting. It's this and that and this and that and back, back and forth. Well, you take that and you take comic books and comic book related stuff, and that's the movies that we're making now. Mm -hmm. 
and we're making them no matter what movies we're making. Everything is quick change, quick ca- camera moves, and the brain can handle it. You know, everybody, wow, can the brain can handle a camera changing that much. Guess what? It can. Hmm. We're, ra- we're raising a generation of people who can do that. We're, kids are playing computer games, camera angle changes all the time, and they're into that. So you have a community of people where the kids are more into comic books than the adults, and the adults have been trained back into doing comic books and mm-hmm. loving comic books. Yet, we come out of a time where uh, nine-tenths of parents told their kids not to read comic books because Congress told them they were bad for them. Because of the Wortham hearings That's and stuff? Right. Nine-tenths of them. You can't have comic books in your house. And we've grown through those decades mm-hmm. to change that attitude. And now we're where Japan is, where Japan was in 1940, you know, uh, 1948, or Europe was when they were doing graphic novels. We're just beginning our trek forward. We're just beginning. This is just the beginning. Says the guy who was there I'm for the dawn you, of time. I'm telling you, this is, it was nothing. It was nothing. When I went around to show my portfolio, we're going to be out of business in a year, kid. We're going to be out of business. Do you think anybody says that now? Yeah. <laughs> Not a chance. Not a chance. Do you, you think do it that? will always be the same, though? Like, I understand. Always? Well, I mean, think about it like this. When you talked about before, those uh, those kids who their parents were like, uh, you can't read this comic stuff. That creates a desire in you to read that comic stuff. I think stuff. it's more than that. You hunt it down. I think it's great. I think it's greater than that. I think that we want to do, we want to be broad minded and we want to do things. I took uh, my kids to any movie that they wanted to go to when they were, when they were kids. And I did, there was no hands off anything. If it scared them, they'd bury their heads right, right, right. or they would tell me, right? I took my daughter to see uh, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. In the middle of it, she made me take her out of there because she didn't think the blueberry kid should die. And she knew he was dying. She didn't understand. (laughs) She was crying hysterically. And I'm going, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? That's what's bothering her? And all these other movies, nothing? Willy Wonka, that's it. It throws her. She was, ugh. Well, but that's how children learn they learn through the experiences and we open the doors we don't close doors we've become a society that pays attention to opening doors we're not going to go backward this is never going to be be undone again Mm. you know we take a hitler (laughs) how do you do that the hitler of comics there's no way to do that all it is is more and more available and people make choices kids make choices i don't like to read that Mm. yeah i like this i don't like to i still read archie I'm just coming out of Archie. I'm just, I'm into saga. You know, I'm into this or just, they're, they're all making choices and good choices for them. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now we've invaded, uh, movies mm-hmm. completely, television, video games, like fucking crazy video games, the, which is actually the more dominant market than even fucking people, movies. People are saying, people are saying to me, don't, do you think that the internet, the re, being the ability to read comic books on the internet is going to hurt the comic book market? I, I'm saying, well, look. If those internet comic books allow people to read comic books who in their lifetimes were forbidden or somehow voluntarily backed off of comic books and they felt un, uh, unwilling to step into a comic book store to buy a comic book, how easy is, is it for them to read a comic book on the internet? Mm-hmm. And they can just keep on reading and reading and reading and reading until one day they walk by a comic book store and they feel comfortable and they go in and buy a comic book. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe they'll do it with their kids or maybe they'll do it with their wives. All it's doing is introducing more people to comic books. Free and ad for brick and mortar. easy for them to come in. To go into the brick and mortar. And what is it doing to the comic book stores? It's making them expand into malls. And those are the easiest places in the world to go in. They've got bright lights. Everything's nice. The wood. And, That's true. So right. nobody's sitting there going, I want to go get one of these Superman comics. Right. But boy, that place looks dingy. Right. Exactly. If you That's can go into it and there's a Victoria's Secret across the way, you're all good. And, you're drinking your orange Julius. And, and the companies, in spite of themselves, are learning that graphic novels are more meat and potatoes than the comic books. The comic books, are they that bunch of of items mm-hmm. that come out every week okay the graphic novels are the things that stay on the shelves for years mm-hmm. the evergreens and, and they replace them and they do this and they do that that's the 21 dollar hit this is the four dollar hit mm-hmm. three dollar hit this is my the argument that i used to have at uh, at dc which i really took me a long time to win and i did win was why would do you think that a newsstand owner would want to sell a 15-cent comic book. He's going to make seven cents. Mm. He's going to sell Playboy for three fifty dollars or $4, whatever it is. He's going to make $2. He's going to make a comic book. When he presses that cash register, he's going to make seven cents on a comic book. Why on earth would he want to sell it? What What's, it, what's in it for him? Mm. How is he going to put his kids through school? What's the advantage of selling a 15-cent comic You are trying to keep the prices of the comic books down. Everybody else is moving their magazines up. And you think you're doing a good thing for the audience. Mm. You're not. You're killing the business. I was I designed Dollar Comics through DC Comics. Dollar Comics called Dollar Comics. Mm-hmm. Everybody bitched and carried on and got crazy. Dollar Comics. I'm not going to spend a dollar for a comic. And it was thick. <laughs> 64 pages. I'm not going to do that. Yet they do it. They did it. It's like, and now you laugh at it. You go, yeah, dollar? oh, I wish it was, yeah, a, dollar. Wish it was a dollar. <laughs> I'll buy that damn comic book. <laughs> And I and I said, look, Dollar Comics, DC, Dollar Comics, great, perfect, wonderful, and it was successful. It was successful to the extent it, it allowed people to go think bigger, mm-hmm. think bigger. It wasn't necessarily successful within itself, but for a period of time, everybody loved it and they would buy them, and then they put junk in them, and so then and then it goes by the wayside. But there's a the the evolution of comic books is not an uh, an evolution where you're allowed to stay retarded. And be successful. Mm-hmm. You have to jump into what's happening. When I did, um, when I didn't do it, DC Comics put out uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow hardcover with a slipcase. Yes. Almost insane. Okay. Because they sold it for $75. Huge. $75. So what the stores did was they couldn't not order it. Okay. So what they did was they took it down to $40. And they thought, well, take it down to 40. That's the only way we're going to sell it. Then people bought them up like crazy and they stopped and they turned, put it back up to $75. They learned the lesson like overnight. This is, you know, it's $75, but people are buying it. They Mm. sold nearly 15,000 copies of that. It's a beautiful book. I got one. It's a half a million dollars for DC Comics. Really? Do the math. Off of old material that they previously published, reprint. all they have to do it's is reprint. reprint. Yeah, it's, it's a, a glorified reprint. trade paperback. It's a, that's right. It's a reprint. Damn. Half a million dollars. We could choke on the money. They will. That will pay for the craft service on one day on the new yeah, Justice well, League. <laughs> you, can't, you can't think that way. It's just totally, totally insane. Well, especially because it's like they don't make that Justice League movie without 
people sitting there drawing these panels in comics years and years ago. Right. It's a built-in audience that That's they're right. that they're going after. Like, let me tell you something. I assure you, if Batman and Superman were created last year, you wouldn't see anybody rushing to spend that much money yeah. on big screen adaptions. They do it because this shit's tried and true. true. That's right. Been around for a while and people dig it and people, a lot of people put blood, sweat and tears in it. People like you created something yeah. out of characters some cats would have thought was hokey, gave them reels, as the kids say today. doing it. Yeah. This is not like, oh, past. It's it's like ongoing. You know, and uh, when uh, Wanda decided to get rid of mutants, it was like, hmm. It's a revolution, you know. Was it good? Was it bad? Let's talk about it. You know, it became the talk of the industry. Right. And they're going to make a movie of it, I'm sure. There's no way they can't. I, I, I am convinced, I don't know if I've said this before, I'm convinced that we're all waiting for to see Ant-Man walk across the chest of the vision and go into his mouth mm. and go inside. <laughs> don't we want to see that? Yes. Like, yes. Please, let me see that. Speaking of movies, since it was uh, and since we are a Batman show and since you are a premier Batman artist and since it is around the anniversary or day after the anniversary of the release of uh, 1989's Batman, Let's uh, do some of the cinematic Batmans and and just get uh, a, ba- a Batmaster's take on them. Okay. Uh, we'll start with the first one, uh, the black and white Columbia serials where they first put Batman or Robin uh, on screen in those loose groups. Really hard to talk about that. <laughs> did you, I mean, well, did you see them when they came well, out? I got to see them. Yeah, sure. I and was it like something off. that for you as an artist – no, compared to well, compared to the other ones around, mm-hmm. it, they were terrible. <laughs> they played Superman for camp. was good because it had Kirk Allen mm-hmm. looked great. I think Kirk Allen also played Blackhawk. Um, the Rocket Man was it the Rocketeer? Black Rocket Man. Mm-hmm. He was everybody loved him. Batman would be like, "Uh, really? <laughs> what is that? I mean, can't can't you tighten the clothes or something? <laughs> There's something you can do to." To make it seem like something, it was it was it was frowned upon and shunned. They looked like they were wearing felt. I mean, I, it was <laughs> terrible. You know, but you had Buck Rogers, you had all the other things, and then you had that stupid Batman thing. It, 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 I don't know. It was like you know, Maud Frickert. You know, <laughs> putting this. Is it supposed to look like a bat? <laughs> I don't understand the Robin thing. What is it? It's a, it looks like a masked fellow. That's a good winners, dude. <laughs> Um, all right, jumping ahead to the other Batman. Batman, the the movie based on the TV show, the you know the for Adam West Batman movie. That was wonderful. All the villains on One. the sub. Oh, are you kidding? Wonderful. And did you like TV that show? incarnation of the Batman TV show? Well, it, it wasn't Batman, but it was a satire, mm-hmm. and it was a satire. I, I, I last night I listened to this. I, last night I was listening to uh, old time radio. Mm-hmm. You listen. They had uh, uh, Bob uh, Bob Hope played flat top i'm trying uh bing crosby played dick tracy holy crap they did this was at the time when uh, dick tracy was gonna was finally gonna get married and he would like they they always call to test true heart and they had all the radio stars and television stars and uh, excuse me movie stars not television stars didn't have really television do a dick tracy that was an hour long wow it was like incredible and they all had – it was a musical. They all had songs. Each character had a song. Unbelievable. Worth checking out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. So for me, that experience, listening to that last night, it was like, yeah, it's like the Batman movie. It's the mm-hmm. Batman TV shows. Those things were wonderful. Actors that we had seen for years doing – I mean, Cesar Romero and there's all these parts with these old musicals and all the rest of that. 
is playing this character. Uh, I just, everybody had a great time. It wasn't just me. Everybody in America had a great time. It wasn't Batman. Mm-hmm. It was stupid. <laughs> I mean, you knew when the first show came on and um, and Jill St. John was, she was standing on the time of this, uh, the edge of this uh, cyclotron, mm-hmm. I believe, that was sent on a stage, had no place to go and there were no rods or anything, but it was circular, looked like a giant barrel and she falls into it. And Batman says, what a way to go-go. Right. <laughs> that was pretty much, that's going to be this show. Right. And it was. And the show lasted for a period of time, but nobody seemed to know it was over when it was over. They, they thought they could milk it a little bit longer. I don't know. At DC Comics, they were totally, you know, they had no idea what was going on. And when I tried to do Batman, uh, they looked at me like I was crazy. What are you going to do? We're going to cancel Detective Comics, Neil. No, really? Yeah. And sales for Batman aren't so good either. So years later, almost 20 years later. 20 years later. They do... Tim Burton's Batman. Yes. Now, what did you think of that? I don't think we've ever spoken. Well, everybody, that. again, as with the TV show, I loved it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, the makeup on the Joker was terrible. Mm-hmm. Terrible. It looked like big lumps of clay on his face. It he didn't did, smile actually. all the time. Yeah. In fact, I looked at Jack Palance back there and I said, that's the Joker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really? Jack Boss Grism? Yeah. He's like, uh, it's true. I mean, it's Palance. weird. I felt that I, at the time it came out, like, I just bought it because they were like, he shot him in the face, so his face looks fucked up. But it reminded me of when they made the Spider-Man movie, and they took Willem Dafoe as one of the most expressive faces in the movies, and they put him in a fucking Green yeah, Goblin was helmet. Big, like, no, it was a mask. Yeah, like, a, like, like a, a Halloween mask. But why not just, why like, not paint his face green right. and let him, because at one point in the movie, he does a big smile in the mirror, and you're like, that's the Green that's, Goblin. That's him. That's Same him. thing with Nicholson. Really? Like, you watch Nicholson in... Uh, any almost any movie, but right before they did Batman was uh, The Witches of Eastwick, where he's playing the devil and whatnot. So he's a bit over the top. He's giving big speeches. Uh, it was a Warner Brothers movie as well. I think that was the one that kind of led them to go like, hey, let's get him for, for Batman. Yeah. But you see him there, just paint him white and he would have been fine. You didn't need right. the facial appliance. do Joker. Yeah. He wasn't doing Joker. He was serious. Yeah. He should be smiling all the time. <laughs> you know, you want to see that, but he wasn't doing it. And Nicholson could have pulled it off. Yes. If he believed it and you didn't put that stupid makeup on. And there was, you know, I that makeup was the worst makeup <laughs> I've ever seen in Hollywood. It was, it, made, it was lumpy. It was the worst crap. And it was almost like done with disrespect. You know I mean? <laughs> really? The like- well, because you've seen Hunchback of Notre Dame, yeah. all these other uh, makeup characters. They do the right, you know, blend the makeup into it. I've seen makeup done in the past. Hell yeah. Frankenstein, werewolf, all that stuff. They were done well. Why was he, you know, why did he get short shrift? I don't understand. So I think, I think they blew it. I, I didn't, I never, I didn't like them. It was the wrong age. Mm-hmm. Who was it? There was some guy that it was in the first movie or the second movie who played a young guy who became the Joker. Or became- there was a flashback in, in the yeah. 1989 where there was a kid, a, a guy right. who points his gun and see around go, kid. That's Joker. The Joker. That guy's yeah. the Joker, man. Who is that guy? I want him to be the Joker. How old do you think the Joker is? Like in your mind, I'm classic. 29. Really? Yeah. Look at that. Nice. So it was Batman. 
Always eternally. Always. And so is Joker. They're about the same age. It's weird. To me, Batman's like always got to be the Jesus age of like, what is that, 33 or something like that? Just because in his, I can't think of a Batman in his 20s because I'm like, ugh, I remember me. all these Robins around and still believe. (laughs) What did you think of Batman's outfit? The, 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 the suit, you know, that they made for Tim Burton. I'm not for Tim Burton for Michael Keaton. Really? None of them? Waiting. I'm waiting and waiting for them to put, you know, they, they, they do in this one right here. Frank Miller's, the, the sculpture right here that's on top, right in front of your face. Uh, oh, this. Yes, they're doing that one for well, the next movie. Like, we'll he looks see. like that. Um, here's, here's a choice. Go ahead. For um, Joker. Yes. So we'll say we're looking for another Joker. Okay. Okay. Because they will be soon. Right. So they're going to. Matt Smith. Matt Smith is. Oh, Doctor the Doctor Who. Who. Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tall. He's got the. He he's got. And can he'll do physical. Overcome. He doesn't. He's gonna not gonna seem like a challenge mm-hmm. to the to previous one. He's got that look. Fan favorite. Smile, fan favorite in our world. Exactly. Be fantastic. Huge. And he's got the shape. Everything. Yeah. He's got everything there. Good call, man. Good uh, call. Thank you. I like that. I'm See, you should be fucking directing and running shit. Okay, so the suit you've never. You don't think they've ever done the suit right? Can't turn his head. What's yeah. this? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Pull it back. They did in the Dark Knight. They let him. It's when he figured out it's more of a motorcycle helmet affair, so he can turn his. They even made a joke about it where he's like, "You want to turn? You want to be able to turn your head?" That's what I Lucius think, Fox said. I think, uh, here's a, here's a thought. This to me, okay, mm-hmm. this is wrong, but it's still right. If if uh, dancing, what's his name? Dancing. Ted dancing. Ted dancing. Mm-hmm. If Ted dancing were a young man, okay, what is he? Six three and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's got all his hair, but when you take the hair down, mm-hmm. he's got this thick neck. Mm-hmm. Goes down. He played a GI, almost like a Sergeant Rock in one of the longest day. I think he was. It looked like Sergeant Rock. Okay, his hair would go down. It would go straight down the back of his head. He's tall, broad-shouldered, looks athletic. That's Batman. That's you, really. Ted Danson is your Batman. ideal Batman. Think about it. Yeah, think he's got a build. It. He's got a build. He's tall. He's athletic. He looks like he could do gymnastics. Mm-hmm. Put him in a suit that shows off the muscles. You could pump it up a little bit, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Armored, you know, excuse me, bulletproof material doesn't have to be like armor. So it could be cloth. It could be cloth. They can twist in the material. Why don't they do that? Well, I, just, I, I think the first it. time I just watched, you know, they put one of the websites. There is a, uh, it's called 1989batman.com. And they put up this promotional reel that they had done in advance of the movie because as they said when they announced when Warner Brothers like we're doing Batman Adam West was on radio shows going like it's going to be dark it should be I should be the only Batman so they had to do a fight against this pre-internet but they had to do a fight against you know a public outcry of like hey you're you're not letting Batman be Batman so they had to put together this promotional reel about 20 minutes long about the making of Batman before they've started rolling a frame. So you're seeing a lot of half-built sets in England. Mm-hmm. You're seeing a lot of the gear, the car. Right. Like what today would be considered spoiler material, and right. this is over a year in advance before the movie. Right. And I think right. this was meant just for licensors and the studio to convince yeah, people, sure. not the general public, but just people who are like, right. uh, what kind of money should we invest in this Batman thing? So as they were showing all of this stuff, um, I forgot why I started talking about it in the first place. There was the one thing I was like, oh, because, oh, so they talked to the costumer, okay. Bob Ringwood, and he's going, the idea of the bat suit is that 
it's a suit of armor. Like on the outside, it's covered in whatever rubber. But underneath, he said, like, there should be a scene in the movie where you'll see the costume opened off to the side and you'll see that it's metal plate inside and blah, blah, blah. So his idea was like, we don't want to, this is Michael Keaton's very physically fit. We don't need to make him look stronger, but going off of the old Knight's suit of armor theme, we <laughs> give him this and Bob stayed, that designer stayed as the Batman suit designer through all those movies, I think up to Batman and Robin. Yeah. Next incarnation is, you know, uh, Batman begins the Chris Nolan verse yeah. and stuff. So at that point, they're still in this world of like, it's not nearly as sculpted and no nipples, obviously, but they're, they're still in this world of like, make it look like body armor because there's still this feeling of like, who could believe this about a guy who dresses up like a bat? He's still got to look very metal. Did you metal. see that little short film done by this? That Where he fought guy. alien? Uh, yeah. And Predator, fuck yes. Oh. Amazing. And you see the dude in the suit and you're like, why can't? I'm telling you, that's what they're doing that's, in this new Batman movie. I hope so. They, it's him in material. It's I no none so. of this body armor I shit. I hope so. But you can see why they stuck with it because if it worked, one, like think about it. That is, it, it, I bet you in the minds no, of the mainstream. They were, con- they were self-convinced that it worked. Yes, because in the minds of the mainstream, they're like, okay, Batman on TV wore the cloth outfit, but Batman in the movies, he oh, wears armor. Oh, and that movie made $400 million. So right. they just keep doing it no, and doing it right. until somebody goes, why can't he wear well, that's a what fucking they did. cloth that's suit? They, what, what they and did. when he wears the cloth suit, you know what's going to happen? They're going to make that much more money because yeah. everyone's going to be like, did you see yeah. the fucking cloth suit right. at work? And it may, no, it I works. Agree. I totally agree. The the thing is that is that that first thing the first thing that they did mm-hmm. finally wore out when they did the nipples and they did yes it. So oh like, god finally, yeah finally going, nah. and the and the one of the worst hits was uh, was um, the penguin mm-hmm. the penguin kind of turned people sour because he was too slimy and ooky and fucked up and yeah, yeah it's like you you know it's one thing to make a cartoon out of it's another thing to make an ugly slimy really awful monster out of it. it's like monster. And so that kind of turned people. And then from that point on, it was really everybody's going, oh, nobody's going to pull this thing out of the shitter. So, <laughs> so with the three new movies, mm-hmm. till the third one, mm-hmm. I think the third one kind of uh, put people off. So whenever you put Batman against a nuclear bomb, it's not a good idea. Not a good idea because he's not a superhero. No. He's a guy in a costume. Yes. And that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And if you give him a villain who's shorter than him, it could break his back. I don't like that either. Right. I could think of 10 wrestlers who could probably do it very easily. He did have a killer back. voice, though. What a great voice. Yeah, but that's a, an augmented voice. Mm. That's You can do that with anybody. The, the, that guy was nothing. I could take him. <laughs> Physically, saying, Tom Hardy? I, I could take him. I think I could take him. I know five guys. But he's, he's got you in the voice department because that voice is fun. Is oh Batman that kind of thing? I don't know. <laughs> All right, you beat me. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Adams says, "Baby, oh good old Shannon." I'm just saying, and they and they keep on making these weird choices, and I you, you just sit back and wonder, you know, like the the thing. What's his name? What's the guy that played the thing in the, in the uh, Fantastic Four? Movie? Uh, the the one actor, of our favorite actors um, from the Shield. That guy, yeah. Right. Uh, uh, and you know out. the guy is like what six three and four, or six four, mm-hmm. and then he turns into the thing and it works. But right. And this guy turns into him. Looks like a little guy in a funny. <laughs> right. <What's that? laughs> they should have put. Raza Ghoul at the end, like she should have been first and then return. I, I thought at one point we all heard like he's in it, and we're like ah, but it was just for a there's some flashback. Raza Ghoul is going to appear in uh, Arrow. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, they were casting like six months ago. Did I tell you the the right uh, when the writers came up to talk to me at San Diego? I talked to you. Uh-uh. About that. 
writers of the show, uh, the Arrow Show, Arrow Show, came to to talk to me at San Diego. Obviously, fans, which you don't expect. You kind of go, a bunch of Hollywood writers. What the hell did they know? Mm -hmm. But they came up to me in a group, and they said, "We're uh, and there's a head writer, and uh, and we're the writers of the Arrow Show." I said, "Oh, really?" This is after the right after the first season. Mm -hmm. I said, "They said, did you watch the show?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I do. I actually watched the show. What do you think of it?" I said, "Okay, so you just want me to bullshit you, or just tell you the truth?" Well, no, tell us the truth. No, you just want me to bullshit you. No, we want you to tell us the truth. I said, "Well." Green Arrow doesn't shoot arrows into people's chest and kill them. Is that what they did on the show? Yeah, first season. First season, boom, boom, killing people. They said, well, second season, we'll be doing that. Really? Really? Are you kidding? No. Okay. What else? I said, well, we're going to introduce Diana Drake and other characters that you know. Really? I said, what else don't you like about the show? I said, well, I don't think you can do this one. I said, why? Put a fucking smile on his face. <laughs> He's too goddamn serious. Jesus. I've never, I've never seen a lot of people because, you know, I worked on Green Arrow at one point, though not nearly as legendarily as yourself, of course. But some people have been like, hey, man, what do you think of Arrow? And, um, I've never, uh, for, you know, there have been people on the show who've spoken it up. Denny liked to, yeah. liked to give us some props and whatnot. Um, I, the only reason I ever watched it, and this is maybe seeing petty and stuff, but I, it kind of turned me off to the whole thing. There was a, a creator on the show, on one of the producers on the show, one uh -huh. of the chief head writers. Um, somebody asked him on Twitter, like, Hey man, are, is uh, Kevin Smith worked on Green Arrow? Is he ever going to work on the TV show? And the dude just put a one word response said no, and oh. that was it. And I would have I would have been watching Green so Arrow if you didn't say that. If I you saw said, that, and suddenly hey, I was like, yeah, maybe. I, you know what? Yeah. I'll just listen to everyone else yeah, tell me you know about you the can't show. Do that. What do you mean? If I did that, if I did that, I'd, I'd be hating everybody. <laughs> really? You know? That's true. I've, been, I've taken a lot of shit in my time. What now? Have you so? Do you watch the show regularly? Oh yeah, watch it. It's good. It's a good show. For Arrow. And you're there on season what, two or three going There's on? There's a guy on that's going to become Ra's al Ghul. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. talk about Nanda Parbat, which is from Dead Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Drake is on it. They yeah. got the, a lot of references. slipping in stuff in all the time. Mm -hmm. Speedy uh, is supposed to show up, and they keep on teasing us with who's going to be Speedy. We, we, seem, we, we seem to know who it is, and then we don't. They keep on plucking it from our hands. They keep on doing stuff. They're, I mean, they're, and they're open to ideas. I mean, I sent them a big... Um, scenario they seem very happy with it nice do you and think you'll will you i don't know i don't know i never know i never know they'd be because fucking dumb not to like put well, you on an episode you're a fucking writer as well ah yes and yeah. one of the writers you one of the few think, writers in this think. world that is most identified with the character you, their titular character you would think yeah but you know i can't you can't the See, uh, this is of, me. If I'm in charge of the show. No, I understand. If I'm in charge of the show, not only do I go, why don't you write an episode? I go to a man who's worked in visuals his whole life and go, why don't you direct one of these? Yeah. Because they trade out directors every fucking episode. Normally, you know, why I, not fucking you? Why not guest do, director they you? Do, they do. That. It's like, oh, we know it. Now, I we have a thing called Bucky O'Hare. Bucky O'Hare is a cartoon show, Green Rabbit, mm -hmm. in, uh, Anna, in the Anniverse. 
and a kid goes and visits the universe. It's initially created by uh, Larry Hama, created by Larry Hama, mm-hmm. and uh, and a terrific character, really great character. The name the name originally was Buck Bunny, but we fixed that. <laughs> uh, we fixed it at O'Hare Airport, as I remember. Marilyn said, "O'Hare, isn't that a rabbit?" Yes, it is. Oh, nice. cool. So anyway, uh, uh, we did it, and Michael Golden did the art, and it's just fantastic, of course. Um, when they when it was going to become a TV show, the people who were doing the TV show were, were over dinner, and they and the guy leaned to me and he said, "Neil, you've taken it so f- up this far, but now just it's sort of like a, you know uh, somebody growing up. You put it into our hands, and we'll take care of it." Did they take care of it by putting a bullet in its head, or what? No, they 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 didn't take care of it because I said, "Pardon me, excuse me, no." Because <laughs> they were like, "Oh, we'll take the, it from here." I am, I am the editor of any script that goes through. We will write some of the scripts ourselves, and uh, this is how we're going to work. Period. What you're going to do is you're going to have your writers, whoever we get and whoever we agree on, you're going to write an hour long script. I'm going to edit it down to a half hour. Nice. And that's how we're going to do the TV shows. Really? <laughs> yes, like really. Well, you know, I don't think you should be having such a, you know, strong opinion of it and view it. I said, it's my character. Yeah, really? That's my friend's character. I'm going to take care of it. So we had good shows. Then they didn't allocate the toys properly. <laughs> and there were no Bucky O'Hare toys. Oof. Toys went out. Bucky O'Hare disappeared. Boom. Not allocated properly. So now we're talking to Hollywood about doing maybe an animated TV show. There you go. I mean, animated uh, movie. Feature. It would be great. Right. It would really be great. Bucky O'Hare, designed by Michael Golden, man, something else. Anyway. I'm into it, man, but I'm still ringing the bell for you to do an episode of Arrow. I don't see why not. Like, again, I, I, you I, are a visual well, fucking I stylist. Done, I've done some directing. Yeah. Well, why not you on? Yeah. Well, yeah. Hey, but still, dude, it's marriage of material. Like. They'll write about that episode, you oh, know, yeah. like they no. would get a lot of attention. Right. And one, one smile and one gleaming smile from Arrow hmm, yes. would be pretty much everybody. Go, what? What's that? The first and only time that exactly. he lets uh, the pearly whites let's be Let's have him do that a little bit more. <laughs> Not quite so Batman serious. My friend Jason Muse watches the show religiously and he will always tell me whenever there's a DC Universe reference. Right. And there's lots. Oh, but yeah. he's Tons. he was very excited to show me the Deathstroke, Deathstroke mask very early on. It was like, look! Right. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. The actor's a really nice guy, too. Yeah, I met him the other day. Very he nice. was really a nice dude. He was the only actor. I told him. I said, uh, dude, I said, Muse, my friend Jason Muse, met you at a show recently. He said, I think it was a Phoenix Comic Con or something. I said, yeah. He said, my boy said you were the only person in 20 years in this business that he got tongue-tied in front of. He didn't know what to say to Arrow. Yeah. He watches the show. He digs it well, so he's, much. He's, he's a good character. And the guy who Barrowman plays, mm-hmm. who's like this bad archer, is really good, too. He stopped by, um, uh, I, I suppose I shouldn't be saying this, but he stopped by my booth a couple of conventions ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asked me to do a drawing of his character as, as if he were a little bit more revealed and he could get a little bit more physical so maybe he could show it to the producer and maybe get a little bit more play look at you really so i did it for him and i don't know if they're going to use it it'd be nice still he's walking in with like uh this is what i'd i'd like it to go in this direction it's a neil adams original it's nice to have somebody it's very complimentary to have someone come by and so i just gave him a i think it's a very nice physical thing if they don't do it they don't do it if they do it they do it i saw online somebody had tweeted a picture that you had done of Dante and Randall. You did a Dante and Randall drawing two clerks from clerks oh, and it was right. fucking gorgeous. 
Yes. Photographic gorgeous. Like, it was beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, that's thing. what happens when you have a light box and they can trace. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, though, I saw the picture. I was like, fuck, I'm going to write a fucking Clerks uh, miniseries and have right. Neil draw it. It's just <laughs> gorgeous. Um, but speaking of things I've seen Neil draw, man, this Bat- uh, the Superman miniseries looks phenomenal. The arrival of the Superman panel, Superman panel alone. Well, is it actually? And your Lois Lane is very button-nosed cute. She is very cute, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm trying to bring a lot of stuff back. Mm-hmm. And there's things I, geez, I can't reveal things here. But let us just say that Apocalypse and New Genesis is more related to the Earth. And so is Krypton as the source. Nice. That smells like it's going to wind up in the movie. Somebody's going to steal that and put it into a flick. Okay. I can't say that. <laughs> You're thinking out loud, dude. I know. I'm thinking out loud. That's true. That's true. Spoiler, dude. You don't have to spoil. Give them a little taste because they got what a year at yeah. least before. Yeah. Give them something to keep them hooked. Be interesting if you got a bit of Superman's blood and you tested it. There you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. Right, you got my money. You have my. Yeah. I saw the pages, so you have my money already. Uh-huh. But um, the uh, the the legend. Uh, that is Neil Adams. Wait, before you go, I got to hit you with the Nolan first. No, the Batman, Chris Nolan, Bat- Dark Knight movies. Right. Uh, where do they stand in terms of, or how did you feel first about those? First two, great. Right. First two, great. Last one, yeah. too dark, too too much. Right. It's almost like Overboard. If we just let those first two stand on their own and let this push that. And and I'm not saying the, the last one was not good, but they did the same thing they did in the Superman movie. He went away for five years. Yeah. yeah. Which is not Batman I'm at all. I'm sorry. This guy is, this guy's got, he's got, he's, it's like, okay. Sherlock Holmes uh, died. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the fans didn't let him die. They demanded that he come back. Mm-hmm. So when he came back, he told a history of what he had done during the two years that he was away. Mm-hmm. And his adventures away were almost as good or if maybe better. <laughs> now. So he didn't just go away. Right. He did shit. Now, the idea of Bruce Wayne going away doesn't sit well with me. In, in any and he went away in his house in yeah, Gotham. Yeah, it's like, what the hell is that? I'm sorry. That just doesn't make any sense. I just don't see that as Batman. The but first the first two? two? Was, yeah, first two are good. Well, I, I have to take a little bit of credit for the Joker because, of course, Denny and I did a Joker that pretty much the first sequence where Joker, Joker's killing off his, his, mm. his cronies pretty much was the comic book uh, that Denny and I did. So I, I have to like that. Right. And I have to like that they, they got uh, Ra's al Ghul. I think that they could do a better Ra's al Ghul. I have a feeling they're headed for that on an Arrow TV show. Yeah. Something's going on there. I well, now they'll have more time in an episodic to yeah, play with Raza Ghoul. And if they, and if they, if it's who I think it is, it's going to be pretty exciting. The uh, other exciting thing that lies in our very near future is uh, on on my end. We're ramping up our show on AMC Comic Book Men for season yeah. four, and we're already. I've been talking to uh, Neil about coming on and, and being on the show. Denny's already said he's going to come on this yeah. year. So Neil's going to be on this well, year Well, I made as well. the suggestion to the guys. I don't know if you should mention the suggestion. I don't know if they'll do it. But I thought we had such a good time when we did a signing at this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of funny things happened. It was very, very funny. I was I was wondering maybe the, the, the guys wouldn't mind doing the signing. That's the move. We can have the guys in the foreground talking about what's going on. Right, right, right. Uh, absolutely. Cool. But you're in there for sure this yeah, season, man, which would be nice because the 
right in front of the counter is that big ass cover of, of with Batman on the card. Um, it is always a goddamn pleasure and an honor to talk to you. You are hands down one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life. I kind of like me too. Yeah, I, <laughs> rightfully so. And you're not so bad yourself. I know we're self likers. I'm 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 pretty much uh, stopped for a couple of weeks to sit in my LA studio to work on Superman. Really? Yeah. So you're here for a while? Well, I have a studio. Where? We're fixing the plumbing right now. <laughs> you're really? Before I came over here, I was sweeping all the extra grit out of the uh, driveway. Where is it, Marilyn? Burbank. Burbank. Oh, right over the hill. Yeah. So wait, how long are you spent? So you snowbird net and drawing out here for a while? Yeah, a couple of weeks. Nice. Well, then you well, have my it. son. Uh, we have a house, small house out here. It's no big deal. Uh-huh. But my son lives in a house and he runs a studio, and uh, and he's uh, he did the first uh, three or four years of, uh, of character designs for King of the Hill. Oh, get out of here! Yes, Holy he crap! Did. And uh, he's a character designer, and so he does. He's got his own thing, and so he likes it out here. I don't know if he's going to stay here another five years, but he does like it out here. Mm-hmm. And so he runs the studio and he runs the house. So when we come out, I don't have to stay at a, uh, you know, a Holiday Inn. Right. I this have is a nice. home and I have a studio to work in. So it's like, and, you know, the uh, uh, Internet is like a, it's like a hole in the wall. If I have work, I just send it to New York. and uh, You're there. You might yeah. as well be there. So I've, nothing, there's nothing stopping me from doing everything I would normally do if I was sitting at home. So, Great. A, you got to come back and, and we'll chit chat again while you're well, out we here for the hit next some few months. Interesting areas. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, po- next time, pile them up and talk everything you feel like we haven't touched, which we I know is we tons. We haven't done my LSD experience. Oh fuck! Well, don't tell me that now. All right, you know what? There it is. That'll okay. that will be the tune in for next time. Okay. Really? What year is this? You want to hear it? Yeah, fuck it. Go ahead. Never mind. Next time, there is no next okay. time. There is no tomorrow. Go listen to this. So I don't, I'm not the type of person that does this sort of. I've thing. never done LSD. Right. I'm not. The, this is not my thing. Mm-hmm. But a bunch of us are going to go to a convention in a college in Canada. <laughs> right. You did Canadian and LSD, and it's and it's winter. So we go to this campus, and you have to drive miles to get to the campus, and it's been snowing, so there's like eight feet of snow. So we're at the campus. And they're going to have, it's not just a comic book convention. I don't even know what kind of a weird comic book convention it is. It wasn't normal. They're also going to have a concert, a rock concert. <laughs> right? So I'm like, really? So, and Stan was there. I don't know what he did there. And, and so we're walking around this campus or indoors and outdoors, but mostly indoors. And it's this great campus. And I'm so, the guys, the guys, I can't name the guys because, hmm. you know, they're, Obviously, I was doing things ask. they shouldn't be doing. Right. The guys are doing. Come on, you got to do some LSD. And I said, No, I don't do LSD. It's not something. I, it's not something. I, you know, you convince me to take those tokes. I got that. Okay, none of it. They say, No, no. Listen, you're protected. You're out in a college campus. We're miles away from town. We're surrounded by eight feet of snow. You're among friends. It'll be a great experience. <laughs> fine. So they give me this, like, they break this thing and they give it to me, right? So I take it. Okay. So nothing. Nothing. Okay, fine. Okay. Why don't we go to the rock concert? Fine. How do you feel, Neil? I feel fine. Anything happening? Nothing is happening. I'll go to the rock concert. 
rock concert sucked. <laughs> it was loaded with people who were screaming. I couldn't tell what the hell the music was. So I stood in the back and I'm listening to this thing and it's just noise. I'm going, what the hell, you know? And I'm building up a load of piss. <laughs> so, so I asked somebody, where where can I go to the bathroom? She said, over there, we're going to point to the place. So sure enough, I go over there, and sure enough, and, and nothing's happening to me. It's just like, yeah, I think they gave me a piece of cardboard, mm -hmm. right? So I go into the bathroom, and there's, it's this long bathroom. I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's, a, it's at a college, so a lot of people can piss at the same time. So this long line of urinals and long line of toilets, right? Long, and it must have been 50, right? So I go to the middle. <laughs> I don't know why, but there's so many. Right. I thought, well. Safe in the middle. Is that, is that what the king does? So I'll just go <laughs> and I'll pee in the middle one, all right? So I pee in the middle one. And oh, thank, oh, it's feeling, you know, that, that kind of pee that just feels so good. Oh, yeah. Apparently, a protective layers had been stripped away because the whole room moved away from me. While you were pissing? While I was pissing. <laughs> Shit. Something's happened. And then it moved toward me again. Oh, so this is it. Okay, so what happens now? So I zip up my pants. I look to the left. And the door that I came in a leprechaun comes in. The fuck out of here. He's in a green suit. He's got red hair. And he comes in and he goes, hi, Neil. <laughs> hi. I go. Walks behind me. And out the other door. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm in trouble now. <laughs> so I step back. and I Okay. So I'm going to flush the urinal. The handle disappeared. No button. Door opens. Leprechaun comes in. Hi, Neil. I'm lost. Hi. <laughs> Walks through. Goes out the door. Oh, shit. <laughs> this is really, really, really bad. So now I'm stepping back and I'm looking for something to flush this urinal. And then suddenly, they all flush at the same time. Boosh! Like that. Oh, they have an automatic timer on. Every once in a while, the thing flushes. Ah. <laughs> but what about the leprechaun? There's this writer, this little writer, comic book writer, that I think was invited. This little short guy, red hair. Could he be wearing a green suit? Like, what the hell is that? But I'm fucked up, right. right? So I start wandering around the school, and I wander to a stairway as if called. I wasn't called. There's a stairway. And I look on the stairway, and there's a whole bunch of people I know. They say, you can't come up unless you can become an animal. Okay. So any kind of animal, any kind you want. Chimpanzee? Sure. I'm good at chimpanzee. <laughs> I'm great at chimpanzee. So I did chimpanzee. I was on the grading, you know, and it was, it was like, it was great. The leprechaun comes to the bottom of the stairs. Hi. 
And they name him. And now I recognize his name. He's the little writer. But he's in a green suit and with red hair. So they go through the same. You have to become an animal. He says, any kind of an animal? And everybody says, sure. And he says, what about a werewolf? So he goes, like that. And his fingers pop out and they grunt. They go like this and they they seal over here and the fingers seem to grow points to him and everybody draws back. <laughs> Holy shit, this little fucker is me. <laughs> werewolf. <laughs> and he and then he stops and he smiles. <laughs> let him up, let him up, let him up. It's the greatest werewolf I ever saw in my life. Only because you're on LSD. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He looked great. He obviously knew he could do it. Right. So obviously it was his thing. So he became a werewolf. Comes up to the top of the stairs and he tries the door that's next to me. Right. And it doesn't open. It's locked. He says, <sighs> I said, well, what's going on? He says, I'm trying to get back to my room. Oh, you're lost. Right. Yeah, I think it's this way. Okay. And then he goes back down the stairs. And then I hear, and I look through the glass and there he is. <laughs> like that. The rest of the night was very, very nice. Guys were making angels, snow, angels in the snow. And I'm watching and we're talking. I didn't get tired all night until right at, you know, into the morning. I took a nap. And it was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. Look at that. I would never do it again. Right. But I know, because I know it was totally fucked up. <laughs> but I, it was it was great. Like, you can't ask me, did you have a terrible any terrible experiences doing it? No, I had this wonderful experience. If you're going to tune in, if you're going to expand your mind, Hawaii, you uh, Canadian college campus in I the middle guess, of winter I is the best place to do it. Boy, oh boy, really something. <laughs> um, you rock, sir. You're the best. Not Thank just you. at your art, but fuck, you're a great storyteller. I'm still, I'm ringing the bell for you to direct an episode of, of Green, Arrow, Green Arrow. Well, maybe they'll let me. I don't know. Uh, nice. th there it is, kids. Uh, you, you're hearing the legend yet again. Neil Adams, thank you for being here. Bye, folks. That's it for this week, kids. Uh, from the Fat Cave, man, this is Kevin Smith. Uh, tune in next week. Same fat time, same fat channel. Smodcast.com. See you, folks. Take it easy. This has been a Smodco Internet production. Sit. Only at smodcast.com. <laughs>